Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Good morning. How does let's see if I can get this video to work? Huh. Oh, I just did an audio call if that's Oh yeah, sure, that's fine. That'll adequate. work. That'll be way better because it'll we won't lose connection so easily. Exactly. Perfect. All right. So great to finally talk to you, Tom. Yeah, um, man, how's everything? Do you prefer Tom or Thomas? Tom's fine. Not a Tom not a Thomas, all right. Yeah. Um, yeah, things are okay in California. You're still in Oregon? Yeah, yeah, I'm in Portland. In Portland, right. I was just on a conference call for the Eleusinia Mysteries with two of our, uh, two of the priests in Portland. They're both counselors, and they're giving us a bit of an idea of what's going on. You're safe and all? Yeah, yeah. Was, uh, was Steve one of them? No. No, they're, uh, they're, uh, clergy of the magical cauldron of the western sea which is mother bear's thing that's been part of the the, the uh, ka the church of all worlds with oberon zell for many years and they have their own thing where they do 16 month cycles of the eleusinian mysteries um over uh with with you know multiple three-day events and stuff of course it's all had to be done online and uh, i was invited to be one of the guest uh, priests putting on the rituals, 13 priests and 13 pilgrims is what they do over 16 months and some and multiple live events and retreats. It's been very interesting. That's awesome. Yeah. Good show. Yeah. So it's, it's super rare. It's, it's super rare that when I look at the, the books, uh, because Chris Bennett made me aware of you that when I look at someone's books, I'm like, instantly like oh i have to read all of those but you're one of those cases whereas when i looked up your books and i was like oh i have to read all of those oh awesome <laughs> yeah um being uh being where i'm at i'm not in a really position to get books and then carry them with me when i get back to bc though so i figured uh maybe we can follow up once i actually have read your books and in the meantime maybe you could tell me a bit about each of them and thus educate people who might not know about your work Sure, sure. Um, okay, yeah, so the, the first book, uh, you want me to just jump right into it? Yeah, let's go, if you don't mind. Not at all. Um, I'm excited. Yeah, great, great. Um, well, thanks for having me on. Um, I'm always happy to talk about psychedelics and magic and spirituality, especially in history, so I, I appreciate the opportunity to do so uh, with you today. Um, 
The uh, the first book I wrote in the field is uh, called The Witch's Ointment, and it was, um, well, it is a look at um, the different kinds of magical practices that wise women were wielding during medieval times and the early modern period and the Renaissance, uh, specifically those that dealt with um, psychoactive plants. Um, and I don't want to reduce all of what we're doing to the use of psychoactives or all of magic to psychoactive or mushrooms or cannabis or anything like that. Um, but the, see them more as a natural extension of common magical acts that people would engage in. And, um, the book that that's like kind of like the, um, the outline point of the book. And then the focus of it is to um, try to uncover, one, whether or not women uh, and some men as well were having these kinds of what we would call entheogenic experiences. And if they were, what were they actually like? Um, like, what was that experience like? Like, how did, what was the larger culture that they couch these things in? Like, so um, when I mean the larger culture that they couch these things, like, so today somebody, you know, eats a whole lot of mushrooms and they start talking about, you know, interstellar space travel and, you know, the galaxies of the mind and inner space and what have you. People during medieval times didn't know anything about that stuff. They still thought that the earth was the center of the whole universe. So, um, you know, you, you, when you look back in the past, it's not so much about just finding where, uh, you know, where and when people were using these substances, but how did they actually think about them with regards to the larger culture that they found themselves in? So, um, uh, the, the main thesis of the book is that it's showing what I think these wise women were up to and what the beliefs that surrounded this practice, uh, entailed. And, um, my follow-up to that was called Psychedelic Mystery Traditions, which is a book, um, it's essentially, it was all the material from the witch's ointment that didn't make it into the witch's ointment. So if I would have added it to the book, it would have been double the size, and I just figured I'd write two books. Um, well, I didn't really figure I'd write two books. That came after the fact when I saw I had all this leftover material, and uh, I just expanded on it. And um, I wanted to use the book to show a history of psychedelic and entheogenic use in the West, because... A lot of times when we say psychedelics and psychedelic history, people, you know, they go right to Mesoamerican peyote and mushroom traditions or um, ayahuasca traditions in Peru, or they'll head to the east and talk about, you know, like the Soma of the Vedics. Um, so I, uh, the, the West has always kind of been overlooked until you get to the 1960s, but the West actually has a very rich um, tradition and history of, of psychedelic and entheogenic use. So that's what the second book was about. And then my third book was more of a short little pamphlet manual. Um, it's only about 100 pages uh, called Microdosing Magic, a Psychedelic Spellbook. And it's just... Um, a way for people that were new to like mushrooms and LSD and essentially microdosing those things and also new to the concept of magic and how if you are microdosing or using either mushrooms or cannabis or whatever, um, you know, for, you know, growing purposes um, to better yourself, there's actually magical techniques that you could add to the mushrooms, let's say, you know, so to speak, and uh, to enhance the experience.
Yeah, yeah, that one really uh, caught my attention. I think it will catch uh, has been catching a lot of people's attention since I've been posting it. I, I I come from a Maharishi family, but then went into Wicca, Druidry, and then did seven years in the Hermetic Order, of the Golden Dawn. So before nice. before a bunch of years of doing an MDiv in seminary at Vancouver School of Theology. So I have a, a wide range of background, but n- during none of that time did I ever explore entheogens or psychedelics or even alcohol or pot. Um, so it's been only in my thirties that I started to dive into that. And that was sort of intentional on my part. I was like, you know, you can't do everything all at once or you'll, you'll (laughs) go crazy. Um, and the idea of, uh, that, that microdosing magic looks like it could be right there on most of our bookshelves up with Scott Cunningham and, and all of our witchcraft stuff. What kind of, um, uh, maybe you could give, share some details. I'm curious about how you integrate or how you've experienced or or really found the most use of integrating microdosing with uh, any form of magic or ceremonial magic. A friend of mine recently said that a Gnostic friend said that, they, well, they, they, they don't really, they're not really big on the idea of microdosing at all. Like there's no point. You may as well just heroic dose or nothing at all. Sure. Sure. Uh, and, you know, I, I agree with that. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm a heroic doser for sure, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, again, I wrote that uh, I wrote microdosing magic more for a general audience. And all the spells that I write about, like I would do those, but I would do them with high doses. I didn't do them with microdoses. Yeah. Huh. So, yeah, but how it um how it actually, at least for me, how it aids in magic has to do with like, so what, um, one of the things that I do is, so I'll eat my mushrooms and then I meditate. Um, and I'll meditate for about a half hour, 20 minutes to a half hour, because that's about as long as it, you know, takes most even experienced meditators to like reach that state, you know, that meditative state of awareness. And then when I feel the mushrooms. Uh, I'm just going to stick with mushrooms because I pretty much exclusively just eat mushrooms. Yeah. Uh, it's my you know, favorite too. <laughs> What's that? That's my favorite too, man. Yeah, no disrespect to LSD or anything else. I just I prefer mushrooms. Amen. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so when uh, when I feel you know the mushrooms starting to come on, I'll switch from um, uh, from meditation to visualiz- to visualization because for me it's like. It's like adding extra weights to barbells when trying to lift them because holding as you are, you're a magician, you know, holding the visualization state of awareness can be very difficult. Like it can be difficult. But now try doing that when your brain is actually like getting worked up and like all the activity from the mushrooms is going on. It's even more, it's even more hard. So I do it as a way to, you know, kind of, you know, um, work out that visualization muscle um I, maybe i'm just a guinea from new york and i just feel like everything needs to be more difficult than it really does have to be <laughs> that's also totally possible i had a very old world upbringing so you know like, like i got my like just to give you an idea like i got my first job my twin brother and i we got our first job when we were 12 years old because my dad lied about our age to our future boss saying that we were like I'm not oh like seriously like that's <laughs> that, was, that was the upbringing <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> yeah. so um so it's possible again that I just had a really old world kind of upbringing and that's why I like to make things more difficult and you know it's just you know, I love the punishment. Who knows? I get it. My dad's a carpenter. I, by by twelve, I had been doing laughing with him on houses for three years. So yeah, and you know, paper yeah. roots, hardworking family, Irish yeah. Catholic stuff. 
Yeah, good shit. Yeah, I was driving bo- uh, like a boat too at like I don't know eight, nine, ten years old or so. Like I never, I've never had a boating license. And I've been Dear driving Lord. a boat for like twenty odd years. Yeah, I mean, my dad told me when I was a kid. I mean, he taught us how to drive a car when we were like thirteen, fourteen years old. Like, well, know. yeah, that that that's definitely not the way these days, is it? Kids, no. kids can't even walk home from school alone most of the time now. No, they can't. There was, oh, it's holy shit. Strange. I heard recently, there was this, I don't know if the story itself is recent, but I heard about the story just the other day. There was this, like, a, a mother and father, the kid's parents that got in trouble because their kid was playing on their front yard, like, on their property. Mm unsupervised like they weren't outside watching over him and they got into like somebody like tried to make trouble for them it's like jesus like what the fuck is wrong it's like a kid playing on his front yard that's a like that's a crime now yeah actually what's really interesting to me about that um and i I was sharing these some studies with a friend a few years ago because his wife is was overprotective of their son and uh the fact is that since the 80s We've only actually, it's things have only actually gotten cl- safer for kids statistically and in reality. And yet, in, in it, because of the way that our culture has decided to interpret reality, um, the, the way that, yeah, I'm being careful, the way I don't want to be too judgy on the parents out there because, you know, the, the danger to children is a real thing and a horrible thing when it does happen. But, but kids have, things have been getting safer, but it's been the inverse reaction to protect, overprotect and not allow kids to get out there and actually learn how to experience the world in a, in a way. Yeah, no, I, I feel you. I, I feel bad for kids growing up these days. Like, I really do. Like, when I see, you know, somebody, like, pushing, like, a child in a stroller, it's like, I I am so happy that, like, I'm going to probably be dead before life really sucks for that kid. Like, <laughs> like seriously, because I, I do. I feel bad. I mean, and kids have so much anxiety and depression these days. Oh, yeah. Because like, and it's like, we didn't have that growth. Like, none of my friends were depressed right I mean, you know, we got sad here and there, and we all went through our goth phase and whatnot, but like... Yeah, right. You know, but it wasn't anything, like, really bad, but because we had friends. Like, that's one of the things, I think, is, like, kids today, you know, maybe I'm misreading it, but they don't seem to have any, like, real friends. Like, they get... Like, the fact that everybody gets so upset and, like, offended... By everything that's like, well, then you never had real friends growing up because the people that offended me the most, <laughs> and me the most, were all my good buddies, and we all just, you know, we we jabbed at each other. Fucking a, dude. What's that? Yeah, yeah, fucking a, man. Our friends, yeah. That, yeah, we 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 were mean to each other, sort of. Yeah, well, I mean, we're fucking. I mean, we always there's always that love there. It was always done in good jest and in good, you know, good fun. I mean, but there was never. You know, yeah, I mean, we ripped on each other all the time. We made fun of each other. If one of us did something stupid or embarrassing, the rest of us always made sure to point it out very loudly for everybody. You know, oh, but yeah. it's, those, are, those are your boys. Like, that's if you don't have that in life, like, that's why everybody's so shitty and fragile these days because they don't, they don't have friends anymore. Yeah, the hypersensitivity and it's like it's almost like like you're canceling your friends, right? Oh, my friend hurt my feeling. Let's let's cancel them, you know? Yeah, it's insanity. I mean, like I, I don't, I can't understand. I, I mean, I, I guess I'm just an old fart. <laughs> that doesn't make sense to me at all. And or in a way, again, if you if you grow up like overly protected like forget helicopter parents now they have the bulldozer parents like they just you know just mow everything over so that the kid doesn't face any kind of adversity or any challenge and couple that with not having any friends and 
I don't know. It's really sad. And, you know, if you're listening out there, kids, get off your phone, go get some friends, eat some mushrooms with them, and go enjoy your lives. Yeah. Yeah. And also, like, there was, like, uh, I always re- I always think about there being this accountability uh, when I was young, like, because, you know, when to meet up with your friends, we, we didn't have any cell phones. Cell phones were not even a thing, right? Oh. Uh, unless you were, uh, you know, that Jack guy Morris. in Wall Street. <laughs> unless you were Michael Douglas in Wall Street, right? Um, Zach Morris on, uh, on Stand by the Bell. He had that really big... <laughs> oh, he did, right? Zach Morris. <laughs> yeah, he had, it looked like the kind of, like, like when they made the first, like, wireless phones for your kitchens. That's what it was like. Anyway. I had a buddy in North Vancouver who kept one of those old huge clunky phones as his cell phone he sort of refurbished it in like the early 2000s and used it to the mid 2000s i think it was just a joke but it worked and he carried it around so it's a funny story a friend of mine i didn't have a cell phone for a long time and my a good buddy of mine offered he said if i could find a zach morris style cell phone and get it hooked up but you'd use it and i was like fuck yeah well oh we amazing. amazing we couldn't find one but i would have used it so before cell phones, like, you know, if, if if we wanted to get together and go for a walk in the forest, be like, hey, I'll meet up at the 7-Eleven at 4.30. And you had to be there, right? If, yeah. you, if you weren't there on time, even, they might not wait very long. They might be like, oh, I guess he can't come. I guess his mom said he had to do some chores or something. And that was exactly. it. You might not see your friends for that entire day. And then the next day you'd have to call their mom's house and be like, yo, why wasn't, why wasn't Tom there? Oh, Tom had to, had to clean the yard. He wasn't, he wasn't behaving. Okay. Yeah, no, all the time. I, I had a, I used to run a private education business in New York. And um, there, there, one of my students was a really smart kid. And um, he just, you know, like the other kids his age, he just was on the phone way too much. And so I was talking to his mom on the phone one time because she was asking, you know, what can we do? What can we do? I said, here's what Frank is the kid's name. I said, here's what Frank needs more than anything. He said, he needs to put his phone down, go for a walk, and just sit somewhere thinking about life. And, you know, and that's it. She said, well, like, leave his cell phone. What do you mean leave his cell phone? I was like, yeah, leave his cell phone. He needs to get the way away from that screen. She said, well, what will happen if – um you know, if something happens to him and he can't call, I said, well, he'll do the same thing you did when you were his age, when you left your cell phone at home. And she said, well, I didn't have a cell phone when I was his age. I said, and yet you survived. Mm-hmm. And so I hear her literally go from talking to me on the phone and say, Frank, what, well, mom, give me your phone. Comes over. Go for a walk. <laughs> he goes for a walk. <laughs> yeah, we have this sense of... of- of need for for a level of security these days and and i think we do have that it stretches across generations that because we've we fabricated this idea of false security from being in touch with things yes it's it's, uh i i i've thought i wonder oftentimes how that affects us spiritually how that affects our willingness to explore and take chances with our souls even you know you know, that's a great point. I never even thought about that, like how much that really does affect you to your soul. Um, you know, uh, maybe a good remedy for that is foraging. Like, I love foraging, so, like, maybe I don't feel it as much because I, I get out into the woods and I go, you know, my partner and I go to the coast and we pick the mushrooms that we're going to eat, you know, it's... I'm I'm really looking forward to having the chance to do that someday. I'm obviously very aware that you can make a deadly mistake when it comes to that, um, but I look forward to having a chance to learn about that more, like seriously. 
Yeah, the, you you can make a deadly mistake, but the truth is, like, the differences between, like, a deadly mushroom and a psychoactive one are very not Like, if you know what you're doing, they're pretty noticeable. Like, really? I was always told in school, of course, <laughs> that you had, you, you, the, that there was, there was a deadly one that looked the same and you had to be able to do a spore test and not make a mistake or you'd die. Yeah, but it's but okay. Well, depending on what mushroom we're talking about, that's totally true, and it's it's really easy to. I mean, mostly all you have to do is just pinch and pierce the stem, and if it starts to bruise blue, you have a psilocybin mushroom. If it doesn't, don't eat that mushroom. It's it's really. Oh wow. Yeah, there's uh, and there are other things how the the way the gills work and coloration and if you were to split them open what the inside looks like uh you know and ones that you know some of the ones that people say um are lookalikes so let's say like the amanita muscaria the amanita muscaria has two quote-unquote lookalikes one of them is the amanita warosa the other is the amanita phylloides and the truth of the matter like neither one of those other mushrooms looks like the amanita muscaria i mean phylloides and i i guess uh does a little bit but not not so much that a trained eye wouldn't be able to spot the difference. Really good to know, man. So, are you uh, now bringing up the Amanita? Let's go with that. Are you? Uh, where do you fall in the the theories of the sacred sacred mushroom? Sure. Was um, it was I, it something Jesus was pointing to? Was it in the Garden of Eden? Was was Genesis um, referring to it? In your opinion? No, I've, I've actually been one of the loudest uh, critical voices against the holy mushroom. Um, I used to believe it. I was actually setting out to write a book on it to demonstrate why this was an, you know, a legitimate area of study. And the more I looked into it, the more I realized there was nothing there. And it got to a point where it's like I was trying to make the evidence fit which is not good and you should never do that. And once I, once like you kind of, you don't do it consciously, you kind of just like slide into it a little bit sometimes. And it's about catching yourself. And as soon as I caught myself, like I realized that that's what I was doing. Like I was just trying to, I was like, there's nothing to this. Like, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm making it up so that it fits. And like, none of the evidence actually says that this is accurate. Like it's all like every supposed mushroom in Christian art has a naturalistic explanation that doesn't require a mushroom at all. And, um, so I, I tend to, as a historian, I always go with the naturalistic interpretation, you know, just like I always go with the, you know, the, um, the scientifically valid theory over the conspiracy theory. Well, that's, that's, that's good logic. Yeah. Yes, I hope so. Yeah. Um, my specialty in early my early years of uh, theological college for my master's was in the in the book of Genesis specifically. Um, so you read, you know you read all the commentaries, not just a few of them. You read them all. I learned Hebrew and and when I only recently discovered this whole sacred mushroom theory. And, uh, you know, people show a lot of iconography that looks very similar, like it could be mushrooms. So so the question is, how likely is it in the general sort of view of of, of, of history, psychedelic history now that that those iconographies like it are some of the is some of that iconography, do you think, actually magic mushrooms were the Templars into it? Like, where's where's what's the views these days? Sure. Um, I can say with I mean, so with history, we're always 
we're never 100% certain about everything. With history, we're always going to what, we're always looking for what was the most probable thing that happened. What, what's most probable? And with the holy mushroom, it's very improbable because uh, Christians didn't have a problem at all, not only using entheogens, but writing about them. And I, I mean, I have in psychedelic mystery traditions, I have three different chapters on how Christians use psychedelics at different times in history. And like opium comes up, cannabis comes up, mandrake comes up, henbane comes up. But nobody talks about a mushroom. Why? That doesn't make any sense. Oh yeah. Sense. So is it? So is it? Prob like so again? As I spoke, I asked myself, what is more likely? What is more probable? Is it more probable that Christians would write about all these other substances, and for some weird reason that nobody ever explained, cover up a mushroom, or is it more probable that they just weren't eating mushrooms the way we think they were and? Hey, uh, or, or at least they weren't painting them in art, I should say. Maybe Christians were eating mushrooms. I don't know. I mean, we're talking about, a, you know, huge swaths of time, you know, um, lots of uh, peasant cultures, backwoods, philosophies about things. I'm sure somebody, some Christian somewhere were eating Amanita muscaria mushrooms. And uh, in, uh, in my book, uh, Mystery Traditions, I, I argue as much and I show a... Um, a uh, uh, um, a folio from a manuscript that I think actually does show the influence of a mushroom. Now, it isn't. The person doesn't draw a mushroom in this image, but it's the way they write out fungus. It's in a medical text. I looked at all these different entries in this medical text, and the, um, the plant names, they're all very straightforward as far as the text is concerned, right? And then you get to mushrooms, and this thing looks like a medieval hippie druid. It's unbelievable. Whoa. So for me, if if there are, if we are going to see mushrooms, you know, like uh, or the influence of psilocybin mushrooms in art, we're going to see it that way, not in this painting way. And so, uh, like, so take somebody like John Rush. John Rush will tell you that there's over two hundred you know, uh, mushroom images in Christian art. Really? Over 200 and nobody wrote about this once? Nobody said anything about this for 2,000 years? Yeah, why isn't there even any literary trace evidence, right? Nothing. There okay. is literally nothing. And it makes no sense why they would redact mushrooms but not other entheogens or drugs. Yeah, there wasn't a war on drugs yet. People wrote openly about yeah. this stuff. Yeah. I mean, I... I discovered a, um, a Christian uh, entheogenic mystery tradition that revolves around using mandrake. And I mean, the descriptions of mandrake, I mean, it's everything that like a holy mushroom enthusiast would be looking for. Right. But they're not talking about mushrooms, they're talking about mandrake. It is the, mandrake is the magician's plant, isn't it? Yes, it is. Very much so. For th forever, for millennia it has been. I was really sad to not get to uh, try and use uh, one of the mandrake ointments uh, that, that Chris Bennett used to sell at Urban Shaman before the woman stopped making them. I've always thought I should learn. That would be fun to learn how to make them myself. Yeah, I make potions out of mandrake. Uh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I make a, a potion that's a mixture of mandrake, henbane, psilocybin, and cannabis. Oh, that sounds like something that must be tried. Yeah, you just, I mean, you got to be a little careful with it um, because it's really, really, really strong. And there have been a few instances where I really overdid it. Mm. And uh, thankfully, my partner was there to just kind of help me and talk me down off a lid. 
So. Ah. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully, I get to do try that at some point when we meet up in a place where it's obviously completely legal, right? Oh, of we course. Would, we would never do anything anywhere that it's not legal. No, never. Never. So fascinating. That's a, that's such an excellent. Uh, that is that is of course the the scholarly method of determining information, right? If your 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 reasoning is very sound, there uh, it it does. When I first heard it, though, um, it did strike me that it like a bolt that you know it does make sense to me that the Genesis story might be referring to some kind of entheogenic plant. It, it just when the more I think about it, why wouldn't it, right? Since we they did have, uh, despite our attempts to redact entheogens from history, which is, is a thing, um, they did have those plants in ancient Judea. And, and of course, the Genesis story predates Israel, and, and uh, it, you know, we have traces of it in Babylon. Um, so, so do you think it's likely, though, that, that, that the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil might have been uh, a reference to psychedelics from your research? You know, I definitely used to think that, and I think that, you know, because we're talking about so long ago in history, you can make a case for it. I just think that there are better um, explanations for the story. Like, And one of the things that reasons I'm not so keen on, again, the whole cover-up thing, is that so uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, in the Torah, I mean, we have references to entheogens. Mandrake is referenced twice. And cannabism is cannabis, um, on top of which a colleague of mine named uh, Danny Nemu, who's over in England, he's done some fantastic work showing how different spices that the ancient um, uh, Hebrews were mixing together were actually, you know, were kind of almost like ayahuasca analog in that, you know, you mix these two things together for a completely new effect out of them. Um and because you have all that going on, and especially with the references to cannibalism, and we just, uh, well, not we, I didn't do it, but uh, recently archaeologists discovered an old um, Hebraic temple, and they actually found um, cannabis, like like they scraped the resin off the top of one of the altars and found that they were, in fact, burning cannabis on this altar. So, again, it's the same problem with the, with the Christians later. It's like if they wrote about Mandrake, which they did in both uh, the Song of Songs and in Genesis uh, with Leah's Mandrake and that whole, you know, exchange with Rachel. So they write about Mandrake twice and cannibalism is literally said to be in the holy anointing oil. Then why would they come up a mushroom? Why not just say, yeah, this, that's what's going on. We're talking about a mushroom here. In yeah, Gen- absolutely. Um, amazing. Uh, I have to. We have to look at the Mandrake references in the Bible uh, after this because that's interesting. I knew about the Cannabossum thing, uh, even though it was dismissed by my my uh, Hebrew Bible college professors, who, despite their expertise in the language, I think it was just they were. He was an old guy, and it was part of that old uh, uh, bias that he's still promoting, to, uh, which is unfortunate. You know that scholarship really shouldn't redact information like that, but there's there's some deep seated biases. Yeah, there are. And if I could follow up, I mean, if they were, if they they were linguistic scholars, you're saying? Yeah, we're talking about like one of the world's okay. experts on Hebrew and Aramaic. Okay, so then what I would ask them is this: Why is it so? Why is in Sanskrit cannabis is canna, in Assyrian it's konabu, in Persian it's kanab, in Arabic it's kanab, in Chaldean it's kanban. 
it, why would it not be, why would cannabosum not be cannabis in Hebrew? It literally fits the linguistic criteria of etymology to be that, to, to mean cannabis. Why is every language that surrounds, that surrounded the Hebrew people have some kind of canna? I mean, we literally retain it in cannabis to this day. To uh, I, I was speaking not too long ago with somebody else who who's a, a Hebrew scholar, and she speaks the language, and she speaks ancient Hebrew, and she said that unequivocally, cannabism is cannabis. That canna means, um, what is it? One of them is cane, and the other one is, uh, and bosom means fragrant, so you put it together, it's the fragrant cane. And the translation from the Septuagint in, in uh, Old Greek, which is where the, where this mistake started. Yeah, lots of problems with Koine, brother. What's that? Lots of problems with Koine Greek and yeah. uh, the Septuagint. I Exactly. Lots of problems with Koine. And when you, um, when, uh, um, they, they wrote out, they wrote out Calamus instead of cannabis in the Septuagint. And it's like, Calamus doesn't make sense. Like, for several reasons, it doesn't make sense. Like, first of all, it's not an aromatic plant at all. Not at all. Um, secondly, it says in the Song of Songs that, you know, along with mandrake and these other exotic plants, that cannabosum grows there. And it's like, well, calamus is not an exotic plant. Cannabis is. So it doesn't, I think you're right. I think your professors were just maybe stuck in an old way of looking at this. But um, I think that Sula Bennett, who was the first person, who was the, uh, the Polish anthropologist in the 30s, to nail down cannabism at cannabis, I mean, she, I think she got it right. Uh, there's, and now that we have the, um, the archaeological evidence that supports that they were burning cannabis in this Hebrew temple, I, I think that there's, it's a case-closed situation. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think I think that's what we're going to see the scholarly consensus in the future agreeing on for sure. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and one fun fact, like the the like the Chaldean word, like Chaldean is is Aramaic. So like Aramaic is just what we call Chaldean after the 1900s. Oh, so, nice. Yeah, fun fact. I know. Um, nice. Yeah, um, maybe we can move just. Uh, uh, just move over slightly a bit in the same direction, though, because in oh, can, I just, can I just piggyback off what you just said? Oh, yeah. So then, okay. So if Chaldean is just Aramaic, how would that professor contend with the fact that Chaldean it's can bun and in Hebrew it's cannabosm? I really I, wish I could go back and ask him. Um, I, I, come on, it's there's 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 no way. They're talking about anything except cannabis. He's from the era of the devil's lettuce, brother, and reefer madness. You know, that's true. That's true. You know, he, and I and I'm aware that he was he's also he was also he's also a United you know, Church uh, minister, and you know he had a kid apparently who had problems with drugs and alcohol. That's going to all feed into uh, an intention, sometimes even an intention to. Uh, suppress certain information yeah. it's unfortunate but i'm not gonna say my professor's name because uh you know it doesn't matter and you know he and i by the time i graduated i had to break up with him as my supervisor halfway through and switch over to sally mcfaig who's a, a renowned theologian and much more uh, a better scholar really but you know that happens in academia sometimes you have to break up with professors more or less and they hold grudges of course um yeah so the uh the growing of hemp was something he was aware of was really common in uh, the ancient near east right 
Oh, yeah. Um, and it, it's just silly to me now looking back to think that, that people grew hemp, but they weren't using it in every way. How how common was it? Because I think I heard you mention this on uh, on a thing I heard you do. Maybe even want the one with the, that um, lady who is training to be a rabbi in Jerusalem. Is it? Uh, I don't know that she's training to be a rabbi. Oh, uh, okay. But uh, anyway, so yeah, and and I and you, I think I heard you mention something along the lines of how of the frequency or commonality or the usage in terms of how pervasive that would have been to the common person versus special classes of people. So if they had hemp fields all over certain areas of the ancient Near East and they used hemp, how common would do you think uh, in your research would the use of cannabis in the ways we use it now have been? I mean, it, it's difficult to say, but I don't think it would have been uncommon. I think that, you know, one of the things about the ancient world is that when you get to different districts and different areas, different languages, different people of different customs. So you can have like a group of people, uh, you know, let's say in um, uh, in Seattle. Right. And in Seattle, everybody is growing hemp and they're only using it for clothing. And then you go, what, you know, an hour or so north and you're in British Columbia and everyone there's growing hemp and they're using all of it for smoking. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's you have to kind of see it like that. There's, you know, we don't because these things were so common, people weren't just like they weren't making a big deal about them because it was just like you're not going to find too many you know, stories or poems about somebody taking a walk today. Well, walking is common. We yeah. all do. It, you know? So it's it's very difficult to say, and I don't know that I have the the training in anthropology to really be able to to you know answer that. Hmm. Like with any with without sounding totally ignorant, I, you know, and yeah. I'd, rather, I'd rather avoid as much public embarrassment as possible. <laughs> right. Uh, even as we push the limits of our scholarship and insight. So there's no evidence that, for example, it was used strictly by a priestly class of people. No. I mean, I don't think so. Uh, I, I think that some... I'm trying, I'm trying to think of an example of where you would have like people like... Like Chris Bennett would probably disagree with me, and he would probably say that there were, you know, there there were certain classes of people that used it, and um, I don't know. I mean, information tends to spread, and it's not you you can't really keep certain sources of information from people for too long. So even if people like, if even if there was an elite class that did try to keep this stuff secret, it would it would have lasted as long as the Watergate's breaking. You know, like it's these yeah. things don't last that long. People talk. Like we're not like if there's one thing human beings really suck at, it's keeping secrets. We're horrible. <laughs> we are. We're horrible. And that's why it's not. And I'm honest. If anytime somebody comes up to me, a friend's like, "Hey, could you keep a secret?" I'm like, "You know, I can." So don't tell me unless, like, because I'm just being honest. I can't keep a secret. <laughs> yeah, I might think I can, but I'll probably say it at one point and then be like, oh, well. <laughs> yeah, because what happens is that you, you, mean, you don't mean to, like, to reveal a secret, but time goes on, the person moves on, it doesn't have this relevance anymore, you're out with friends, you have a couple of drinks, something on that topic comes up, and you just accidentally say, you know, I'm not saying that I would ever spill a secret like vindictively i wouldn't do that i just mean that i'm kind of stupid and i would forget that oh shit i wasn't supposed to say that 
Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, I mean, definitely with uh, what's going on in the world right now, I mean, a lot of secrets are on the are, are coming out and on the verge of coming out, and it's crazy times. Oh, fuck, yeah, man. Yeah, Jesus. I yeah. mean, what? Hopefully, my entire government go down in flames as fucking child molesters. I mean, not hopefully because I feel bad for the kids, but uh, I'd like to see this entire government completely taken down and overthrown. Amen. Yeah. Maybe we could uh, pivot to um, the Eleusinian Mysteries and the Kaikion. Do you? Oh. Yeah? Yeah, let's do it. Um, because that's still an often debated thing, and as I'm participating with the uh, magical cauldron of the Western Seas, Eleusinian mysteries thing that's sadly has to be done on Zoom rather than three day retreats every few months, uh, which is very sad because you know probably won't get another chance to do this. And the person leading it, it's her last time doing it. She's 82 and uh, has, has has been oh, doing wow. this stuff for forever. Like you know, when I first mentioned when I was invited to join their their cycle of the mysteries, I I thought I was being all clever when I mentioned I was like, oh well, is there going to be some LSD or some psychedelic in the Kaikion? Sort of thinking, oh, these people are a bit too straight to have uh, to to actually be brave enough to do that. So I'm just sort of pushing some buttons and she's, she's then I didn't occur to me. She's been around for forever. She's lived through the sixties and seventies and all of that. And she turned to me, she's like, Oh, we've tried it many times with acid or this or that and all this stuff. And I was like, Oh shit, you've not just tried one kind of kiking. You've done a whole bunch of experimentation over the 40, 50 years you've been doing this. Uh, it's a nice reality check for sometimes when we talk to people who are, you know, true seniors and elders in our field. Right. Absolutely. It was humbling. And so since then, we've been talking a lot about what were the most common. What do you think, since the Kaikian was made and used over a long period of time, and as we have touched on, over a long period of time, secrets get out, and also cultural practices change vastly, especially over hundreds, if not thousand years, right? Um, so what do you think was the most common uh, concoction in the Kaikian for the Eleusinian Mysteries? So it's... It- Eleusis is weird. It's very difficult because, again, the the evidence for any entheogen in the Kaikion is is severely lacking, although I do think they were using something. Um, You know, the fact that you have hundreds of participants at one time, you know, how do you guarantee that they're all going to have a vision? You know, and um, as Paul Ruck pointed out in uh, The Road to Eleusis, um, the Greeks were, as as we all know, were, were highly sophisticated when it came to theater. So this, whatever was going on at Eleusis couldn't just be theater because nobody would have bought, because everybody knew what theater was. There had to have been something else happening there. Um, I think that the only, we don't, we don't have much evidence for anything, but we have some circumstantial evidence that points to opium. Uh, I know that normally, um, the, it, it, people usually think that ergot, you know, the precursor to LSD yes. was, in the Kaikion. Uh, I don't I don't think that's that's accurate. I'm actually working on an article right now called Ergot at Eleusis and I go over some of this stuff a little bit in uh, psychedelic mystery traditions, but we actually have iconography of Persephone rising from the dead. And uh, if your listeners are interested, if you were to just do a Google image search and write Persephone, opium, snakes and wheat, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. It's Persephone rising from the dead holding 
wheat, snakes, and opium. And there's no, you know, it's it's not like the mushroom and Christian art where it's there's, you know, it, it's open to naturalistic interpretations. Like you can see very clearly that she's holding on. Really? And, yeah. And the the analogs to the cultural analogs, like in Uruk, which was the civilization that predated Sumer, and with Ceres over in Thrace, they were both using opium as well. So I think that I, I am of the opinion, and it's it's a minority opinion, and I get laughed at for saying this sometimes, but I don't care, it's my theory. I think that all three of those rites, the rites at Eleusis, the rites in Uruk, and the rites in Thrace, and probably other places, all started with a common ancestor, probably in northern Africa. Hmm. And then as, the, as people fled the African plains and headed north, there was, there, you know, as you were saying, you know, cultures change, things move around. So you have, like, in the differences are, I think, pretty interesting. So you have the, the story of the grain mother and rising from the dead happening in Sumer, except instead of it being Persephone, it's Inanna. Mm. And in uh, Sumer, you have, Inanna does have the sacred masculine counterpart in Tammuz. Now, at Eleusis, there is no sacred masculine. Like, it's one of those interesting things about it. For a pagan rite, both the main characters are women, the mother Demeter and her daughter Persephone. There is no sacred masculine. So I hypothesize that that's actually closer to what the original rite was. Wow. Like back when it was in Africa, that it was closer to something female centric. And I think that had to do with, and again, this is my own theories, that the rite itself, when it first started being developed, was actually developed before human beings knew that men impregnated women. People were having sex, they were right. in but the, the time in between the sexual act and the first signs of pregnancy is too long. It, to, there's too much time in between those two. Yeah. Things to to you know uh, uh, you know uh, to associate the two. So I'm you know I'm using my historical imagination now and thinking I'm the proto-human living on you know in in North Africa. I'm scared of thunder and lightning. I have no idea where it comes from. And all I know is that every now and then some of the women start to grow people inside of them. I have no idea how that's happening. So I think that that's what the rites of Eleusis is all about, and that's why there is no sacred masculine counterpart. However, as, the, as our progenitors fled Africa, spread out across you know, the globe, different cultural ideas came about, and over in Sumer, while people were heading that way, they discovered, oh, fuck. Men impregnate women. We got to add a sacred masculine, you know, figure to this rite. And over in Greece, they they retained it. They retained the original, even after they figured out that men impregnate women. They still retained the original matrifocal purpose of the rite. Wow. Yeah, this is something I haven't actually thought about. So it's fascinating. 
And um, as far as the opium or the possibility of something, you know, in the Kaikion, um, yeah, it's just, you know, there's that iconography of Persephone rising from the dead. And there's also, I believe it was Clement of Alexandria who said that they were using opium during the rites. I mean, we, we say that the rites were secretive, but they weren't always. I mean, some Christians like Clement, I mean, he went and he participated in the rites and he said, oh, yeah, they're using opium. Yeah. So, Hmm. Wow. So, um, if if they were, would they have been mixing in ergot as a as a hallucinogenic along with opium sometimes? Oh, that I don't know. I mean, the the the, the problem with ergot is also that it causes ergotism, which is you know pretty horrific. Um, it comes in two kinds: there's gangrenous ergotism and convulsive ergotism, and you don't want to catch either of them. And um, it just, especially children are very susceptible to it, and, you know, you have younger people getting initiated sometimes. Um, I, uh, dangerous. I don't know. What's that? Yeah, it's dangerous, right? Yeah, it's a very dangerous thing. Now, we know that by the time of um, uh, Hippocrates, that, they, uh, that he knew how to actually separate, um, you know, the toxic and deadly and poisonous parts of opium from the medicinal ones because he talks about using, uh, not opium, excuse me, ergot, ergot. Uh, he talks about using ergot. Um, and that's around, you know, 400 before the common era. So we can, we can say that by at least that time the Greeks knew how to, you know, make a safe form of ergot. But the problem is that the Eleusinian mysteries go back sixteen, to, you know, uh, you know, sixteen hundred before the Common Era. So we're talking, you know, several centuries before, more than several centuries before uh, Hippocrates. And it's like, well, you know, what were they maybe using before that? It, it's all, uh, it's rough. <laughs> we don't know. You know yeah, it's, it's just hard to know that far back. I mean, it, one of the things I think sometimes people. Um, aren't taught is the historical imagination that you're talking about, which is really what allows us to move out of our own time and place. And like, like you were saying with uh, maybe with witchcraft and using these things, like what was their worldview? They didn't have outer space, right? They didn't have the language and culture we have now. So how were they interpreting these things in that older worldview? And that hermeneutic perspective of, of time and place is crucial to me to us to understand or even hypothesize right about these ancient times and one thing that's always uh, stuck out in my mind is like you know how we had the temperance movement well we could have had even things as as significant as temperance movements in the past there could have been a pharaoh who was like hey no more hallucinogens people and we would have no trace of that probably ever of having happened because it's there was it was just so many hundreds of years right that could have happened for 20, 30 years, and we wouldn't know. So the variety, I've always said, of different things that have happened in human history is far more multiplic multiplicitous than we often might assume. Like, if you think yeah. something might have been done, it probably has been done. Oh, yeah, Simpsons did it. You know, like, it's... <laughs> yeah, and the thing is, they could have also, in, um, like, where he loses, they could have been using something that we don't... You know, we haven't even heard of mm. at this point in time, like, because 
when you look back, like Pliny writes about a bunch of different psychoactives and he talks about how the Persians use them to see visions. And it's like, we don't even know what those things are. One of them is called like Harris Diaris or something. Uh, I'm not pronouncing that correct. Another one is called like Geophilus. Uh, another one is called like Thesangle and stuff. Like, we know that these things were psychoactive and we have no idea what they actually were. Um, Plutarch also writes about a some kind of psychoactive ivy. Now, we don't know any kind of ivy today that's psychoactive at all. But uh, uh, Plutarch writes about this, and he talks about how the followers, uh, the Maenads, the followers of Dionysus, would eat this ivy, and it would cause, you know, the religious fervor, which is uh, the word enthusiasmos, which is where Karl Ruck got, excuse me, Karl Ruck coined the word entheogen after it, but we don't know what that ivy actually was, and it could have been something psychedelic that was just over-harvested. So it's just, you know, kind of like the dodo bird. Yeah. It's just extinct now. That's what I've been thinking about the dodo this whole time. <laughs> I mean, what a cool bird, but yeah, we got rid of it, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. It was. I remember I saw a um, like a stuffed one at a museum. I think that the... The Natural History Museum in New York. This is a long time ago when I was a kid. And, uh, um, uh, yeah, just a really cool looking thing. I'm like, fuck, why did those things have to be extinct? Like, why couldn't we gotten rid of, like, mosquitoes? Like, <laughs> why, why the dodo bird? Yeah, yeah, no. There's a. There's a wide debate in the because you're also a, a magician and you practice rituals and, and you're not just a historian or a psychonaut, right? Uh, yeah, I consider myself more of a witch, but yeah, we're talking about that, the same thing. That's what I figured. Yeah, no, um, I mean, ever since my, you know, early teens in Scott Cunningham, I, I think I developed a part of myself that would always consider me that as well, you know, or or a druid or something, you know, because me and nature at the end of the day, it's hard to grow up in, in North Vancouver in the mountains and not sort of uh, get in touch with that kind of nature spirituality. It's a pretty core part of me. Um so and see New York starved for it. Oh yeah, yeah. Of course, when I think of New York, I never think of the state. I always think of the city because you know I'm Canadian and we have a certain view of the U.S. Yeah, I, <laughs> I know we're Canada, and we're, we're some of us. The, the brighter ones among us are all jealous of you people. Yeah, good. I can't wait to get back. I'm just waiting for the border to open. Um, so we, even as a citizen, you can't get back into your home. Country. Yes, because so yeah, it took me a while to get through to a supervisor with the Ministry of Health. Um, even though I have places to go, they don't. Uh, I don't. I can't, they don't meet the criteria. And at this time, they would put me in a confinement with other people they suspect of having the virus. Um, and I have multiple autoimmune diseases. I also require a celiac diet and medication, and they can't guarantee that. And so they said, "Don't come." until you can smoothly cross the border and go to the place you have to go to. Got it. So, yeah, there's a few you have a, a few additional needs that I'm, other people... I'm, yeah, I'm high risk. I'm high risk. I'm not supposed to go on a plane or a bus as well. I need to drive up um, because if with autoimmune diseases, it's like it's like if I was really old. I'm just... If, if, if I catch it, I'm probably done. Oh, Jesus, dude. All yeah, right. So I have to be careful. It's just, just extra caution. It's precautionary because it would suck to die. It would really fucking suck. I gotta try. I still gotta try your potion, bro. 
Yeah, you do, man. I'm, and I, I feel like you and I have so many like great conversations in the future we have to have. I, so. I, yes, yes, absolutely. Um, so, so here's where I'm going with this. There's a big debate in the occult world about uh, psychedelic usage um, when it comes to ritual magic, when it comes to also initiation, which is something Chris Bennett's talked with me a lot about developing initiations around the psychedelics even. Um, and... Uh, I'm curious your thoughts on on uh, on psychedelics within issue because the argument is by some people if you're if you're just tripping it's not you're not really engaged with any sort of astral magic or natural magic or anything at all because you're just having a chemical experience in your brain um, and so some people say you should never use psychedelics with actual ritual magic then of course there's the other side of that argument and uh, it stands for initiations as well like you know and i think there is something to be said for being present and being aware but my um main experience has been that um i did a an anakian ether working with chris bennett and lon milo Duquette a couple years ago and i agreed with chris to get stoned first and the main experience i had was it was still a very powerful experience like it always is for me when i do anakian work and with lon how could it not be but it was hard to focus my focus was challenged in a serious way sure well i mean bennett's bennett's remedy for everything is to smoke cannabis so <laughs> amen <laughs> you know like he, that's that's his that's his answer to everything so i feel you um i i would say that well one the debate i think it's uh, it's uh, I, I don't want to sound rude i don't buy the argument that it's just a chemical reaction because you could say the same thing about eating a slice of apple pie Eating a slice of apple pie is just a chemical reaction happening in your brain. But that doesn't mean that you aren't really eating the pie and that it doesn't really taste good. So yeah. you know, I don't I don't buy that argument. On top of which, um, I mean, again, based on both Bennett and I have done a lot of you know historical work in this area. And it's like people have been using psychoactives for ceremonial magic for thousands, thousands of years. I mean, especially the Christian Gnostics that were, were doing it. Um, so, like, we know that they were doing it. I mean, Aleister Crowley, like, was big into, um, excuse me, Crowley, Aleister Crowley was big into um, peyote and hash and things like that. Uh, so I don't, I, I mean, I can see why someone might not want to use it. That's fine. But for me, like, especially with high doses of mushrooms, like when I'm doing magic, I'm usually using like like mushrooms are my are my go to for it. And when I enter that deep space, it's like I find that I can focus perfectly fine. I find that I'm able to separate what's happening like around me, what my ego is saying and what the you know, the core of me, my spirit is actually saying. So I've never had um, that experience with mushrooms now with cannabis that I could see it being you know again with Bennett it's different because he does everything high so he can really keep that focus but um you know I have I've never really tried to do any Enochian stuff um least of which was fucking lawn <laughs> which is pretty awesome um, it was actually a really effective working in the classical sense it was uh 
really the results were stark and undeniable. So it was, it was very successful. Some sometimes you do things and it feels like, uh, well, you know, what happens is what was meant to happen from that working. And sometimes you do things and it just happens. The, the results are so blunt. It, it yeah. reaffirms any doubts that might have crept into your mind. <laughs> yeah, every now and then you just you cast one of those spells. It's like, oh yeah, magic's fucking real. Like, holy shit! <laughs> I got to a point. Like, so I which in the Matrix, eh? Yeah, right. Like, no, it's true. Like, I've had one of the busiest coronavirus like times. Like, I haven't stopped working because I've been doing just a <laughs> lot know. of. I haven't stopped. I, I, I mean, I've been just doing a lot of manifesting and doing just a lot of magical visualization work. And it got to the point where I was becoming overwhelmed. It was just too much started and all good stuff, like all really good stuff. But it just became like overwhelming. And I'm like, fuck, I got to like take this back a notch because I'm manifesting just far too much right now. It's just and I can't I can't keep up with all of it. So um but getting back to your question, uh, I'm very much on the, the side of do what works for you. And if, um, you know, if smoking cannabis or eating mushrooms, if like that helps with the ceremonial magic, just know you're, you're literally you're not doing anything wrong or all at all on um, people that are against doing that. That's just an opinion. Just like my opinion, it's just an opinion. And what I would implore everybody to do is search inside and figure out for yourself what works and what doesn't. I have magician friends that don't touch psychoactives at all. And I have other magician friends like Bennett that, I mean, you know, he won't wipe his ass unless he's smoking a joint. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, you know, it's just and you find what works for you. Like when I most of the magic I do and a lot of the manifesting I've been doing, I haven't been smoking, you know, during it. I haven't been eating mushrooms during it at all. And it's been working just fine for me. So, yeah, no, certainly not necessary at all. Um, no, I, I, I see it like this. And this has always been my analogy of it. Magic and witchcraft. We'll just say magic is like baseball. Magic is like baseball in that baseball is a complete system unto itself. Now, do sometimes players take steroids? Yeah. Are there people drinking beer in the fields? Yeah. Uh, in the stands? Yeah. Are there people watching at home smoking a bong, hitting a joint? Yeah. But now take the steroids out, take the beer out, take the cannabis out. You still have baseball. It's still there, perfectly intact as itself. Magic is the same way. Magic works. Whether you're smoking a joint or not, it works. You can enhance it with a joint if you want, but it's not necessary. Yeah, yeah. I would. I was. Uh, I was always a sober, very sober magic practitioner. My whole uh, training and teaching career. Um, and I would deal with students who would say, I, I, I don't get anything out of the initiation or the ritual unless I'm stoned. And so this like 20 years ago when I was teaching at Temple Tehuti, I was a new adept in the, in the GD. And, uh, I would, my argument I came up with, cause I didn't want to say, even though I had never tried pot and it was still four more years, I wasn't 24 till I had my first toke. Um, and then I didn't ever even buy some for myself until like a doctor prescribed to me when I was 30 in Vancouver, believe it or not. Um, yeah. And then I was chronic after that cause it was getting me off morphine for a back injury. Um, and, uh, and then I went went off it again, and now it's just a couple of tokes, and I'm high as a kite. Um, so I've been through the ringer on that one, but I was didn't want to tell people, okay, well, 
you shouldn't do it or you're doing it wrong or but what I said would would say was look if you're relying on the on the marijuana to have us a spiritual experience in a meditation or ritual, maybe you should strengthen that other muscle, that spiritual muscle of doing it without that. That was the way I would approach it always. Yeah, and I, I agree with you, especially you 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 know, mentioned with when you were, you know, really studying and, you know, getting into the training and practice. That I would say don't use a psychedelic at all. Yeah. Like for, like during the, the, the come up uh, and as you're as you're learning your magic and how it works, I always say to everybody, don't even do psychedelics unless you already have some kind of contemplative or magical practice that you're you're already well versed in so that you have some something to couch the experience in so i would recommend yeah learn like learn the techniques learn the traditions do that all sober yeah like learn it learn it in you know that way first and then it's in the same way it's like you know learn to play the guitar before you buy a distortion pedal yes yes you know yeah, learn learn the instrument. Learn how to pluck the strings. Learn what the frets are. Learn where the notes are. Learn how to make chords, and then go get yourself a wah wah pedal. Get yourself a distortion. Get yourself whatever the fuck you know, a reverb. But learn the tool first. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I play. I play, of course. So, um, yeah, you know, you don't want to go start. Go. St- you don't want to go straight to a, flan- a flanger, right? No, no. I mean, and the thing is, well, because the problem is if you go straight to the flanger, you're not going to figure out how the guitar actually sounds and works. Like, you want to know what the thing actually sounds like and how it actually works. And when you hit a D chord, what does that sound like? You train your ear, and then you can actually do cool things with a flange pedal. But if you don't know how to use the instrument, you're just making noise. And I'm sorry, but I don't have a synth. Well, I'm I'm in a minority in this, but I do believe that deep down art is objective. I know everybody says it's subjective, and I would say that 90 to 95 percent of art is subjective. But there's a good five to 10 percent of it that is absolutely objective because we all agree. Like if I were just going like going ah and, and trying to strum, you know, like nonsense chords on the guitar, nobody would want to listen to that. Right. No be like oh but he's just expressing his deep tortured artistic stuff everybody would go that sounds like shit and they'd be right because it is shit yeah yeah you can't deny if something's groovy or not right either the musician no understands rhythm and can execute it or they can't Yes, exactly. And it's like in how you're not going to be able to, and especially like with ceremonial magic, because that involves other people. You can't get up there with a gifted jazz bass player, a gifted jazz drummer, a gifted jazz pianist, and just suck shit a guitar and think you're going to make beautiful music, or in this case, beautiful magic, because you're not. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's actually a very real experience that I have uh, to this day with uh, new students and people I actually do ritual work with who have never maybe done it with someone like me before. They're always shocked. They're always like, oh, I didn't realize it was this thing that you really can get better at, like in a very performative way. Right. It's in it. It does mirror the the way I feel when I play with a musician much better than we with which which is most of the time because I I'm a firm believer in always playing with people better than we if I can. Oh, yeah. Um, but it's always shocking because it's like, holy shit, they can do that and they can do it like that. And it's like, wow, I really do need to practice this, make a habit of it and put the time in. 
Um, yeah. And I feel that way about about magic and ritual work. Um, and I've been experience. It's been really interesting, man, to experience uh, this uh, psychedelic explorations in my life in the last ten years now. Um, well, I'm 39, so in the last and like you know, uh, Chris finally introduced me to uh, DMT. I had done Changa with a, a anthropologist in Berlin the year before that. Um, and that was that was my well, you know doing smoking that first bit trying changa that first time like I was like oh shit I was like it was a full on like oh shit this reality is it, like there is a much more real physical reality and I I say physical in a, in a, in a in the way I do because I like Penrose you know he said he doesn't like being called a materialist because we don't yet know what the matter is. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, mean, I, I love Pemrose. I, Roger Pemrose, you yeah, mean, right? Yeah, I, I hadn't heard that. I like that though. It, isn't that great? Because it, it makes me think of like when Lon Milo Duquette says, "You know, it's all in your head. You just don't know how big your head is." And you think about where we're going with science, the study of dark matter, of of, of material uh, reality. Yeah, what's the difference between a chair and the psilocybin from a mushroom affecting your brain? Like, what is there a difference between? Uh, chemicals in your brains and what the chair is made of on the most fundamental level it's all yeah. spirit and nature right yeah exactly i mean and that's what if anything that's what dmt shows you especially five meo i mean that's yeah that's what i got from it i got you know? to do that with chris i actually even pulled out my uh my my elemental tools, my GD tools, put on my rose cross laman, put on my robe and nemesis and, and lay down in the teepee and we actually filmed it. It's on YouTube, though I don't think it's public. Yeah. And uh, it was a very powerful experience. And do you know what? I was most surprised by the fact that how well I handled it. And it seemed very familiar to me, like the like the rising in the plains technique we do going from Malkut to Keter on the tree of life. You're entering a divine, white, brilliant realm. Is was it is my experiences without entheogens? Were they as physical as that as 5-MeO? Hell no. That's like a physical thing. I mean, you literally lose uh, limbic function, right? <laughs> Uh, but the realm spiritually, I was very comfortable in it seemed that Chris took this to mean that I didn't do enough, but, and maybe that's the case. I hope to find out. Well, you, you, you go home is what it is. I mean, like, and for me, it was like with five MEO DMT, especially it's like, there's always that sense. Like this was the, this is the first place I ever remember being. Yeah. So it's not crazy to you that I felt comfortable in that place and didn't freak out and lose myself or like I wasn't, I wasn't worried. I didn't, I, it felt like when I, when the eye of I slipped away, I had no fear. I was, there was no anxiety or concern and I felt very comfortable throughout the whole experience to when I came back. Yeah, me too. I, 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 with five especially, I mean, like, the body dis- completely disappears, the ego's gone, you just become total awareness. And, you know, for me, it's like, yeah, it was like, oh, okay, so this is where I was before I was born. Yeah. Like, that was all I thought. It was just like, oh, this is where I was, and this is where I'm going back to. It's yeah. just this big, it's this big energy soup. Yeah, yeah, no, that is, yeah, and and uh, regular DMT too. It's just this whole. I, I just, I, I, ever since, I never thought I'd be the kind of person who said that I needed uh, a drug or entheogens, as they should be called, especially in the way that we make use of them. Um, to to say that I believe I, I have a, I feel certain of where we're going or what's happening after this life. 
because of them. I never thought I would do that. I always thought it would be the result of some philosophical learning or theory or, you know, reading Nietzsche in the right way or maybe medical science, but, but it, it was, uh, it's the entheogenic mystery tradition. And now that I've been looking into it and seeing what people like you and Chris have been doing for forever, I couldn't believe that, like, uh, how were we not taught this honestly in, in high school history class? Because it seems sort of criminal to remove this spiritual element of how culture has actually survived and thrived, which only is now preserved in, in tribal communities, right? Yeah. And we're um, in this massive crisis of, of, of psychology and culture. And meaning. While, and meaning. While, while wonder, and wondering why, while while we have this massive suppressed history and redaction of how we did survive up to this point. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I personally, I think that mystical experiences are good for people. I think that they're healthy. Um, if not crucial, right? Yeah, if not crucial. I think that it's a part of the human experience, and to, you know, be denied that or to deny yourself that, it's like, like, I don't know, like, do you not jerk off too? Like, you know, like, no, but it's true. It's like, this is a great part about being alive. You get to masturbate, you know, like it's a great part about being alive. You get to have these, these, these mystical experiences with, you know, with different plants or with different animal or, or amphibian secretions. Like it's an amazing thing. And, you know, I agree with you, dude. It's like, why, like the fact that we're so cut off from that and that, you know, we're essentially taught growing up, we're the same age. So like, you know, growing up, we oh, cool. grew up in the just say no era. And it's like, mm-hmm. you know, things like like cannabis and mushrooms were seen as being as deadly and dangerous as crack and meth. And it's like yeah. they're two, they're completely different things. And so what I we ha- say I have friends who are our age I guess, which is cool, um, who, who think I basically, uh, my explorations in mushrooms, uh, which have gotten deeper and deeper, I can handle more and more and I, I can use it in a way. Like, it's like I'm entering, entering fairyland. I'm, a, I'm, I have a, I have a, a permanent visa to the she and the hill under, going under those hills, right? Uh, that's how I sort of view it. And I have friends still who are our age and see it as a meth addiction, essentially. Mushrooms, meth, same thing. That's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, I'm no offense to your friends, but that's really ignorant. One of them has even has a master's in medieval history from York in England, but he still has, and I can see it's not that, here's the thing though, I can see it's not the result of any critical thinking. It's the result of just having never thought about it at all. Wow, yeah, sure. Never sure. thought about it. He just still remembers that programming that the commercials pounded into our brains in the early 90s and 80s. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I got that same... You know, uh, we're again same age. So I saw the same, you know, Ninja Turtle just say no ad campaigns that you did. And um, look, it's I don't think that kids should use any substances. I think that that's a pretty good. That's really smart. Yeah. But I don't think that they should be scared away from them forever. And the same thing. I don't think a kid should be able to drive a car either. But once you reach a certain age, you know, it's 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 pretty useful in life. So and so are you know. So is the the proper and responsible use of psychedelics. They 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 are a positive. They and might be life saving. In fact, they've saved my ayahuasca. Saved my life. Yeah. Ayahuasca 100% saved my life, no questions asked. I haven't done that uh, yet, but I fully believe that. Um, I mean, that's sort of how I feel about um, mushrooms myself, yeah. 
Yeah, and mushrooms too. I mean, like the thing with like mushrooms. I love mushrooms again; they're my favorite. But the thing with Ayo that I really loved about just being in that Ayo space and sitting with Gaia and like the way it's just a different level of communication with her. Like I feel like with mushrooms, I'm kind of like waiting around in the parlor, whereas with ayahuasca, you are welcomed into the throne room of the queen. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm glad to hear it described that way, because I've heard a lot of weird experiences from people who just did it in apartments at strange events, or, you know, there's a lot of those Aya parties going around, and I, I'm not so sure that they're all well done. No, they probably aren't. Um, and a, a lot of, I'm not big into group, you know, uh, entheogenic ceremonies. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I like to just sit with the medicine by myself with my cat. I mean, really, and just that's it. Like, my kitty is one of the best shamans I've ever met in my life. So, um, yeah, it's uh, – I went to uh, – I've done a, a few group sessions, but it's always – I don't know. They just – they're not right for me. I mean, some people love them, and that's the only way they'll, they'll you know, take medicine, and that's fine, but it's, just, it's not for me at all. And um, some facilitators – you know, one of the problems is that there's no – real like the only thing you need to do to be a psychedelic facilitator is just call yourself a psychedelic facilitator like that's it that's you know yeah, there's a lot of jokes about that these days yeah but i mean but and and rightfully so i mean i sat in on a peyote circle and i'm not going to say the woman's name but i mean she was really really bad at her job like really bad at it and you know giving advice that look i'm not a psychologist but there are certain things that i know from just being alive about psychology that are not smart things to do like for example if you're mad hitting a pillow you know that whole thing is that bad yeah, that's passe. No, like that. People used to think that that was good, but I bet you, you ask any psychologist today, worth her salt, if they think that's a good idea, and she's going to be like, absolutely not. That is an outdated as phrenology. But this <laughs> great comparison, man. <laughs> What's that? I love that as outdated as phrenology. Yeah, it is. It's out, as outdated as phrenology. And so again, I'm not a psychologist, but I know that much. And this facilitator was telling this dude who was going through a rough experience. He was having like a lot of like father imagery come up, and I guess he had a bad relationship with his dad. And so she's like, oh, we'll hit this pillow. And she's really like just making this dude even more aggressive. And it's like, yo, we need to be calming this dude down. Yeah. Not getting more worked up. And it's like, really? You're a fucking facilitator and you don't know this basic shit? So. Yeah. Once she showed up wearing that fucking windbreaker track out that I should have known. That, that should have been my clue right there. Oh, dear Lord. Yeah, yeah. She, looked like she, walked in, she looked like she walked straight out of 1983. It was like, or maybe a little later, like 87. I was like, Jesus, lady, come on. Yeah, without training and sometimes uh, testing and regulation, we can really cause uh, some some problems. Uh, I, I work as a spiritual director, and my training for that was my master's in divinity. I could have done just a one year MA in spiritual direction, but I did the full the full training because I also wanted to be qualified to be a priest. So I learned homiletics, the whole shebang, the big degree, right? It's like the MBA of the religious world. And uh, the, these days, of course, it's very common for you to, like, people get paid $200 an hour to be psychics on Instagram, right? 
Um, wow, really? They, uh, people make a lot more money than I make, and you know, I have like over a hundred grand of student loans still to pay off. Um, just doing tarot and, and psychism and, and light work often, and I don't mind that. Uh, that's fine. It, I, you know, what I have to offer come uh, is a breadth of knowledge of the history and range of spiritual traditions that can really help guide someone all further on their path, rather than, you know, yeah, uh, training against bias, prejudice. Uh, I think there's something to value in my training. Uh, for what I do, and I definitely don't have anything against people doing tarot. I could do tarot, but it's just not my my preference. And when it comes to psychedelic uh, things like Aya ceremonies, you've got people like the tracksuit lady, right? But then you have people like Gaber Mate, who were was up until Canada, the Canadian government shut him down. But one of our most famous doctors in the world on 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 things like addiction, and he was curing lifelong hard crack addicts, and we shut him down. Yeah, that was smart. I know, right? Um, well, it's no one likes to say it, but Vancouver actually needs the homeless people and and uh, and all those crises. The governments need these crises. They they fabricate them. They perpetuate them. We all know this, right? Um, but it is a something we need to develop. I think, and in the realm in the intersection of magical practice with psychedelic stuff, I think it's so great. Like what the fact that you have a book out on it. I hope there's a lot more books and research to come. Um, I've I've been experimenting um, for a few years now, several years now on this stuff, and I I look forward to doing more. I think in the magical sphere, there's definitely room for a lot more contributions to be made. I don't think it's something we should shy away from at all either. Sure. Um, I'm working on a follow-up uh, to Microdosing Magic. That's going to be a much bigger and deeper book. Uh, so that that is on the way. Oh wow! Any any uh, hints at the what it might be called or something like that? Uh, so far, the working title is Psychedelic Witch. Awesome. See, I think you're just one of these guys who's gonna who's who's you know who's going to keep writing books all of which i'm going to have to read this that's so great i was so stoked when i saw you chatting with chris on youtube and then i looked up your your work and i was like oh shit yes right up my exactly up my alley um i'm always embarrassed when uh, people write books that i actually don't have interest in but i'm interested in what they're doing you know um sure. so yeah are you familiar with gabber Mate's work I mean, I know who he is, but yeah. I'm not, you know, like, I, I, I'm a big, I'm a fan of, of him as a person. Like, um, you know, I know the name and I recognize him as, you know, a stellar human being within the field who has done just really amazing work, especially as you were saying with addiction. Um, and, uh, yeah, but I don't know much of his, like, I've seen him speak before at conferences and stuff. Um, and, um, yeah, he's, uh, he, he's quite the, um, quite the powerhouse of a dude and yet like he's so like humble looking and yet he's such a big deal at the same time it's pretty cool yeah when the body says no is one of the few books i brought down down here with me um because i i don't i actually just you know it's a good book to have with you it's the hidden cost of stress because that is uh i think also something a, a plague of our times I mean, everything we do online now is designed to actually cause us more stress because we click more buttons and that pays advertisers. Yep. You know, yeah. this whole pandemic, I've kept saying to people with everything that is going on, I keep saying, you know, I just think it's a really good time for magic. And some people are like, hey, you're, you're standing in the way. That means you're in the, you're, if you're taking that stance, then you're, that means you're opposed to the protests and you're part of the establishment. And 
I don't see it that way. Wow, um, that's bullshit, man. And those, those people, like, I, I had a, a similar encounter with somebody like that, and I'm, I'm just going to say, they've literally set up this bullshit philosophy that states that unless you agree 100% with what they're saying, you are somehow morally defective. And it's total bullshit, and I'm so glad to see that, like, you know, liberals such as myself are not going that far to the left because that's ridiculous. And I think that, you know, there's, you know, just like there's conservatives and then there's the alt-right, I think that there's liberals and there's leftists. And um, Oh, yeah. Well, I think what we're realizing is that there's people on the right and the left who I think the, the, the radical extremes of both we're realizing are much smaller percentage oh, yeah. than we realize. The majority of people, like 80% of people you could maybe call them all centrist, whether they lean right or left. And as a Canadian, we don't have a two-party system, so this whole thing is very foreign to me. We have three parties, right? Plus we have, like, the marijuana party, so we have sort of four, and sometimes they merge, and they all basically charge us additional taxes and fuck over the First Nations, so Canadians generally don't love any of their political parties and therefore don't identify in a bifurcated, dualistic way, um, which is happening in all in the States all the time. Yeah, but a lot of them don't, you know, we're, uh, Americans are a little bit more flexible sometimes than we're given credit for. Like, yes, like there is like people that voted for Obama twice voted for Donald Trump. I mean, I don't know why, but they. <laughs> did. it's like so it's like, well, that says something because there's this idea that it's like, oh, well, it must be just all racism. And yes, we definitely have a problem of racism in this country, no doubt. But I don't know that defaulting everything to racism is a strategy for actually solving all the problems. Like racism is certainly a problem that we have to target. But I don't know that it encompasses everything the way sometimes people say. And maybe it does, and maybe I'm just ignorant and don't know enough about it. You know, I, but I just, I don't really like extremists on any side of anything. I think that all extremism is um, intellectually pathetic. I'll just say it. Um, extremism yeah. is for people that can't actually think for themselves. So, I don't, I don't know. It's just not something I really go for. Yeah, I've, I've gotten into hot water sometimes when I try and uh, talk about the uh, Israeli-Palestine uh, issues um, because of my background in ancient Near Eastern history, right? I'm very aware of how the ancient Near East has been way back when and how long these issues have been going on, right? And you know, Jesus famously says in the New Testament, you know, you're always going to have these wars with you. You're always going to have poverty. You're going to always have these problems. Yep. And that's why he refocuses people on their spirituality um, mm -hmm. in in my reading of it. And um, We have the same reading. Yeah, cool. Well, yeah, it sounds like we're a bit more kindred spirits than we might have thought, eh? Um, yeah, that's, that's beautiful. I'm, I'm really grateful. But then again, most people I meet by, be, due to my friendship with Chris are, are pretty amazing human beings. Yeah, I, got to, I got to meet Jeremiah She in vancouver and he's a he's a lovely guy a oto guy but oh and i want to say about crowley i think you should keep saying crowley not crowley and because i think saying crowley is the most crowley thing you can do because it would piss him off <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I also say enochian not enochian because the hebrew word is hanok oh okay i i heard that the um it was those 
Harzikov. Those who find him holy call him Alistair Crowley, and those who find him foully call him Alistair Crowley. Oh, so that works too. I'm gonna keep calling him Crowley. Yeah. Yeah, uh, he, I, you know, I have a first edition of his his autohagiography sitting right here. Uh, you know, I, I, he, yeah, he has, he plays an important role, um, and reading, uh, you know, it's posthumous too. So when I think about the fact that he never had that information known in his lifetime for people, uh, that's really allows me to think about him in some interesting ways. Like this is the stuff he confessed or and wrote down, but knew that no one would know in his lifetime. And so that really changes certain ways I interpret him. Um, it's interesting. It's really no matter how crazy someone is, or, or, or uh, you know, uh, you know, what I mean, it, it, when they're just writing about themselves, there's always insights to be had, even if some of what they're saying is just fictional. Uh, it doesn't matter. It, even the, sometimes the fictions we tell actually are tell explain more about us than our the truths, right? Oh, absolutely. So you learn yeah. you learn a lot about him either way. It doesn't matter what's true or what has more or less truthiness. Um, you you get insight no matter what. And uh, so he's and he had a big life. He had a big ass life. Probably the you know uh, his work probably is what why there are there there is such a magical revolution happening in the world today. Well, that and Harry Potter. Yeah. Yeah, and I thought not too long ago uh, there was an article going around said that uh, a lot of people are are turning to like these alternative and nature based spiritualities and Wicca and things like that instead of you know other things like Christianity and uh, which I don't you know I'm weird because I don't actually have a problem with Christian at all like I I don't it's a belief system it's it's as silly and ridiculous as my belief system you know like Amen brother so, Hallelujah. You know, so I don't have any problem with it. Like, I have friends, really good friends that are Christians, and they're like, I mean, the the idea of, like, that that far right-wing extremist Christian, it's like, yeah, they exist, but they're such a tiny minority. It, like, it really is. Most Christians, yeah, like, they don't care about gays anymore. Like, no. That's not, like, no, like, like, I, again... I know so many Christians. Not a single one of them gives a fuck about my sexual identity. Like none of them can. Yeah, you can you know? actually talk to Roman Catholic priests all around Vatican City, and they'll you, you'd be shocked at how modern and liberal they're. If you say, "What about the Mary went bodily into heaven?" They'll be like, "Nah, come on, man, how stupid are you?" And you'll yeah, hear exactly. that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's, and that's good. And I think it's it's a testament that uh, go figure. It's a testament. It's a new testament that they can. Um, it's the new new you testament. Know, yeah, that they're willing to uh, the newest testament that that they're willing to kind of update their browsers. I mean, that's that's a that's a good thing. And instead of coming down on them and pretending that it's like Christianity from even 50 years ago, I think that it's time everybody just starts embracing each other a little bit more. Um, and just, you know, realize it's like, okay, like we're all talking about the same thing. We're all talking about this mountain that we want to get, uh, you know, get to the top of. You are taking the Christian road. I don't care. Take the Christian road. This person's taking the Buddha road. Take the Buddha road. I take the nature worship road. It doesn't, and none of them are any better than the other ones as long as you're not harming anybody. You know, like, yeah. yeah. And it isn't really that harms people, it's people that harm people. Yeah. You know, like, like, Jesus didn't order the Crusades. A bunch of fucking asshole kings did. You know, like, it's, I don't know. Yeah. I, I just, 
and one of the crusades was just a bunch of kids who like really got into it. <laughs> you know what I'm referring? Hmm. Yeah, that they were called the pastoru. They, they walked around France and they would go around trying to convert Jews to Christian to Christians. And if they wouldn't convert, they'd beat the shit out of them. The kids. Yeah, the kids. That's interesting. Um, the Irish Gaelic word for a child is pasture. So yeah, there it is. So that's they, interesting. They, they I just I never heard that before. That word. Yeah, pastoru. That's what they were called. Yeah. Hmm. The, this thought is a uh, forming that I've been working on. It's um, well for me, like the the hermetic element of my my Christianity is very is very crucial, and and you know, a lot of the Christians I know also when they know their history, they see how it came out of Judaism, how Judaism was influenced by, you know, the Babylonian exile. Canaanite culture, uh, Hellenic culture, different times, and uh, back to Egypt, right? I mean, like even linguistically, in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, the 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 character, the initiate, the candidate is called Ani. That's his name, right? A N I, Ani. Well, not not in Roman letters, but and in Hebrew, the way you, the way you say I is Ani. It's the same thing. So, like clearly, oh. these there's these. Well, Israel grew out of Egypt. Essentially, like there might have been hill tribes that that clustered about, but the first reference to Israel is in Egypt, is in an Egyptian tablet, and it's really an offhand reference. It says, "Oh, and there was also Israel here. They were there during this wartime yeah. thing, right?" So we, I was taught that that Israel really grew out of these clustered uh, hill tribes in the Canaanite hills, and slowly came together, grabbed mythologies. Put, told the stories and slowly, slowly developed into what became formally known as Israel. Why was there 12, 12 tribes? Because 12 was an important number. That's constant throughout the Hebrew Bible is these magical numbers, right? When they said 30 days and 30 nights, that was essentially their way of colloquial saying a really long time. If you were like, hey, how's it going? How are you doing? I could be like, oh man, I've been so tired for like the last 30 days and 30 nights. I don't mean it literally. I'm just telling you it's a long ass time. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, oh, where was it? Mm. So the thought was, so yeah, Christianity is very Egyptian, essentially. Um, and that's why I don't have much of a hard, of a hard time feeling druidic, witchy, Christian all at once, you know? It, sure. To me, I just see myself as a human being. Um, I love the Latin that exists in the high mass. I use it a lot in ritual work, but I also use Hebrew. I also use Greek when I'm doing uh, the old Greek magical manuscripts, uh, like the headless ritual and stuff. Um, Enochian, completely made up language, but all languages are. So, hey, let's roll with it. Sometimes when I do druidic work, I do a nal nathrachut vas dachel diende. I'll use it because Excalibur was a powerful film for me as a kid. And that thing, if I say that chant long enough, I go into an ecstatic state where my astral senses get very heightened and uh, I go from there. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I use uh, Latin sometimes um, with ritual work, but not much. Well, yeah, it's definitely a very specific flavor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I wish I knew Hebrew. Like, I don't know it at all. Like, you know, I not. You, you can, though. It's not hard. It's, like, one of the easiest languages, I think, to learn. Really? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think everyone needs to know that, like especially biblical Hebrew, because um, there's there's so many uh, modern grammatical things that had to be put in place for it to become a modern language in the 20th century, really. Um, like in ancient Hebrew, one of the craziest things, like the day that we were taught, like our Hebrew Bible teacher was like, yeah, so you got to understand in ancient Hebrew, there's no tense. I'm like, we're like, what? Wait, what? Really? And he's like, yeah, not really. And we're like, so how do you know? what the tense is in a sense he's like context and there's a few little indicators here and there like it's pretty almost always past tense if there's a, a vav with a line under it at the beginning or there wouldn't have been the diacritic line under it in the earliest writings of course because they were added later but you would have known if the sentence started with a vav it was probably in the past tense but not always so then of course we said to the teacher well, what about prophecies then? How do you know that something's in the future tense? And the teacher was like, exactly. And we're all like this whole class of priests and, and ministers in training. It was an ecumenical school. So we had everything from Unitarian Universalists to Lutherans to Catholics, hardcore Catholics like me. And we were like, oh, shit. So prophecies, that's just a guesswork. And the main example he gave us was, you know, there will be a child born and his name will be Emmanuel. Well, that wasn't future tense. That was present tense. And archaeology confirmed that, indeed, there was a child born at that time in the court, the royal court, and he was a noble kid, and his name was Emmanuel. Really? Oops. Wow. So how important is it to learn these languages? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, cool, eh? Yeah, well, so that's one of the reasons... Getting back to the whole holy mushroom thing, that's one of the reasons I don't buy it because I can read Latin and like when I'm reading these things about cannabis and mandrake and henbane and opium, it's just like I think the problem is that people that believe, every person I know that believes very strongly the or believes the the holy mushroom very strongly doesn't speak any language other than English. It's always the same. It's, yeah. it's always, they can't read anything other than you know books that are written by people that I don't think are you know that impressive as scholars like John Rush or Jan Irvin. Like they're not impressive, and they they can't read these languages, and they're not art historians. Like yeah. it's if, if the problem I guess with it, and, and we don't have to say on it, is that it's so amateurish. Mm. The people that come up with the holy mushroom, all of them, it's so amateurish. And it's like, I don't know, like, I wouldn't, like, I wouldn't trust these guys, you know, to fix my plumbing. I'm not going to trust them on ancient texts that they can't even read. Like, um, Clark Heinrich wrote a book called um, Magic Mushrooms in Religion and Alchemy, and he's trying to make this, this case for... Uh, you know, mushroom use in these alchemy texts, and it's like, dude, you can't even read those texts. What are you talking about? Like, how are you like, how are you making an argument based on texts that you can't even read? Exactly. You know, Roman Catholic uh, theologians and scholars have been pushing for ordination of women for actually a very long time in the Vatican and in the Roman Catholic Church. That's why we were so upset when uh, when the, uh, you know, when the the 
Cardinal Ratzinger became Pope because, you know, the last thing we need is someone who was in Hitler's youth or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, the, 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 one of my teachers once said, actually, Roman Catholicism is the best polytheism you'll ever find because you can be in Vatican City, walk into Ratzinger's uh, renamed Inquisition, uh, Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and they'll tell you there's only one Jesus and you have to believe in him in the right way or you're, you're going to hell. Then you can go next door to, the, uh, to Hans-Uwe von Balthasar's Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, just both equally valid parts of the Roman Catholic Church, and they'll tell you Jesus is the light of the world, but that light shines to all people, whether they know it or not, and is loving and accepting, accepting and found in all things. And in Vatican Second Vatican Council, it says um, even the man or woman who has never known the Christian message can still encounter the true essence of Christ through birds, rocks, bees, and trees, and through unknown signs and images that will occur through nature crazy right and so the scholars are pushing for female ordination on the linguistic basis that like because they say we can't have female priests because jesus had no female apostles but if you read the greek the koine that the new testament is written in and it's very clunky the letters of paul especially it says in them and and the apostles were there and it names one of the apostles as julia with a lambda with a lambda and then when it goes into latin they changed it to junius that's right. So blatant. So the Roman Catholic scholars are like, look, we can totally ordain women because it's more biblical. It's what yeah. Jesus not only would have done, but what he did do. Dude, you, you and me, we need to take some fucking acid and go to the Vatican. <laughs> it's a date. I think we would have a blast. Like, seriously. But yeah, you're right. Uh, Once we get the vaccine, then we're safe to travel. Yeah, right? Um, but no, I, I agree. I mean, look, I mean, most of the leaders in those days, I mean, Paul, you, you bring up, I mean, he names the women that are the leaders of these churches. Yeah, yeah, and they just changed it in the Latin. Yeah, so, and it's like, that's insanity. They, like, they, these old guys were like, hey, hey, but there's a problem. Okay, it's solved. Yeah, right? It just you know, just read, just write the word out of it, and you solve a fucking problem. No, but it's true. It's like they were all... You know, all the early church leaders were women. Like um, a lot of them were, some of them were slaves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you have the uh, the accounts of Paul and Thecla. I mean, obviously, you know, it's most likely you know fiction, but still, you know, it it's it, it does show that women did have a presence there. I mean, just the fact that Magdalene and other women are the discoverers of the empty tomb, like. That is the beginning of Christianity. The the unnamed woman who rubs the uh, the the, uh, the alabaster jar and she rubs uh, Jesus' feet with the oil, like that was really like to, to prefigure his death. Like she knew he was going to die. It's like when you actually get into the nitty gritty of reading the Bible, it's like yeah, women were pretty much on top of this from the get go. Yeah. Uh, uh, Duke's, uh, Duke University uh, theologian and archaeologist presented to us almost 20 years ago now about findings she did in an excavation in ancient Israel lands and they found that in the houses of the women there was an area in the ground where they stored their jewelry and then there was a separate area in the women's section of the houses where they stored what can only be described as magical implements and we know that because you can compare those exact implements to other magical implements that were designated as such in other Near Eastern cultures, right? Um, And it was in every single hut, every single living space and the theory is maybe the women had uh, the primary role in the house like men were the public 
public image. The rabbis and the husbands would go off and be public, uh, public spiritual leaders in the community. But the women were in charge and doing all these rituals that we do still have. Old, we have lots of old Hebrew and Aramaic texts for spells that are still to this day not translated. It's not like we have a shortage of ones that need to be investigated. There's a lot of works to still be done. And the archaeology, I think, is amazing as we keep uncovering that, like the like the cannabinoids on the altar that just got found, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Where we don't really understand, have a clear picture of of of, of gender roles and how human life actually was, because we've been redacting it for so so long. We just are completely out of touch with how things were from the eradication of Asherah, aka Mrs. Yahweh, to um, like you were saying with the Eleusinian rites being primarily female led, representing Kore and Demeter, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, there is. I mean, who's the sacred male in in the hymn to Demeter? Nobody. So, if we did indeed have these this prevalence of, let's call it, female spiritual power and leadership uh, to a much greater extent, if not to a superior extent, in just even as recently as two thousand years ago, um, it makes perfect sense that our interpretations of Jesus and his life in the early churches is completely skewed by how much we've redacted history in just the last thousand years even. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, uh, this is something I think people need to be very aware of. Yeah. Uh, you know, especially, you know, it's a good thing that the church is recognizing that and that, you know, women are becoming ordained and that that's a great thing. And that's, you and know, it should be the church hasn't. The problem is Catholic theology is based on the idea that it never changes. And that's a problem. Yeah, but in the same way, it has changed. It, and of that, course, it changes all the time, but they have to pretend like it doesn't. Yeah, they have to pretend it doesn't. Like, they have to fight it clicking and screaming, you know, so that it's this slow, painful process that it's almost like the generation goes by and nobody noticed that it totally got changed through that time because it was such a slow, arduous, you know, process. That's why after one year of seminary, I had to leave and switch to the switch to Anglo Anglo Catholicism because I was like, oh, I just know too much scholarship to stay in stay in the in the Roman Catholic Church. It's just it was too much, right? You know, when I said to my New Testament scholar or teacher, I was like, I said to him after one of the first few weeks in, in grad school, I was like, but the Gospels were written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the disciples, right? They wrote them themselves, and he looked at me and he smiled. He's like. You keep telling yourself that. (laughs) And as we went through those three years of full-time studies, I was like, oh, shit. Especially when you look at the linguistics of the issue. And I focused on Hebrew and Aramaic translations and and how, like, on my arm I have the same verse from Psalms in Aramaic, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And in Latin it says, Vacate et videte conio, coni ego sum deus. Vacate, vacate, and know that I am God. In Hebrew it says, herpa, stop and know that I am God. And the God name is Elohim. In the Greek, it says skolasate, pay attention, like from the word skolas, um, and know that I am God, which in in the Greek is, uh, of course, you know, uh, theos. And then the Aramaic, the oldest one, it's a much longer sentence. It says pasaka min karava uyada arom anachyaya. Stop fighting wars and know that I am God. Slight difference there, eh? Yeah, but they have big difference, really. <laughs> yeah, and, and I asked my professor when I finally found the Aramaic, I found a reference to this older form of that text. I believe it was in a, one of the Midrash Rabbas or in 
or in one of the Targums. And even the name for God, I didn't recognize. It's, it was, it's in the Aramaic script. It was just two yods. I said to the, my professor, who is still, for despite his non-recognizing of Cannabossum, was still a scholar. And I said, what's up with the God name not being yod heh vav here Elohim, but two yods? He's like, oh, that's a really, really old way of doing it. And if they use two yods at the end, it's because they might not have had room on wherever it was being written to include Elohim. So it's in theory possible that when that was translated into Hebrew uh, later on, they ran out of space, and instead of saying, stop fighting wars and know that I am God, they said, just stop and know that I am God. And since the text is embedded in an area that's talking about war, you'll know what we mean. But that text, be still and know that I am God, as we say it, has gone in a completely different direction since the New Age. And a lot of Christian spirituality has taken it to mean, you know, just rise above the stresses of this world. Does online shopping get you down? Just do some transcendental meditation and rise above the issues. Don't create social change. Don't fight for what's right. Just, just you know, do some yoga and you'll be fine. So, so these interpretations can actually lead to quite significant developments in the way we live our lives. It's really real stuff. Yeah, I mean, language shapes our perception more than most anything. I mean, that's why, you know, with just Greek and Latin, like why Latin is very um, straightforward, which is why you, you have great laws in, you know, Latin. I mean, we still use Latin terminology in law today. Oh, yeah. Now, is much more flowery, which is, you know, and more interpretive. So that's why Greek, you get more philosophy, because it opens, and poetry, because it opens, you know, yeah. the language lends itself to it. So It makes like, sense, yeah. Well, yeah, Greek is, like, amazingly hard, is actually really hard, and especially because of the way it deals with time, whereas Hebrew is very loose with tense and time in ancient Hebrew, not in modern. Um Greek is very, very detailed and has actual cases that we don't have in other languages. And then, then Latin, I've always been told, is fun because it doesn't really have much fixed uh, syntax, though I think your Latin's probably a lot better than mine. There is, yeah, there is no syntax. Yeah, there, that's what, I, okay, see, everyone says that. I always think I'm going to find a Latin scholar better than me who's like, oh, there is, there's some solid rules. But no, everyone always says what you say. Yeah, there's no syntax. <laughs> Just throw the words out there. People will figure it out. <laughs> I mean, the closest thing to syntax in Latin is that usually, but not always, the verb is the last word in the sentence. How German. Yeah, right, but that's it. That, that, and that's not even all the time. That's like, you know, if, if you were to look at 100 Latin sentences, you know, maybe 20 of them will be that way. But that's 20 more than any other, you know, syntax style because, they, yeah, it doesn't exist in Latin. Yeah. Yeah, I always like to talk about these things because I think it's important we encourage people to get out there and, and they don't have to learn languages perfectly, but to, to feel empowered to actually learn a bit of languages because it's not as, as daunting. It's not as bad as it, as our French teachers make us think in Canada because, you know, you have this problem of bad pedagogy of someone, just because someone like can speak French, they get hired to teach French and then it turns out they're a shitty teacher and you spend 10 years learning nothing. Um Whereas if you actually might go out on your own to learn a language, you might get a lot further, a lot faster. So I like yeah. to encourage people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I got lucky because I started uh, Spanish at a very young age. 
So I, I kind of had it built into me that when it came time to teach myself Latin, it wasn't as strenuous as it would have been without, you know, having just any language background. Not that Spanish and Latin are similar because they're not. Uh, I mean, obviously, Spanish is based off of Latin, but the, the how the languages actually work, like Spanish does have syntax, whereas, uh, you know, Latin just doesn't at all. But, yeah, I, I agree with you. Like, one of the best, you want to talk about mind expansion? Yeah. Learn a language. Like, don't yes. even worry about acid or cannabis. Just learn a language, and it's the most mind-expanding thing you could do. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I totally agree. I always know it's, it's. I always know that I'm, I'm comfortable back in a German-speaking country when my, my, when my dreams switch over to German. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. When I, I moved to Vienna when I was 16 in '97, and uh, my friends always, they all said, "You'll, you'll know your, your, your." starting to really pick it up even if you can't really speak it well or much at all you know that your mind's starting to get loosened up when you have your first dream in in german and i remember the one that happened it was it was someone told me a stupid joke in german and uh i dream in my dream i was saying the joke in german oh it's really cool yeah it translates as why did the blonde girl have bruises around her belly button uh uh, and which is how I learned the word Blauflecke for bruises in German Blue blue flecka, blue spots And the answer is because she had a blonde boyfriend Of course, there you go yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, anyway It was either that joke or two cops walking on the beach One said, look, a dead bird The other one looked in the sky and said, where? Zwei Polizien spazieren auf dem Strand Ein sagt zu den anderen, schau ein Vögel Die andere schaut ins Himmel und sagt, wo? So funny. That was the joke I saw in the dream. Yeah, so that's when I knew. Yeah, I love dreaming in other languages. Expands your mind. Learn learn languages. Um, I want to learn Italian next. I I did. A, I could do a little bit of Italian. I can read some Italian off of the page. Uh, I had to learn um, a little bit of old Italian to do the witch's ointment. There was a very important. Uh, oh, cool. Yeah, that that was you know it was in old uh, old Italian, and I had some help with a, uh, a scholar uh, over at Boston College who you know was a, a Latin uh, or excuse me an Italian scholar. So, um, but it was rough um, with uh, yeah, but with Italian I could still like uh, I could read something off of the page and get the gist of what it's saying. I won't have all the tenses perfect. I you know it, it won't be perfect, but I could still I'll I'll get the gist. Well, it's it's smart to to use references like some people might think, oh, uh, you know, and you see this with a lot of scholarship, especially with people who don't know the languages. Well, they'll read one interpretation and they'll just use it without consulting other sources like my my Hebrew and Aramaic are are pretty good. But I still if I'm doing a translation, I'm still going to look things up because I don't want my translation to be just pretty good. Oh yeah, you know I, mean, I want it to be correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like when I when I say like I read uh, Latin, it's like what I what I mean by that is that like I have a very excellent Latin de- dictionary sitting right next to me the whole time. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, because I'm not I'm not a Latin scholar. I mean, again, I'm self taught, so there's a whole lot that I don't know about the language. Um, but like I learned Latin living in my car. Like I was just driving around the states teaching roller derby, teaching myself Latin. Like that's how I did it. That's and awesome. so I'm not that good at it, you know. Like and when I say to people, oh, I read Latin, everybody assumes that I'm like I'm this elegant Latin scholar that, you know, like 
should be teaching at Harvard or something. It's like, no, like I'm, I'm like as novice and as basic with Latin as you're going to find. But the good news is that the things that I was translating were all very basic sources. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, yeah, that's another thing people should be inspired about is a lot of the funnest and most important texts to read, especially in the field of magic and spirituality, are often quite simple. Um, like, I mean, the whole New Testament is quite simple, but a lot of the magical texts are quite simple. Um it's not the same as like reading a novel, for example. Like actually the hardest thing for me to read when I do something like German is a novel because there's the, the lexicon required is just really, really big. Reading philosophy is easy. Reading a novel, that's harder. Because like when I write fiction, I use a, a massive range of words, colloquial expressions, you name it, right? Um, you know, like someone, someone could be in this country 20 years and learn English fluently and still not know what a trellis is. Yeah. So if course. I read the word trellis in German, I'm not going to know what the fuck that is. And all of a sudden the sentence doesn't make sense. So the guy grabbed onto the what he grabbed onto the what I, and this, I've lost track of the story. Boom. Just like that. It's good to have a lexicon, but if you can have a lex, if you with a lexicon know enough about the language, its rules, its grammar, uh, that you can translate a sentence accurately. That's what we mean when we say, know a language because you still have to learn the language enough you can't and you can't just be anyone and sit down with the lexicon and make sense of a language because that's not how grammar works unfortunately yeah it's context you have to read around and get the context of what's actually happening or else you're pretty lost it's it's amazing like so my irish is conversational and irish uh, developed in scotland into a different language which is now called scottish and it's re it's so similar that I, when I read or hear Scottish it or when I read it not when I hear it when I can hear it it's very obviously yeah so if out when I hear outlander it's like well they say these words way different even though they're from the exact same word um, but when I read it I'll think I know what it says in Scottish and then when I look at the at what it actually means it's like holy shit no they'll be like just they'll use a single letter in just such a radically different way. It means something completely different. And I, well, I think I know what it says, but I don't at all. So those sort of nuances are, are important, especially in things, I think, like Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. So learning the nuances is sort of key. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I dealt mostly with trial records and demonology texts, uh, which, nice. again, were not that, you know, and, uh, and medical uh, which I mean, today medical books are ridiculous, you know, um, very wordy. But in those days, they were very straightforward, uh, especially the ones I was because I was looking at well, what were common people doing. So I looked at medical books that were like popular medical books of like the 1400s to see what people actually knew about medicine, like what common folk knew. And they knew quite a bit. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Um Maybe you could uh, give us a little, because I, I think people should, especially all the, all the, all our my lovers of witchcraft out there, uh, which we all who doesn't love witchcraft, right? Might be curious to hear a couple examples of some of the stuff in your books that is most interesting to you, or do you, or it most useful in your practice as a witch. Um. Well, the thing is, as far as most interesting, I would say that part, what I found to be most interesting was the ways that these women would mix Christianity with, like, the folky pagan ideas. <laughs> That's like, one of my favorite things, too, brother. Yeah, that that was really interesting. Like, there was this one lady, um, what was her name, uh, Sibilia, was it Sibilia Pierina? 
It was either Piorina de Brippio or uh, Sibilia de Freluligati, I believe. What was her last name? Sibilia. I don't remember her last name, and I don't remember which one it was. But um, their their religion, one, one of the reasons I believe that they were taking these kinds of psychoactives had to do with, like, they'd be entering the spirit world. And in order to enter the spirit world, you couldn't actually enter as a human. So you either had to turn into an animal or take on the appearance of a zombie, like a dead person. In wow. order to enter the world. Yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, and that's why if, um, if you look on the cover of the witch's ointment, there's three kind of, like, animal-human kind of people riding on a stick. Um, that's because the artist of that picture, uh, Ulrich Molitor, knew that that was part of this religion, and this was his way of mocking it. Wow. Wow. So I thought that was pretty interesting. As far as useful for witches today, um, you know, witchcraft in those days was a lot more, uh, what's, what, what's the right word here? It was definitely more involved, and, you know, there was a certain, like, they used a lot more of, like, you know, animal blood that I wouldn't recommend, you know, I mean, like, they would go out and they would find different birds and squirrels and things, and they would, you know, just kill them and yeah. drain their blood for shit or frogs and stuff, you know, they would go out and there was this one lady. They um, also didn't fully understand disease or have soap back then, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's also the case. Yeah, they, there was a whole, yeah, things were just really different. And, um, I mean, there were certain things that I've taken from these beliefs that I incorporate into my own that I'm going to be writing about in that book, Psychedelic, which I mentioned earlier. Yeah. But, um, by and large, um, I, the practices, the things people are doing today are way more sanitary than what people were doing back then. Yeah. Yeah, I think we see that very much with the grimoire magic and Solomonic stuff, which is uh, sometimes even shamanic in its appearance based on the, the, the blood and bones and things, animal parts that use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, people would get sick a lot of the time because they would be, you know, you know, part of one spell, this guy actually got a rep for this. He was using a... Um, like a sexual lubricant that was made out of goat brains and honey. Oh, fun times. Yeah, right? It's a party. Oh. Yeah. Hey, um, hey, babe, I got the new goat brain lube. You want to try yeah, it out? Yeah, right. <laughs> it's, it's fresh goat yeah. brain, and it's biodynamic. Yeah, so, you know, it's all, uh, I don't know. So unless you want to, you know, be rubbing your, you know, your, your balls with goat brains, <laughs> you know, it's sort of Scott Cummingham stuff. <laughs> Man. Hey, you might like this fun fact. In Ireland, the name for magic mushrooms is Kapani Puka, and they grow in the northern hills of Donegal. And they, uh, my friend's Irish friend would be like, Ah, Jesus, you know, we just go out there in the autumn and we gather them and we put them in the tea and we just dream through the winter, you know? We just dream through the winter, drift away. And Kapani Puka is very important as a name for them because it means puka hats. And puka, as we all know, is the shape-shifting fairy. So the idea is to enter the she under the hills, because she both is a word for fairy and hill, and refers to the Tua Jadonan after they were defeated and sent under the land, um, or to Tirnanog, Both they went both places, right? Or the same, maybe they're the same place, who knows. Um, you put on the puka hat, 
you eat the mushroom and you shapeshift. And the idea that I always thought was amazing, because I first did mushrooms on the side of a river uh, outside Galway in Ireland, and we just bought them over the counter in 2005. And... The idea is that you, if you don't shapeshift in the journey through, through the she with the mushrooms, then you have a bad trip because the whole key is to shapeshift. And that's very shockingly true of mushrooms. You have to learn how to flow and transform as you go on that journey, especially if it's a heroic one, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's, uh, I didn't know that about uh, Northern Ireland. I thought you would dig that. Yeah, I absolutely dig that because it goes right along with what these wise women were saying during medieval times, saying, yeah, we can't enter this realm without shape-shifting. Yeah. Like, yeah. that's, so, I don't know, that, that's fucking A, man. Is that that's fucking pretty- A? Yeah. That's so cool. I covered an article written by a PhD recently from, I think, Oxford or Cambridge, Dr. Letcher, who's a very big, uh, unfortunate name, but uh, very big into psychedelic practice. But in his essay, he comments that psychic mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms weren't being used prior to the 1950s by anyone. Oh, you mean Andy Letcher? Oh, is, that, is Andy Letcher? Yeah. And I, did I misread that or something? Did I misunderstand what he meant by that? Because that seems yeah. crazy. Yeah, he has a different. So I know Andy. I know Andy pretty well. Uh, we've we've talked about this. So I got, um, by the end of that article commentary I did on this podcast, I was quite critical. By the end, as much as I loved his entire, I love what he's talking about. I love that he's approaching it and he's going to Avesbury and doing music circles and doing heroic doses. That's great. Keep doing that, right? But I was surprised by some of his historical insights. Um. I so he his. And it's, he seemed completely unaware that these things have been growing in Northern Ireland for fucking forever. And if you think the Irish weren't using them, you don't know the Irish. Yeah. So one of one of the things that that um, that Andy does that I do too, and I I tend to agree with him on this is he doesn't try to use modern anthropology to prove history. So while I agree with you that there's evidence, and I've seen like necklaces of like mushroom necklaces from Ireland. While I believe there is some evidence there, he's like me. Like, he's not going to ask somebody that's alive today in Ireland about people that Mm. were alive in Ireland 500 years ago. This is sort of like the problem that Eric Weinstein keeps talking about with the having not having a culture of polymaths anymore. We get stuck in our own discipline and we don't we don't allow ourselves to be informed outside of our own discipline. Right. Sure. But he's also let me say that he's changed his mind on a few things. His book was uh, is called Shroom. Um, And I don't I don't agree with all of it. In fact, um, I mean, he writes in Shroom that there was no witches ointment. And I wrote an entire book that says, you you know, (laughs) so I don't agree with him on everything. But I also think that his book was one of the most important books on psychedelic history ever written. Oh. See, I've been wondering since I read that article. Yeah, that's really good to know because I was wondering, should I read a whole book by someone who says something I, I find completely untrue about, you know, the lack of mushrooms in Ireland or whatever? I, well, he doesn't really touch upon Ireland. And that's like that's some of the criticism that he's drawn is that, you know, he really he didn't look as I, don't, I still think it's a great book. I obviously I have my disagreements with it. But he it's has, seminal. You know, agreements with it you know like he you know he wrote things that he doesn't agree with anymore um but i think definitely worth a read it is very smart it is so well written 
it flows. I mean, I finished it. It's like over 300 pages, and I finished it in like a couple days because it was just so good. Yeah, he's a good writer, and and a lot of uh, most of what he says, I think, is very very important stuff for people to to think about. Yeah, yeah. especially his his approach to how they should be used. You know, in a, in an entheogenic way, as opposed to you know, let's go to the bar and take some mushrooms. Yeah, although you know, it's funny he hates the word entheogen. Yeah, good for him. Yeah, he he despises that term. I don't know why, but he doesn't like it. I think it's just he has beef with Carl Ruck about the holy mushroom, and who knows? Uh, I'm not. I think it's a great term to define their use within a spiritual context and ceremony and all of that. And academics are embracing it. And if academics are finally embracing any aspect of this kind of redacted information, we shouldn't give them a hard time about it. We should we should roll with that, man. You know? I agree, dude. I agree totally. <laughs> I'm not going to interrupt somebody because they're saying that I'm correct. Like, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, just because Chris Bennett wants to ride a, a one wheel as we go down a mountain path, and I'm not going to, doesn't mean we're not still going the same place. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he just has better balance than me. Oh my god. Yeah, and he's got a joint hanging out of his mouth too while he's well, doing it. Well, holding a an extended arm camera to film it. I don't know how the guy does it. He says it's just about a Zen state. He gets into a special place, and it's like that. I don't know if I don't know if uh, that's spirituality, if anything, I've ever seen. You know. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. such a great dude. Yeah, yeah. Soma Institute, man. It, this is hopefully 2021 is the year for it. I'm uh, I'm leading a Celtic mystery WBA's Celtic Mysteries conference there over four days in uh, next June. Nice. Yeah. That's all. I've got uh, order of Celtic Mysteries dot com, and we're doing some pre study for it, and we're going to do all of Yates's uh, never been done before initiation ceremonies that he drafted with Mathers and other GD adepts over 20 years. We're putting them together for the first time and doing them for ourselves and for anyone who wants to be involved. That's awesome. That's next June? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it's just just getting going. It's just the beginning. This will be a five-year project for me, and uh, I think after that I'll be good, and hopefully people will continue it on after I'm done, but I've got other things. I still plan on vanishing to a cabin in Scotland or Ireland one day in the next decade and just playing my ill and pipes and being living a quiet life That's pretty sweet actually as as you know being public as we are can uh be stressful yeah i mean it's it's also a lot of fun sometimes i mean it's it's like anything case in point, case in point bro What's that? This conversation is case in point of that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. This is so like, much fun. The talks I have with pe- my people, people on this podcast, they're always so extreme and so fun. I feel like it should be illegal to have this much fun talking to someone. Sure. Fuck, we got to get you on my podcast, too. Yeah, let's do it. I, I actually just noticed uh, about, uh, the website and stuff. Do you want to talk about that, tell people where to find you and stuff? Sure, yeah. Um, it's I called, think we're at the two-hour mark. Yeah, we can go as long as you want. The longer we go, the more listens we get. It's weird. Sure. Um, I mean, I do have to get to work, but... um, Yeah, totally. um, Yeah. uh, Is it called SciCast? What's that? Your podcast, is it called SciCast? No, it's called an Oddcast. An Oddcast. Awesome. 
we got the Sanctum Oddcat uh, because I um, I'm one of the uh, directors of Sanctum Psychedelia, which is in uh, a psychedelics uh, nonprofit uh, harm reduction education uh, organization in Portland. Um, we also are currently building the largest repository of psychedelic literature that we're, we're digitizing. I've been studying psychedelic history for 20 years, and I have just hundreds of, of academic papers on everything from peyote use in the late 1800s to CIA mind control tests in the 1950s and you know, up to the present day, you know, tests that are going on today. Um, and that can be found at sanctum.org. That's P-S-A-N-C-T-U-M.org, uh, along with um, other articles and things like that uh, are up there as well. But the library is our, our main. Amazing. Um, what's that? That's amazing that you're putting all this stuff in one place. Yeah, yeah, it's it's going to be like literally by the time we're done, it will be the largest psychedelic library on planet Earth. That, like with no other library even coming close. I had no idea you're doing that. That is so needed. Let me let me thank you on behalf of humankind, brother. Uh, you're welcome on behalf of humankind, brother. That's what that's what they call it. That's what we call the great work. Yeah, that's a, that's a true great work you're doing there. Yeah, thank you. It's it's a labor of love uh, for certain. Um, yeah, most of the stuff is, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, we, we do accept donations, but the library is free for everybody. But if you have, you know, I know right now it's difficult because people have been working with coronavirus going on. But if you have two bucks to donate, please feel free. If not, no worries. Enjoy the library. Yeah, that's awesome. I'll definitely be looking into that more. Uh, yeah, you can also find us on Instagram, Sanctum Psychedelia, or um, if you go to uh, YouTube, uh and just put Sanctum Psychedelia in the, uh, the the search engine or Psychedelic Historian, and then my personal page will come up. Um, that's on Instagram, a Psychedelic Historian, YouTube, a Psychedelic Historian, Facebook, Psychedelic Historian. Awesome, yeah. It's a good handle, too. Thank uh, you. Yeah, I was, I was curious how, how uh, to talk to you and really get a, a better sense of your background and knowledge base, and it's a, it's a beautiful knowledge base you have, sir. <laughs> oh, well, likewise, dude. You're 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 killing it with languages, man. Like we, we definitely got to get you on the odd cast. Yeah. we're gonna you got to keep this conversation going for sure. Yeah, you can see why why me and Chris Bennett hit it off right away. Um, yes, I get it. <laughs> I, I think complementary knowledge bases are such a powerful thing to bring together because, like, having for me, I'm mainly a philosophy and theology background, but because I come from a Maharishi childhood, I went to Waldorf school for 13 years. Like really? Rudolf Steiner Walter School. Oh yeah, man! I, I've never been to a public school in my life. Uh, wow. So, like you know, very unique uh, background and very complementary to the stuff that people like Chris Bennett and yourself and and other scholars know. And when we all talk, we come, we realize these little things, these little gaps we had that all of a sudden stuff more starts to make sense. It's like you know, it's like when I when I investigated PizzaGate and I was like, oh shit. Tons of stuff that never made sense starts to make a creepy kind of sense. I don't know if it's true. It's a conspiracy theory. Who knows? It's fun to look at. Like, aliens are fun to talk about. But until we know, we don't know. Um, But, you know, the puzzle pieces, when you start to realize they might be part of the same box, all belong in the same box, to eventually make a picture, is fascinating. And, uh, yeah, occultism and magic is no exception to that. No, not at all. 
I, I'm starting uh, Jason Augustus Newcomb's uh, Goetia course or Goetia or Goetia course today, a seven-day master class taught by Ashen Chassan and a bunch of other uh, Rufus Opus and other experts on Solomonic magic. When it's one of the few things I never learned in the in the Golden Dawn, so I'm very excited to uh, learn something new. I did his Anakian master class last month, and that that gave me views of Enochian magic that I hadn't learned because I learned the GD method. I didn't learn the pure D method. I didn't learn uh, a hybrid OTO version or anything like that. So got to keep learning. And there's so much good work being done in these obscure areas. I, it's amazing. And people need to know more about it because you see a lot online, people talking in our fields. I'm sure you've encountered this all the time because you're on Instagram, people thinking that there aren't these serious investigators or practitioners or experts out there getting lost in all the frauds and all the people who just are sort of picture picture book occultists and charlatans uh, for lack of a better word picture book occultists i love that yeah like you know i've got all these images and if you look at them long enough it all makes sense like i don't think that's how it works no, me neither. There's a, there's a discipline that comes with it. I mean, if if anything, magic is a discipline, and you know you gotta you gotta strengthen that discipline muscle if you really want to see results. And I think you know too often people mix up magic with miracle, mm. and miracles aren't that's the miracles are not real. No, the original he, word meant wonder. They it should they should be called wonders. Yeah, sure. But I mean, in the way of how we use them today, like when we say miracle, what you know, we, what what people. To mean. It seems like um, we think of a supernatural intervention in natural yeah. reality, but even that's one of the things that I learned from my in Hebrew Bible studies was they didn't mean that in the ancient Near Eastern world. It didn't mean that in Hebrew culture, and they didn't even use a word that was cognate with miracle. They used a word that was cognate with wonder, which meant like the lightning is a wonder, we, as in we don't understand how this is happening, but it is happening. Yes, exactly, exactly. But again, I, I mean, it, it's not people. supernatural; it's natural. Like yes. whatever the priest did in the holy of holies, whatever smoke that was, he put his head in. It wasn't supernatural. He spoke to God, and that God was spoken to in a natural way, and was maybe even a natural God. And it was if, cannabis. It's not the- nature itself. Yeah, cannabis. Well, Chris says acacia leaves, and therefore DMT, which is I prefer that theory, but that's my bias. Well, and it, it could very well be Acacia, but again, we, we have solid archaeological evidence for cannabis. So definitely, there, yeah, well, and if you had both, why not? Like, I, I've definitely, I've put the main way, I've, I've done DMT about 20 times, and I usually put it on, sandwich it in between some wheat in a bong. Yeah, yeah, that's how we do it too over here. Yeah, though I've noticed that other plants have had caused it to have different effects, and doing it just pure it's every, it's so complicated. We could, we could do a three-hour talk just on DMT, I'm sure. Yeah, we're probably going to do that when we get you on the podcast. <laughs> Ooh, giddy up! I'll, yeah, so I, I've been documenting like almost uh, twenty experiences so far. Um, uh, obviously, I did this when I was in countries where it's legal, of course. Of course, of course. Um, and uh, you know, I'm sometimes I do I, I'm experimenting with different ways of incorporating different uh, ritual techniques or ceremonial magic things. Sometimes I'll take go in with a paradigm, as we would say in chaos magic. I'll go in with a paradigm. And the DMT spirits will just basically bitch slap it out of my being and be like, that doesn't make any sense here. That's silly. Like, leave those conceptions behind. You're in, you're in Wonderland, man. Come on. Like, you know, they'll do a little dance and then send me off into space. And I'm like, oh, shit. And, you know, and I'm gone. Um, and sometimes, like last time, 
I actually had what I would call the vision of Ezekiel, and it dumbfounded me. And I fought for it, and I used grade signs and passwords and a ma my true magical name as a, an adept in the, you know, invisible college to penetrate layers, and it let me do it, and it challenged me. And when I got to that face of God, that full vision of Ezekiel, exactly as I could have, even more than I could have imagined it described, it was like seeing the face of this metatronic throne of God, and it questioned me in a way that I felt that if I wasn't, didn't drop all the bullshit of my being and be completely just a pure heart, I felt like I might be doomed in some way, you know? Like it was time, it was get real, because you, you pushed to this place, and now you got to be naked. Yeah, which no, was, that, that was intense because all a bunch of ex the the ten times before that I had gone to some very dark places. Yeah, anyway. I've never gone to a dark place with it. Um, First time with Chris, I intentionally did. I shot up to this beautiful heavenly realm, started invoking an Egyptian god. That worked really well, and I was so happy there. I was like, okay, let's let's follow Jesus and and go into some dark place. And boy, did I go to a dark fucking place. What Egyptian god did you invoke? I was invoking um, Maat. And uh, and then I started to invoke Thoth when all of a sudden I was like, you know what? This is what I've been doing my whole life. Let's look in the basement. And I saw a dark basement, and they said some dark things to me and made me some dark, dark offers, bro. <laughs> I'll tell. I'll save that for your podcast. Give some people, all my listeners, an exciting reason to uh, listen. Go to your website when we do that episode. That'll be great, man. Cool. That's awesome. Do you have to get going? We've actually gone over two hours, which I'm very flattered that you took the time to spend with me because you're obviously so busy. Yeah, I honestly, I just noticed like a, a few minutes ago that we've gone over two hours. Like, you doing bullshitting. So, like, I didn't, yeah, I, I do have to get some work done. Um, but I didn't even notice that until a few moments ago. Yeah, pretty awesome. Well, that's the great thing about, about this. I'm, I love that this form of communication is, is revolutionizing and becoming uh, not just uh, common, but expected. Like the only comments I get about my podcast are from people saying, I really love those super long, full-length episodes. Like they're referring to three-plus hours as full-length. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I we live in a time where actually the majority of human beings want to hear two people have a candid, casual conversation about something for over three hours. And sometimes if it's less than an hour and a half, they're just not interested. It's like, ah, oh, come on, hour and a half? All you have time to do is basically tell people your websites and books and that's it. Yeah, yeah. But I, you know why? I think that's because we're we're bombarded every day with sound bites and bullshit and these <laughs> little commercials and nonsense. And we want more. Like, like that's why the, these long-form podcasts are so popular. I mean, these things are more like... More, more people listen to podcasts than listen to the fucking news, yeah. which is a good thing because the news is just bullshit. It's just and people, <laughs> so we don't even like. I don't listen to that. I haven't even owned a TV in I don't know, twenty some odd years. Like I just because it's bullshit and it's poisonous bullshit. So yeah. just keep it out of my life. Being a Canadian in undergrad, I focused on philology, semiotics, and so I and I was mostly doing seminars based on Chomsky and McLuhan's works, as well as Umberto Eco and uh, and Claude Levi Strauss, of course, for anthropological angles. Um, so we 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 would study commercials and all of that stuff, and those skills were very useful because my work in advertising is what allowed me to pay for grad school because there's no other work you could do where you're making like ten grand a month, right? Um, and uh, 
to become yeah. aware of how they manufacture consent and manufacture attention, and now we're manufacturing outrage. Yes. We're manufacturing racism where it doesn't exist. We've changed yeah. the definition of racism in the dictionary so that it's actually circular. Well, they haven't changed. I know they changed the definition, but they haven't in the dictionary. They've oh, changed is, like, yeah. like people that buy into that ideology have changed it for themselves. But so far as I know, they haven't changed the actual. Like you mean when you say they change the definition? Do you mean like they say now that only certain people can be racist and other people cannot be? The added, I believe, I don't know if it's maybe it's not the dictionary, but uh, the definition I was shown it is in. They have there is an official change in some official book, whatever. Um, you and I are not official people, so who cares, yeah. right? We're talking to a very different kind of human being, and but the, there's a definition that's added that racism is anything that participates in a system that is racist yeah that's not that's not racism like that no. that's a bullshit definition because every system's always caused these problems and always will and like jesus said again the, again like don't get too caught up in the flaws of this world because the flaws are not going to go away like unfortunately i don't think humans are ever going to stop killing each other no they're not and really like we're always going to have bigots too yeah we're gonna have that and what what we need to stop doing is labeling everybody who not what these these horrible words are we need to stop calling them horrible words like they're not that like it's it gets to a point where words lose all their meaning like if you're gonna say that everything that participates like you were saying like if it participates in a racist then it is it's like well yeah you're right that's just circular that's a non like yeah yeah, I think Hitchens said best, like, uh, arguments that explain everything explain nothing. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah, like, you know, and there are always going to be actual racists out there, and we should actually let them speak freely because we want to know who they are. We want to know where they are so that we can be like, okay, not you. <laughs> yeah, I guess my question, though, is like, what do you, like, if you're the kind of person that works around, walk around calling everybody, like, a racist, what are you going to call an actual white supremacist when you meet them? Um, I think they're calling them woke. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just joking. But, yeah, no, you, you probably earlier heard my uh, one of the guys in the house here yell at me through the door for smoking weed. And I, I thought a little sacrament would be appropriate given who my illustrious guest was on the podcast today. Um, but he yelled at me through the door. But also, you know, yesterday I walked in on him saying to someone else, N-words love to use the N-word. He didn't say black people love to use the N-word. He said wow. N-words love to use the N-word. And I would just look at him. He's, he's 68 and he's an old white dude. And he always like pretends to be all spiritual and like a gypsy and, and bohemian. But, you know, people show who they really are when they're when they think they're not being watched or heard. Yeah. Like I'd and actually that's never... real racism. Yeah, like, I, I've never used that word in my life because I've never had a need to, but I don't think that, like, so you're you're smoking weed and that's a problem and this person is using that disgusting word and that isn't, like, that's your backward-ass priorities. Yeah, yeah, you know, and uh, it's ironic, too, because they throw, anytime I put a chair outside, they always throw it away or... If I leave, you know, I've been assaulted here a bunch of times because there's it's a lot of messed up people around me. I'm trying to get out. Trust me. Um, what, what part of Cal are you in again? Um, yeah, because of what I said, let's just uh, not make that public right now gotcha, for my gotcha. safety until I'm out of here. Sounds good, brother. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to trying to lay low and just not get, uh, uh, you know, 
no, of course. too many more times. No, yeah. of course. <laughs> they came into my room and stole my desk the other day and threw it out, so... Jeez. Oh yeah, there's people. People think they have the right to do whatever they want anymore. And like the, these guys call me a Trump supporter, and that's only because I'm critical of ideas. I don't really care about the people or the political parties, especially as a Canadian. It's not my. It's not my fight, man. I've got. I've, we've got our own good-looking idiot idiot to deal with up in Canada. Exactly. You know, he's basically just as dumb as the guy down here, and you know. So people aren't paying attention to the atrocities he's committing against the First Nations right now. It's it's really evil. No, I know. That's why I like to say that Trudeau is just Donald Trump with a Hello Kitty backpack. I say with a six-pack, but I like yours better. Yeah. <laughs> You've seen him on YouTube doing his party trick of falling downstairs? No, I oh, haven't. His party trick his whole life has been to pretend to be talking to someone, and then or to be talking to someone, and then without them knowing what he's going to do, he falls down the stairs. Wow. And you wow. should, yeah, you can see him do it at an actual party. It's hilarious. Like, you know, the French Canadians, they're uh, crazy people. So, whatever. Le Quebecois, la la la. And it's like, that's cool, whatever. But he's sort of a dumb dumb. Uh, maybe he's not dumb, but he's doing atrocious things to the people who were on this land before us. So, that's what pisses me the fuck off. Yeah, I mean, well, that would piss off any good person. I mean, that's, like, one of the... Here, we're finally starting to give some of the land back. Like, part of Oklahoma, from what I understood, just went back to... some I know. People's. Yeah. They, they I'm surprised more people aren't talking about that, actually. Yeah. Uh, I saw a little bit about it, and I was really excited about it. And I'm like, I'm all for giving land back. It was like, yeah, give, like, if this is their land, like, we can, like, let's all just coexist peacefully. Like, I don't give a shit. Like... It doesn't, I don't need to live in America, you know what I mean? Like, if this is, if the the land I'm on right now, you know, is given back, is ceded back to the indigenous peoples, which it should be, and they allow me to stay here, I'll, I'm fine with that, you know? Like, like I don't know, I, I won't be able to start getting along a little bit more. Yeah, it pisses me off. Like, I did this radio show at uh, at, at UBC, at my old alma mater, right? And uh, I, I expressed my... my my dislike of the fact that we're giving thanks to the First Nations whose land we're on and smudging and waving feathers while refusing to give them the money they're asking for the rent, the loan for, for another hundred years extension because they, they want more money than the dollar we gave them the first time a hundred years ago. <laughs> and we're like, they're like, we want a hundred million dollars for, for 20 years. And we're like, no, we're just going to make laws that let us keep your land for our, for our, Point Grey golf courses and stuff like that. Oh, that's that's sick. Yeah, it's super sick, man. And I'm I have a problem with like it. Sort of seems like stupid to be thanking these people for us not like thanking them. They're not letting us. It's it's like if I rob you and thank and like thanks, man, for the for the loan as I run off with your wallet and your your yeah. skateboard or whatever. Yeah, sure. No, exactly. Thanks, it, dude. I really appreciate it. Shout out. You know, yeah. as you're sitting there with a bruised eye, like, what? What? Oh, the hypocrisy, man. So, yeah, the uh, you know, but yeah, but down here in the States, it's like any sort of critical argument about any idea even gets you labeled the opposite of what that person considers themselves to be. It's a very strange dualism that, you know, from my, my, my love, my a lot of my life was lived through the Kabbalistic lens. The whole point of that system is to not fall to the white or the black pillar, yachin or boaz, mercy or severity, but to walk the middle path of mildness, the path of consciousness and ascension. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. 
it's weird to, that we have a country here, which is actually a country I love. I love America. Most of my dear friends are American, and you know, I think there's so many great things about this place, but yet it's in this bifurcated, dualistic system that is basically designed to cause strife and, and, and contention. No, it is. And it's most of it is just driven by our media. Like, and that's one of the big problems we have is we have a very dishonest media that doesn't really care about reporting what's going on. They care about stirring people up and causing controversy. And that's, you know, until you, we can convince people that it's like, hey, that talking head that you like is really like just a piece of shit that's manipulating you. But people don't want to hear that because... You know, we're not... Confirms their biases and stuff. Yeah, of course. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, well, that's not how you grow. You have to challenge your bias if you want to grow. So we, I, think, I think we definitely do need... Um, I'm, I'm sort of... I'm not really big into regulation of behavior or laws, but, you know, we've lost the common, uh, the common sort of, you know, Twitter space, Facebook space. All these things have become so, uh, so uh, limited. Um we see, and and media has become driven by clicks and attention, and therefore, you see, advertising itself has has sort of totalized our culture, driving yeah media, which has then driven politics. All of this springing from this consumerism, essentially, at the end of the day, or this bottom line desire um, that uh, it seems to just be eating, destroying us. No, it is destroying us, and unfortunately, both sides think that they have some kind of moral obligation to extremism, and it's like they actually don't, and that's the problem. Like, they don't realize that it's like that they're actually what the problem is. Like, so much of this stuff is created by extremists, so if the extremists would go away on both sides, we wouldn't have these problems. Yeah. Yeah, I was sitting having a dinner with a bunch of seminarians, um, you know, who who, who uh, were excited to talk to me because I, you know, I graduated 15 years before them and they wanted to hear about the good old guard of teachers because I had teachers who were taught by famous people, like, because they were at the end of their careers when I when it was there. So, like, you know, my, my main supervisor was a protege of Richard Niebuhr, the famous American ethicist. Um, mm -hmm. She also had studied with my, my New Testament scholar, uh, Lloyd Gaston, revolutionized Pauline understanding through language, like he did this whole thing on the Greek meaning of righteousness of Christ and the issues around the genitive form that changed how we theology is interpreted universally. And uh, you know, so I had these these great teachers. I was talking with these students, and and one of them said, "Well, he said it doesn't matter what what language you, how much language you know, the Bible still says gays are bad." And I looked at him sitting at the head of this table, and I didn't mind that I was at, that there was a few conservative Christians there. I'm not going to not have dinner with someone because they have different beliefs than me, right? No. And and I was like, well, I was like, I said to him, I was like, you know, um, you can believe that, and. Uh, it doesn't. I just. I. I still don't think that's a theologically correct way to to relate to the world. I don't think that we uh, should interpret the scriptures that way or give that scripture the power that it had back in that time and place. And he said, "Well, you're wrong." And I said, "Well, fortunately, because we're Christians, we can love each other anyway." 
Yeah. You um, know, and, and he didn't like that at all, but everyone else thought it was great. <laughs> they well, just laughed. Well, because we need to learn to talk with people we disagree with and not hate them and want them dead. Well, that's one of the problems. And again, I was saying, like, one, one of the big problems today is that people... It's like if if you disagree with certain forms of extremism, that you should be wiped out of your life, that you should be wiped out of culture, that you should be wiped out of your job. And it's like that person isn't really the dangerous person. You people trying to wipe people off the planet is actually what I find to be disturbing. That's disturbing to me. Like, I don't... Yeah, if I disagree with you, like, unless you're, like, spouting something that is just, you know, like, if what you're saying is that we need to kill every firstborn Jew because you're a Nazi, well, that's not a disagreement. We have a we have a moral problem there. Right. You know what I mean? But most people are not saying that. And most people that I disagree with, you know, we, we disagree over flavors of ice cream, you know? Like, you know, it, it's not... It's not as I just things. I don't think things are as bad as they are projected to be, and as they are made out to be by the media. I think that so much of this is driven by the media because it's the only way they can keep their pathetic jobs. Because the only thing the journalist did is a failed author. It's sort of like actually the new fascism, actually. No, it is. Yeah. It's it's a bunch of people that suck at life. Um, <laughs> no, really, honestly, like, and they can't even write anymore. It's like, if you read any of these articles that like, come up on like, Facebook or, or uh, uh, Instagram or anything, it's like you start reading. It's like, holy shit, you need to fucking go back to your, like, grammar school. Like, yep. this is pathetic. And it's like, and on top of which, it's like, you have these people, it's like, okay, you got your degree in journalism, which is a bullshit degree to start with. And it's like, you're trying, you're, you're trying to tell me something in geopolitics when you never even took a political science course and you failed all your math classes. And you want to talk to me about global economics? What the fuck are you talking about? Well, that's the problem with degrees. The degrees are in one sense, bullshit, because the degree doesn't tell you what that person learned. A person who got a C-plus in their master's in psychology probably isn't very good at it. Um, but they'll still have the degree, so they'll look equivalent to someone, especially if they went to someone like uh, Harvard. Like, So I, I met someone who did their MDiv at Harvard Divinity School, and when she met me, I was really excited to meet her, too, at a conference of the Association of the Study of Esotericism in East Lansing. She, her name was Siobhan Houston. She's a independent Catholic priest from the, the Order of Glastonbury and really amazing. And she went to Harvard Divinity School. I was excited to talk to her. When she when I, she said, where did you do your MDiv? I said VST, Vancouver School of Theology, or as some people, conservatives like to call it, the Vancouver School of Heresy. <laughs> um, but it has some of the best teachers. It was the only, uh, she was like, oh my God, I'm so jealous. I'm like, you're jealous of where I went. She's like, did you have this teacher, this teacher, this teacher, and this teacher? I'm like, yeah. She's like, well, we just had to read their works and talk about them. You actually studied with them. I was like, holy shit. Yeah. I was like, that's really amazing. I never knew my school was that good. Recently, I w- but I was lucky, I guess. Um, I recently watched the entire Biblical Studies series uh, and, and Ancient Near Eastern Studies from Yale, which they put online. It's really good. And it blew me away that pretty much almost everything he said over this 15 hours 
I already knew. I was like, holy shit, there is there is this con- coherence uh, bit of knowledge out there that you can acquire. You, and having a degree doesn't mean you've acquired it. That's just not the case, unfortunately. Yeah. And so, you know, it's always about what did you learn? Like, and if you talk to someone, if you read their books, then you know what they learned. That's what should matter. So people should be autodidacts. I always was. Um, you know, uh, we should encourage learning in a big way because as much as the academic and grade school system needs to be overhauled, it's not going to happen overnight. No, no, it's not. Yeah. That's why I think conversations like this are so important. No, me too. And that's, that's why I love having them. And that's why I think a lot of people really like listening to them. It's, I mean, it's mostly what I listen to now is just in, you know, long form podcast interviews with just people I find interesting. Yeah, man. Yeah, I know. And it is the majority of people. I mean, whenever anyone calls Joe Rogan a a somewhat popular podcast, it's the most listened to source of news in the planet. Yeah. Like hour by hour, minute by minute. And I listen to it. People always think uh, people who are critical of him always say to me, they always say the same criticism. Oh, how could you listen to what that guy has to say? I'm like, I have very little interest in what a comedian MMA fighter has to say. Uh, commentator has to say unless it makes me laugh if he makes me laugh that's that's the money shot but i'm interested in the people he talks to like paul fucking stamets yeah exactly dennis mckenna or all these other scientists i've never heard of the guy who book wrote the book chaos that just came out on manson and and the mk ultra stuff yeah yeah yeah. i i I know you're talking i watched the black guy who converted all these kkk leaders and grand wizards that's something i wouldn't have heard about from mainstream fucking cnn no, of course not, because that goes against the narrative that, you know, they, they don't want us knowing that, you know, people come together because they only make money by keeping us divided. That's all power comes to making sure that we, the people, all hate each other and stay divided so we could buy their bullshit products and buy their illusions of safety and buy their bumper stickers and their stupid red MAGA hats. And it's all just nonsense. And I just, I'm, I'm a non-participant. I'm like George Carlin, the, the, the late, great George Carlin. He just said, he said, I consider myself a non-participant. Like, I don't care about, I'm just watching this all unfold, but I don't participate. I'm, I just, I don't care about any of it. I care about spiritual truths. Um, uh, I care about justice, like real justice. Um, but beyond that, like, you know, fighting and arguing with people, like, I rarely go on social media anymore because yeah. I just find it to be so, it's just, it's pointless and stupid. Like, that's really the only way to put it. Like, and, and I, I'm upset with myself because as a person, I have definitely contributed to that pointlessness and that stupidity. I'm not just, I'm not a finger point. I always start off by pointing, pointing the finger at myself, you know, and it's like, and I've contributed to that. And one of the things that I realized is that the less I'm on social media, the better human being I am. Amen. Like, yeah, yeah so the I, second I don't need I, Facebook to talk to my mom, I will be gone from that platform completely. Yeah, I can't wait until I don't actually. I mean, I use it now just for like publishing purposes and letting people, you know, promotional purposes. Well, that's advertising. But, that's not being on the platform, really. Yeah, but sometimes, you know, I I'm weak. I'm still human. I get sucked into it, and I'll, I'll fall into what I call a case scroll. Mm-hmm. A case scroll, you know, like somebody's just mindlessly scrolling through Instagram or Facebook, and it's like, if you were to stop and ask them, like, what were the last five things you just saw they couldn't even be able to tell you? 
Yeah, no, I've had to, I've done a lot of work in the last few years to uh, pull away from all that stuff, and it's made me a, a lot more productive. Oh yeah, absolutely. I just and I also like it. It's making me stupid. Like that. <laughs> no, it really is. Like I don't think people appreciate how dumb social media actually makes you. Like it makes you really fucking dumb. At least it's certainly me. I, I'll only speak for myself, I guess, but. I find that if I like the more I'm off social media, it, because I, I and you know what there's there's actually a reason for this. I know I'm interrupting myself, but because <laughs> you're getting everything in these short little clips, and so it's like if all you're used to is reading you know, one paragraph of a post or a sentence, then when somebody hands you an actual book, your brain just isn't exercised enough to be able to you know handle it. Yeah, or at least case at least in my case i won't speak for anyone else that's definitely been true for me and i have a sneaking suspicion it's true for other people as well um and you know it's this this whole idea of people thinking that googling their opinion equals research what infuriating i always love uh, steve carell's bit from the office where he says wikipedia it's a place where you you get any information and you know you're getting the best information because anyone can go on there and say anything about any subject. So you're getting the broadest possible perspective and all the facts. You know, I was just I just last week quoted <laughs> that very line to a friend of mine as an example. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, Wikipedia is great because anyone can write anything they feel like. So you know you're always getting the right information. And it's funny because, you know, there's gatekeepers. So for a while I got it in my head I could I could help out Wikipedia and I tried to contribute and I changed, made some, some factual changes based on very solid evidence because it's facts. It, I didn't have any doubts about what I was changing because I, I had the notes. I, it's fact. But the gatekeepers changed it all back. And it turned out because they had an agenda and they told me. They're like, we don't like that. Really? Yeah. I tried to like... Um, on on the page about the Golden Dawn, I tried to change the the name. They had the Rose Cross Lama. I tried to say this is not actually the Rose Cross Lama of the Outer Order of the Golden Dawn. This is the Rose Cross Lama of the Inner Order of the Rosea Rubea at Oria Crucis. They are separate orders. One does govern the other, but you can be initiated into one without having gone through the other. So they really shouldn't be conflated. That's a very sure. important fact in detail. But the Thelemite, Alistair Crowley follower, who was has the powers to do what he wants, went through and changed not just that, but every single change I'd made and improvement I'd made everywhere across Wikipedia, even on stuff to do with WB Yeats, because that's what I wrote my first book on in 99. And I know that stuff. I really do. I've read letters he's never seen. I've read dissertations that are unpublished. I know this shit really well. And I was like, okay, I'm giving up on Wikipedia fucking for good now. Yeah, I got a funny story, a funny Wikipedia story as well. When I was writing, uh, the well, I finished The Witch's Ointment, and I sent it off to the, the publishers, and they're going through the editing process and all that. And in one case from Orleans in 1022 of the Common Era, a group of heretics were brought outside and put in a cottage, and the cottage was set on fire. Now, I received the manuscript, you know, my manuscript back from the editor with their suggestions, and they had changed that to say that the heretics were hanged. And I said, they were not hanged, they were put in a cottage, and the cottage was set on fire. So the editor sends back to me the Wikipedia page oh. about a particular trial and says to me, well, they're citing the very source you cite. <laughs> 
And so I sent her back the Latin, the, the Latin passage, <clears throat> and I said, tell me where the fuck it says these people were hanged. Oh, nice. You went Latin on their ass. I went Latin. Uh, I went, I literally went medieval on her ass. What the fuck are you went medieval on her ass? That's I amazing. went medieval on her ass. And, like, I love my editor. Like, she's a great editor. She does it. But it's like, yo, like, don't, like, it's really, really, really insulting that, like, I don't mind being challenged. You challenge me whatever you want. That's fine. Don't use Wikipedia. If you're going to challenge me, <laughs> show me the fucking respect of not using Wikipedia. Oh, I know colleges allow Wikipedia finally. They didn't when I was in, in grad school, but in undergrad, I know a lot of people are allowed to use Wikipedia as, as sources. And that's just, I mean, use it to find sources, sure. But then you got to go get the read the book, man. You got to read the you? fucking book. So here's uh, so I'm a former college professor, and I wouldn't allow my students. You, you're right because when I was in college and when I was in grad school, you could not. I mean, I wouldn't use it anyway. But you like they would say on the syllabus, no Wikipedia. Yeah. And I said the same thing to my students. I'm like, no, you cannot use Wikipedia, and they were complaining because all their other professors did. And then one, and it was so funny. You're gonna love this. Yeah. So, one of one of my students hands in a paper, and the citation just said, "Google it." <laughs> that is the most fucking awesome thing I've ever heard. I and hope so you I, gave that fucker an A. Wait, so and I asked him, and I said, um, "What the fuck is that?" I didn't say fuck. Like, what you know? What is this? And he said, "Well, you said we couldn't use Wikipedia." I'm like, you just say Google it. That doesn't work. That's, but I love that. I fucking yeah, love it. Now that is that is the kind of of mind though that we need because that is a very creative mind. That is that's no, called, that's that amazing. is true out of the box thinking. <laughs> I hope you're being sarcastic. <laughs> sort of, sort of, because like that's that is very creative. It's funny as fuck. It's definitely I don't know. It's just hilarious. Oh my oh, god! It was definitely funny, but he. <sighs> serious that's the thing like he wasn't being funny yeah i wish he had i wish he had just been messing with you i do oh me too like absolutely but it's like but that's you know but people think these days that that and look i like google i of course use google but there's a difference people the way way i see it is this google is just their starting point yeah too many people think it's the finish line it's like no it's all like you just yeah. said you know if you know yeah go to wikipedia and see what the sources are then go check the sources <laughs> you know go actually read the books like and i mean there's all kinds of bullshit on google like if you were to google the whole santa claus omnita muscaria mushroom thing you'd see you know 10 15 articles that all say it's true when it's total horseshit yeah yeah well yeah yeah there's a lot of stuff that yeah exactly Oh man! As I try to remind people to, to to put it as as clear as I possibly can, you we are living in a time when you can actually Google yourself into believing that the world is flat. That's uh, that's been proven, sadly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you can I mean. Google yourself, and you can Google yourself into believing that reptilians are in charge of Parliament. Like, yeah. Yeah, I, I know people who really believe that, and, uh, you know. Yeah, I do, too. I'll believe it when one of them takes off their skin face and shows me and shows us. Then I'll, then I'll know it's true. Up until then, it's it's a hypothesis or a best of theory. So, And we need to learn how to think. We need to, like, people say we should do away with universities. Well, maybe not, because 
we don't have any other place to learn critical methods or to learn argumentation or or or, or logic. Uh, really, we don't. We're certainly not teaching it in the public sector. It's not being. No one in no one in media does that. Um, podcasts are starting to teach people how to think. Like we're talking about, like in academia, you learn. You don't just learn to to re, re, uh, uh, to uh, duplicate what your teacher. If your teacher, in, if your professor is telling you just to repeat what they're teaching you about whether it's critical race theory or whatever other bullshit, right? Like right now, the word deconstruction has been redefined and it's being misused. The word structuralism isn't used properly either. The word feminism now means women are better than men. I've seen this in, on Netflix documentaries where they say it is proven. There's a Netflix documentary out there that says it has proven that women are better than men and it shows you the series of tests and then it says and that's because the arguments are beyond circular and absurd of course right like and the idea is is just so crazy right i mean yeah i I mean i don't watch those those kinds of documentaries yeah i don't know why i did i think i was ill yeah i mean i consider myself uh, a feminist in the old guard sense in that i believe in equality yeah egalitarianism Yes, exactly. That's what it's uh, and That's what yeah, it always I, meant. I, what's that? That's what the word always meant. Yeah, and it's just like, look, there's there is a certain recognition that women have been historically fucked over, and we do have to correct for a little bit of that. But it seems that what again, what the extremists do, and what the you know the critical theorists, which critical theory is total bullshit in my opinion, but what they want to do is they're not looking to end oppression; they're looking to change the role of the oppressor. Yes, absolutely. That's it. And it's like, well, that's not any better. Yeah. And it's, it's, a, like, it's a misuse of critical theory, which is just a methodology which can be used well or ba- bad or well, honestly. Okay, maybe I've just never I, – I haven't had the privilege of hearing or seeing somebody use critical theory in a way that I would consider intelligent or worthwhile. And that's, that's why every, that's, that's what my book is lauded for doing by academics if you ever want to – really dig into a heavy piece of meat it's called the ethics of understanding god but god is crossed out yeah i'd love that's your book yeah let me write that down i would that sounds exactly like yeah it's on nature politics and mystical dialogue and i i I make use of uh everything from nietzsche to derrida my specialties in hans Georg gadamer and hermeneutic and interpretation theory i was heavily influenced and my whole life have studied semiotics from Ferdinand de Saussure to Charles Sanders Peirce and of course the master Umberto Eco um, and I use those methodologies to make arguments the same way you would make any argument but you still want it to be true you you don't you can't just make shit up and change meanings to suit an agenda it doesn't work that way and as academics as scholars as scholars we know that the most important thing to do is argue against your your thesis oh yeah that's yeah. crucial people don't like to do that that's the critical thinking we need now more than ever can you, yeah. If you can't make the argument against what you're saying, you don't know what you're saying. Exactly. I, I, I agree with that 100%, man. Like, you, as uh, Hitchin said, you have to argue evidence against interest. Yeah. So my that book I'm telling you about, uh, I finished it in 2005. It got me into my, my doctorate. Um, I had two options. I had Nicholas Goodrick Clark study his Center for Esotericism at Wales Lampeter, which then moved to the Department of Esotericism at, at Exeter. And I chose that because uh, he was the expert on the occult roots of Nazism and the dangerous spiritual beliefs Hitler had that led to 
the nightmare of the Second World War and the Holocaust, and that was very important for me. And my other option was to go to Bush's America and do the Yale BS thing, um, and that was yeah, that was uh, a lot of doors open for me because I wrote that book. But I did not release that book till the public and not in paperback till just a couple months ago because I've been challenging it for the last fifteen years. Fifteen years I've been challenging my own work before I realized. Yeah, I, I, I wrote, I finished it when I was 25 in grad school, and now, only now, do I feel like I can really stand behind what I said, and I still do. Sure. Uh, what, give me the title one more oh, time. Oh, The then. Ethics of Understanding God. The Ethics of Understanding God. That's fucking yeah, awesome. I think it's on sale right now on Amazon. It's, uh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. It is what it is. Um, is there any other site besides Amazon? Like, I'm... No, Pretty no be, for, for financial reasons, everything I do is exclusively through Amazon. And okay. until something makes me a better offer on the bottom line, that's what I'm sticking with. Because uh, I do need to make a few dollars to eat now and then. No, of course. Oh, so it's on CreateSpace. No, it's not. It's on Amazon. But isn't... Uh, is it, so CreateSpace is, uh, was terminated years ago. Oh, they it was? Yeah. Oh, so is so. Who's the publisher? I guess is what I'm asking. Oh, I do everything independently. Yeah. So my next oh, book will probably will. I, I'm finally relenting and giving to a publisher, but they usually just don't pay as much money as I make on my own. Oh um, no, they don't. Yeah, they don't. But my new books on the Tea Party and the Splendor Solace album, based on the, my research in Berlin last year into the original Splendor Solace alchemical manuscript and looking at the song lyrics of the Tea Party, which is a Canadian uh, rock band. Oh, yeah, the sure. singer went opened for Page and Plants on Leaded Tour and learned the Golden Dawn rituals from Page himself. And now he's uh, married to an OTO priestess in Australia. We became friends years ago, and uh, so uh, there's a lot of esotericism in all of their song lyrics um, to an extent that even Jimmy Page is sort of was, was admiring of. Good shit, man. Yeah, I love, I love poetry, so, like, you know, um, exploring lyricism. Also, my, my, my first mentor was Dr. Idol Tim, who was famous for his PhD dissertation in the 70s, Yeats und Nietzsche. And uh, then he also wrote Die Lehre schon die Dichtung, which is the lyrical and poetry. So I have a heavy background in lyricism and poetic construction. And I thought, what a great chance to look at song lyrics and lyricism as a way of exploring esoteric ideas and spirituality through this seminal Canadian band's rock album. That's fucking awesome. So I'm dude. probably going to give that to a major publisher, and that's why it's been delayed year after year after year because I keep getting different offers. Um, I just, I just have a, you know, and if if it does get better distribution, and if the singer, if that is what the singer really is requiring, even though we talk about it um, to do the forward through EMI's label, then we might just have to. It's just, it's a shit show though. That's why it's been delayed for years. It would have been out three years ago if it wasn't for the shit show of mainstream publishing. I mean. And I have such problems with peer review. We should scholars should release what we schol, what we scholarly find, and the peer review process should be public criticism. Uh, I go back and forth on that. I would say because, like, so part the of danger me, is, is 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 prevent is preventing knowledge, certain knowledge from getting out, as as you can imagine, right? Sure, but I also I appreciate uh, that they're kind of. You know, as long as the gatekeepers aren't just flexing their muscles and are really just trying to filter out bullshit, then I'm okay with peer review. But peer review, in some cases, it worked against me really badly a few years ago. It's always worked uh, against me in academia. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and like, the, I mean, I ended up writing, so The Witch's Ointment, the, the first book I wrote, I started writing that as an article that I was giving to, um, 
uh, a journal run out of UPenn called Magic Ritual and Witchcraft, and um, the the head the editor in chief of the journal is he was the guy who in the 1970s determined that in at least in his own mind that there was no witches ointment. So he has this unrelenting bias against the witch's ointment and any scholarship in that field. And he just, I mean, other people, other uh, reviewers looked at it and they were like, hey, this is solid. Like, And he just was like, no, he put the kibosh on it because it was overturning his, you know, 40-year-old fucking outdated theory. Yeah, man. 20 years ago, the National Post did a a huge cover story on Waller schools and did 10 paragraphs that turned out on me, which was a hack attack. And I didn't realize they were going to just blatantly lie about everything I said and change everything I said. And as a result, I know for a fact, I've been told by a fact at academic conferences that that, that, that piece in my background in Waller school is the reason I was not accepted it to present at the conference. Dude, I've been, I've been literally told that I can't present at conferences because I'm a guy and that, you know, historically, too many guys have gotten to speak. Oh well, that's a that's that, a different issue. God. Yeah, that's and and you know, I'm all for making room for voices that haven't yeah. been heard. Like, I am all in favor of that. Yeah. The one thing I'm against, though, is this idea of getting people to speak based on nothing more than their immutable characteristics. Yeah. I don't mind if you need to replace me with, uh, like, let's just say a woman. That's fine. Go by all fucking means. Give that woman that platform. But just make sure she knows what she's talking about. Like, don't just give it to her because she's a woman. Give it to her because she's qualified and also a woman. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I don't have a problem with that. Uh, I, again, we're going. This takes us back to that extremist thinking, which is so dangerous. The literalism, the the extremism, the fundamentalism. I mean, Slavoj Žižek, one of my favorite scholars. I use him a lot in my work. Um, he's a hardcore materialist and atheist, and accused of Marxism a lot, though he's not. But he wrote a beautiful book about uh, Christianity called the a fragile absolute or why the christian legacy is worth fighting for and in the first few pages he says look the christian legacy is far too precious to be left to the fundamentalist freaks yes and i, yep. I still i that that just kicked me then his previous book was called the puppet and the dwarf the perverse core of christianity so he looks at all sides of it you know yeah. and there are so many sides to look at and that see that's the sign of a true intellect right there that he can write two books that are like pretty much you would think two different authors wrote them yeah he like zizek loves paul he doesn't love paul for the same reason a lot of fundamentalists love paul but that's the point you know i remember a roman catholic friend of mine was babysitting for some family once and she said that that these this family was like the most christian family she knew and was like really loud about their christianity and when she was putting the child to bed the child grabbed her necklace which had a cross on it and know what the child said and the child is like uh goes to christian school goes to all the bible camps all that stuff and you know what her, the child's question was why does what? your cross have a little man on it wow <laughs> the kid for 12 years of non-stop christian education had ne- didn't know what a crucifix was how do you study christianity and not know what a crucifix is yeah, no, it's it's interesting. What it, what's even more interesting is that have, if Jesus would have been given the chair, would everybody be walking around with little electric chair necklaces? Yeah, I always like to point out, man, that the pentagram was an early Christian symbol for Jesus, was used by early Christians as a symbol of Jesus. 
Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, man. Five-pointed star. It represents Adam Cadmon, the archetypal human being, which is Jesus is considered to have been the manifestation of God's self in the world as the, as the ideal human being, right? Adam Cadmon. Like, the this stuff is... Uh, yeah, man. Well, that we re- the church erased all the Gnostic scriptures as well, right? Thank God for the Dead Sea Scrolls and Nag Hammadi. Otherwise, we still wouldn't even have the complete corpus hermeticum texts. So, yep. thank God for archaeologists. We need we need to keep going with archaeology. That's a fascinating. They they still haven't finished excavating the the mountain of Anubis and the temple under that. Amazing. Yeah, but I, I would also like with the Nasa, especially the Nag Hammadi library. I agree with you. Um, there are some things, though, that people did get surprisingly correct, though, as far as Christian authors. Like, they certainly mocked the Gnostic beliefs, but in some ways they did, like, they did uh, reproduce them somewhat, you know, accurately. They really did. For sure. Uh, I'm rereading the source documents right now because someone actually uh, near here, near me handed gave me a book of the uh, early Gnostic source text. So I'm le- reading, like, the... You know the the critiques, uh, Irenaeus, and Simon, the stuff on Simon Magus and stuff. It's oh, fascinating. Cool. It's fascinating. But the church wiped out a lot of stuff, but it also preserved stuff. It did both. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, you, it, you ever heard of the Church of the Hermaphroditical Jesus? No, I that haven't. That was one of the most common forms of Christian worship for the first hundred years or two hundred years. Is that in the uh, the Nakamati Library? No, there's like no evidences of it. So like scholars, like unless you talk to like some top scholars in the field in that period of history. You will never hear about it. It's not written about. It's something that professors know, <laughs> and they'll like. By the way, the the range, the wide range of Christ, early Christianity is way more vast than you would ever imagine. They smashed all the stat because there's records of smashing statues that portrayed Jesus with both genitalia. Oh, yeah, wow. all kinds of crazy stuff. Like tons other, so many varieties. It wasn't like chocolate and vanilla. There, it was not even Neapolitan. It was fucking a thousand flavors of ice cream, bro. Oh, yeah, that's why even the word Gnostic is somewhat problematic. That's why we don't use it. I always use the word mystical or mystic because Gnostic is too overburdened. It's it's a good word, but it's overburdened. Yeah, I mean, it's it has its uses, but, like, when I get into the nitty-gritty of it, I, I usually like to let, like, if I'm giving a speech or something, yeah. or in my book, like, I'll, you know, I'll let them know I'm speaking about this Gnostic group, and this Gnostic yeah. group, so, again, very broad-term Gnostic, doesn't have anything to do with all these other groups that are also referred to as Gnostic. Exactly, and that's why it is a, it's a, just a tricky term. But and, and things that were tricky in the old church when they were deciding to exclude things like Gospel of Thomas, they excluded things they called dangerous. And what they meant by dangerous was actually tricky. They meant, like, you know, some of the miracles you saw Jesus doing in some of those texts were so supernaturalist or sorcerous that they felt the problem isn't that we don't understand why this is here. The problem is there's going to be a bunch of people who hear about this and think it's therefore okay to go and do this and that. And if they do this and that, we're all in trouble. Yeah. 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 So much. I, I love. My focus has always been on marginal, marginalized knowledge, uh, heresy. My PhD, which I didn't finish, was on heresy and hermeticism in the work of Evelyn Underhill. Um, uh, my, my PhD supervisor died in 2012, and his whole department got shut down by the University of Exeter. Everyone got deferred. Professors all lost their jobs. It was very sad, uh, oh. and a great loss because he was my real mentor. And uh, anyway. Um, but as a result of studying marginalized knowledge, you, you often don't get accepted into the mainstream academy or get recognized at conferences. That's why I, pre- I just presented in February at Pantheacon, and I, I, walked, I tried to walk out of my lecture hall because I 
thought I was in the wrong room because there was like over 200 people there waiting to hear me talk for an hour and a half. And I was like, what the fuck? Wow. Yeah. As you know, at academic conferences, there's like 20 people and half of them leave, leave the second you say something they disagree with. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess I've been lucky. I usually have a pretty full house uh, when I speak, except, you know, Pantheacon just will not let me speak there. I, I have Well, that was the last out. year. They're, they're done now. What's that? They're done now. They're not doing it anymore? No, the people who did it are have retired. Someone else is going to do a similar conference probably the same time of the year at the same place. But there's a lot of politics apparently in that in that scene. And Yeah, there must be because I've had so many people. Like I have a bunch of friends from the Bay Area. All of them, every year, like, yo, you gotta, you'll definitely get in. You'll definitely get in, you know, uh, you know, try to, you know, give a talk at PantheaCon. And every single year I'm rejected. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's well, this OTO Thelema guy here on the property who uh, got rejected, and he's applied, like, all the time. And But he's also not a, not like, he's not a, he's not like you or I, so I wasn't surprised he didn't. But he got so upset, he assaulted me. Really? Yep, he took a swing at me. He was so mad. Holy shit. Yeah, man. Yeah, I, mean, I would never, look, I mean, I get, get turned down things, but I also get, you know, accepted at things, but I would never take a swing at somebody because I got turned down to speak. That seems a little extreme. It's extreme times, man. It's extreme times. People feel the rights to, that if you disagree with them or if they can categorize you in, in a certain way, they have the right to do what they want to, including violence. We, we yeah. That's the world we live in now. But how, like, I could, I, I agree with you, but I, how old was that, is that dude? Uh, in, a, his, in his 50, early fifties. Yeah, see that. See that to me is surprising. If you were to say to me, "Oh, he was twenty-three," I was like, that, "I was like, man, how could you expect to get in?" I just got off a European lecture and book tour. I was just presenting at D, John D's Tower in Prague, then at the University of Canterbury to a PhD class, then doing book signing at Lance Books in London. Of course, they accepted me. I just got off tour, right? That's why I probably got accepted. And they never heard of me, and I have a long a body of serious work. So, you know, people need to, like, take some responsibility. Like, I take responsibility for the fact I'm not going to get into a lot of places because my background might be in theology or because I might have uh, Christian beliefs or because I might have non-Christian beliefs. That's a fact. The problem is, for me, of course, a lot of pagans hate me because I'm Christian. A lot of Christians hate me because I'm pagan. Ha! I I have something. I mean, I'm not Christian, but uh, a lot of pagans get mad at me that I don't have this anti-Christian stance. Yep, totally, totally. You know, Christians—they all want to save my soul, and it's like, ah. But uh, yeah, so that tour—I got to get your European tour manager because that sounds pretty like fucking amazing. I do everything myself. I learned how to tour from my time in the music business, and uh, and I just, I just, just go for it, man. I just, I just go for it. You know, I call places up, I negotiate, I show up. And the great thing about these days, about the good thing about social media, is I can hit a few buttons on a couple different platforms all at once, put three devices around me, and thousands of people we'll see what I do, if not in that moment, in the next couple of days. Oh, you're lucky. I, I, my, my stuff, I'm like the worst self-promoter ever. I mean, I've, I've set it's up tour in America. I had, and- I'm still getting over blocks around the self-promotion thing, man. It's so hard. I'm still, I'm behind on things I owe students and, and listeners and readers because I have a hard time doing stuff that's for me. It's just my, uh, my probably my upbringing, you know, my parents. No, I, me too. That's the same. Uh, it's again. I had a very old world upbringing, and it's like we weren't allowed to have, yeah. you know, these like promote ourselves. And I mean, so as one example, when um, no one in my family's ever read a single one of my books ever. And when 
my dad last time after my tour said, how was Europe? I said, it was really great. He's like, did you make much money? I'm like, well, uh, spent it all, but, you know, because it sort of ate up, you know, I didn't really profit, let's say. I definitely, I you always, usually lose money on tours, I find, even in music. Um, like, you know, I did a Cross Canada band tour. We made, uh, you know, we made $80,000, but or $50,000, but we spent eighty. you know? <laughs> um, and I said, you know, but the important thing was the lectures and the getting the information out there and getting my books out there. And his response, my good old-fashioned carpenter dad's response was, why would anyone ever want to listen to you talk? Huh. Good old yeah. 1950s, if you can't, if it's not a car or a house, then it doesn't matter, you know, that makes something with your hands or you're useless. Yeah, my uh, when my we I guess we have some our fathers are so much similar because when my twin brother was, it was I think what that it was the time as well it was the time when when my my twin brother was thirteen years old he won a gold medal in a martial arts competition wow. and my dad said to him ah gold medal but like hemorrhoids sooner or later every asshole gets them well your dad would certainly hate the uh, metal culture in the millennial generation. Oh, don't even get me started. You get a gold medal, and you get a gold medal, and you get a gold medal. There's no winners or losers. Yeah, it's like, like, well, if I have heart surgery, I want the guy who got the biggest gold medal. Yeah, I want that. No, I'm with you. (laughs) (laughs) So, wow, yeah, uh, our dads would get along. Yeah, it's just that blue-collar immigrant family work ethic thing, you know. Yeah, like they also, I, they also told me I play. I, I won a Street Fighter championship in Vancouver when I was ten, which shocked the Asian community. But my parents had just got divorced, so that's all I did for the entire year was extorted my divorced parents for extra allowance and uh, played Street Fighter. But my that you know they they all said you'll never make money playing video games; it'll rot your brain. And I remember so clearly thinking you are wrong. It's one of the first times I remember remember thinking my parents were wrong. You were wrong. I remember thinking if I played all I did was play video games for the rest of my life, I bet I'll become a millionaire. And I knew I wasn't going to. I did stop playing video games in my early teens to focus on hermetic magic and and all everything else I do. Um, but I they were wrong. You want to make money these days? Fucking make an unboxing channel on YouTube. Play video games. An unboxing channel? Oh, there's channel people make millions of dollars where they buy things online and then they open them up from the box and on live. That's it? Yeah. What? (laughs) All right. Just broke your brain, didn't I? So why am I working? Like, why am I doing (laughs) that? That's the question. All I have to do is start a YouTube channel where I take shit out of a box. Or make a web page for uh, sex toys with affiliate links and then just run Google ads to it. Make a couple grand a month doing that. Jesus. I'm, I mean, I, yeah, yeah, we're in the wrong field for money, man. We're not yeah. doing nothing. Anyone who thinks that we're, we're doing this for the money is uh, <laughs> sorely <laughs> <No>. mistaken. <laughs> Yeah. This is this is a spiritual work we are engaged in, and that has to be the goal and the reward. Yeah, it's the great work. It exactly. is the great fucking work, man. Great fucking work. I like that. The great fucking work. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I've done I've done things for money in my life, but like uh, I had I, I thought uh, doctors told me I was going to die by thirty five. They were wrong. Turns out I had celiac disease, and uh, but I still feel that life is short and precious, and I'm going to do what I want to do with the rest of my life, and not base it on uh, the bottom line. Well, 
that's smart, man. That's you know, you can't people take it with you, man. What's that? You can't take it with you. Yeah, and unfortunately, like we're lucky that we're still young and we haven't let, like we learned that lesson. Like there are people that are like I was uh, home. I was in New York visiting family a few years ago, and. Um, I was in, you know, my, uh, let's say, mid-30, maybe 34, 35, something like that. And um, I was talking to this guy that was at this, this barbecue my dad was throwing, and he was just saying how that, you know, he's in his 60s, and he finally started living for himself. And I'm like, oh, that's what I've been doing. And he was like, I, he's like, it's the greatest regret of my life that I figured out now not to just deal with bullshit and to just live my life the way I see fit. I'm like, yeah, dude, but at least you have some people literally die never having known that. So, yeah. Yeah. My dad did say one nice thing once he said, you know what? He said, the one thing I've always respected about you, and this was weird to hear him say, is that when you went to seminary and theology, but then didn't take a, take the opportunity, then didn't take the church they wanted to give you, up in northern BC and be a church, a, you know, be a, a church of vicar. He said, and you just went off to do your PhD. I realized he said that you did what you did because you wanted to learn what you learned. And he said, I always respected that you went to school just because you wanted to learn some cool things. So that's sort of contradictory. He's a contradictory guy, whatever. It's funny you said the the one nice thing my dad said. I don't think my dad has ever said one nice thing to me. Yeah. So you you got a leg up on me, my friend, for I mean, for having. I, you know, I'm exaggerating. He said other nice things at times. Like when I was young, I was excellent. I was the best player at sports, really coordinated, very intuitive. Um, he said nice things, but he's just saying so many bad things. Like I'm not welcome at Christmases or birthdays or weddings and stuff like that. You know, um, that's the no, divorce, I mean, divorce like, family for you. Like no exaggeration. My dad has never said a nice complimentary oh. thing to me in my life. Shit, man. Like never once. <laughs> I can't, I can't believe you're actually making me feel lucky to have my dad. <laughs> he was a good dude. Like I'm, I'm fortunate that he like he's not a bad dude. Like he definitely has his shortcomings, like all people. But it's just funny because, like, even this past Father's Day, I, you know, I call him up and we're talking, and um, you know, I'm hanging up the phone. I was like, all right, Dad, and uh, you know, I'm like, you know, I don't think I've ever said this to you. I'm like, I'm 39. I've never said this to you, but uh, I love you. And he said, oh, okay, great, bye bye. And he hung up. <laughs> Whoa! But, like I literally gave him the opportunity to say I love you, and he didn't take it. Wow. So no matter how bad you think one of your parent your parents are, there's always worse. There's always worse. That's one thing I keep saying during this whole COVID thing. No matter how shitty the situation I'm in is. There's homeless people and people out there that, that don't even have the time to let the world know how bad they have it right now because they're too busy just trying to not die. Yeah, dude. And, like, people that are not taking this shit seriously, it's like, like for me, it's not a question of the numbers. Like, it was just, oh, the regular flu kills more people or suicide kills more people. It's like, that's not the point of it for me. Yeah, for no. me, that you die alone with coronavirus there's no family no friends no wife no husband mom dad not even a goddamn priest or a rabbi if you're christian or jewish nothing you just die by your fucking self it's i cannot horrific. 
like, yeah, like that to me chills me to my fucking core. And it's like, if all I have to do is wear a goddamn mask and stay a little bit away from people for a little bit of time to prevent me from possibly making somebody die all by themselves in a hospital, then I can do that. I can wear a fucking mask for that. Yeah. Because yeah. that's, I, I mean, my heart breaks. Think about that. Like, I, I was doing a meditation the other day, and this was like, I shouldn't do it because it, it's scary and I don't want to manifest it, but I was putting myself in that perspective of a person dying alone from coronavirus, and I started to cry. It was so, it was like the saddest, most horrible thing. So, like, it's, I mean, not the most horrible, but it's, it's pretty fucking sad. Pretty fucking bad. Yeah, no, you want to talk about really horrible, let's talk about China and the Uyghurs. The what? The Uyghurs and the concentration camps in China. Oh, yeah, that whole fucking Dude, the thing. concentration camps there are rivaling Nazi Germany, and no one's talking about it, it seems. No, well, we're not allowed to talk about it. We're only allowed their to organs. Talk, we're only allowed to talk about bad things that white American people do. We're not That's allowed right. to talk about bad things that anybody else in the world does. So. Oh, man, this bigotry's got to end, man. It's got to end. Yeah, like, so I think, so as just a for example... I think Donald Trump is a fucking piece of shit. I think he's a bigot, a misogynist, and a racist. I think he's an absolute moron. No debate here. But when people say that he's the most dangerous person to have ever held office, (laughs) do you know a goddamn thing about the 20th century? Like, we're not talking that long ago. You ever heard of Stalin, the moron? Like, are you kidding? He's not the most, like, he's a piece of shit. He's certainly dangerous. But the most dangerous person in history? That's ridiculous. Dude, we got Xi Jinping, man. We got we got dangerous leaders, more dangerous than, than Trump on the planet right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But but we're not allowed to talk. We have to literally pretend that he's the most dangerous person to ever exist. Yeah, no, it's 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 a kind of deranged uh, uh, myopia, a lack of perspective. We need perspective, man. The internet gives us the tools to find out everything so uh, to me it just means our personal responsibility for what we learn is so much greater yes absolutely and that's again that whole thing we were talking about earlier that you know googling is not the starting point or excuse me is not the ending point especially post net neutrality being terminated right when was this oh it got terminated trump ended terminated net neutrality so that the results we see are controlled by the companies that pay uh, money to uh, internet service ISPs. Oh fuck! I had no good oh, thing I'm. Have, yeah, I've noticed it on Google, man. I do not. I have. To, I have to go down sometimes to hundred pages in to even start to find the stuff I am actually looking for. Yeah, net neutrality is over. John Oliver did two great series trying to prevent it, and there was it went viral because the hackers of the world were like, "This is a serious issue," and it was like the biggest episode ever, but it was on the most boring subject. But it's it still wasn't enough. We were not able to prevent that. And like I heard about, like here in the states, they passed that law where they where they can now go into anyone's Google history and computer and emails with with impunity now without a warrant. And the, the, the yeah, that passed. You know who the deciding vote? It passed by one vote, and the deciding vote was um, what's his name, Bernie Sanders. And when he was asked why he didn't show up to prevent that, he he said no comment. What? Bought and paid I, for, man. Bought and paid for. Well, I mean, I knew that. Look, I'm, here's the deal. I was a Bernie fan, but yeah, I gotta be honest. I I think that he is fucking pathetic at this point. Yeah. 
Yeah. So pathetic. Like, the, the, what the DNC did to him in 2016, and then he goes back and kisses their ass when they just did it again, and now he's supporting Biden? You know, fuck Bernie. I'm, I'm so over Bernie. He is such a pussy. It's, he's such a sellout. Fuck Bernie. Fans. It's all a sham that led me to investigating why this happened, because I was so shocked that they would just lie about the results to, to get Hillary instead of Bernie. And I looked into it until I discovered this thing called Project Mockingbird, which opened my eyes to a, a slightly enlarged perspective of how things are actually run. And this is, these are declassified CIA documents, so it's a real thing. It's a real thing. No, I know. It's just, it's unbelievable, but also that we're all going to roll over again because the truth of the matter is, look, I don't like Biden at all, but you bet your sweet ass I'm voting for him. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely voting for Biden because it, I we have to get rid of Trump. He's just he's too fucking incompetent. He's too evil. Like he's just an evil, self-centered fucking sociopath. So he's got to go. Not that again. In this case, Biden, I think, is the lesser of two evils. Except he's also kind of a pedophile. So how do we fucking wrap all that into it? You yeah, know what right? I mean? Well, I just what 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 floors me is like. How can these two guys be the best this country has to offer? They're not the best. They're they're the most fucking supported, and they have the money. That's all it is. They're not the that's 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 why there's this huge part of me that really does support the outrage going on right now in the protests because to a very large extent we've been expecting this for a long time and the system is so damaged that it I don't know how much longer it can last under these under the current sort of hegemonic totalitarian regime of and big tech is coming along and 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 joining in a way that is, is eradicated free speech almost entirely now. Yeah, it's weird. As, as we get more and more social media platforms, we're getting less and less free speech. How did free speech get politicized? What the fuck? Um, that's a great question. Like, uh, I'm that, from Canada, so when Bill C-23 hit, man, and compelled speech, and now we got comedians being sued for making jokes and losing the lawsuits, so everyone's stopping coming to Canada to do comedy, or they were before this. Like, that's crazy. Yeah, that's insanity. Like if um, you don't say describe me in the way I want you to describe me, I can have you arrested and put in jail. Again, these are people that grew up without friends. Uh, yeah. They just they grew up and they didn't they don't know what it's like to make fun of you. They don't know what that is. I bet yeah. <laughs> but they have a lot of followers. Yeah, they do. Um but they but those followers are the very people that are gonna turn their backs. Yeah. On the people, the first sign of trouble. A friend of mine had mentioned that th this kind of, you know, not so much the extreme right side, but more the extreme left. It's like a firing squad standing in a circle. So you're just you're just waiting for the bullet with your name on it. Like that's it. Yeah. Canadian clergy aren't allowed to say who they they vote for. You know, it's illegal. What's that? It's illegal for Canadian clergy like myself to say publicly t say who I would vote for in an election. Is that because it might sway people? Yeah, it's uh, considered an abuse of power and also a lack of responsibility towards your congregation. So that, that law in Canada still still exists. It did exist in the States, actually. Trump got rid of it. I can't. It's the Johnson Amendment or something like that. Trump got is the reason why uh, religious people now can publicly uh, uh, lobby politically. 
sure, yeah, because he, he, he removed any barriers because he wants that space. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I you know, it's, it's like, oh, these are all the people that are going to vote for me? All right, well, let me let me make life easier for them. Yeah, you know? exactly. So it works. It cuts both ways, though, you know. Yeah, is. yeah. I, I mean, I think that I'm not against – I don't know much about this, but, it, you know, it sounds – it sounds kind of reasonable if you're – but then it's like, well, what about celebrities? They get to talk about who they're voting for. Oh, they, yeah. They, well, that's the thing. These rules are – you know, they're not – they don't – none of the rules that uh, – they don't just don't apply to everyone. They apply – that's the problem. Yeah, that is the problem. You know, uh, the problem with capitalism is crony capitalism. Yep. Right? It's like how can you be – how can you let all these mom-and-pop stores, stores shut down but bail out the airlines? Yeah, and the fucking bank. I mean, they just did it again. They they yeah. gave the in, in here in America, they just gave all our fucking money to Wall Street when the coronavirus hit. It's like, and they they've given some Americans a paltry twelve hundred dollars to last us for the past four goddamn months. It's like, what the fuck already? Or three months, whatever it's been. It's like, are you kidding? An idiot thinks we're gonna vote for him in November? Yeah, who knows. I love that quote I saw by a commentator that said the stock markets is the stock market is just a graph of rich people's emotions. Ha! That's awesome. Because <laughs> awesome. how the hell could it be going up this whole time with, with mass unemployment and uh, recession? Oh, it's I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know, man. Since since COVID in March, I mean, I went from making a couple thousand a month to a couple hundred. Book sales plummeted by 99% and all my gigs I couldn't play gigs so gigs is an easy way for me to make a, a grand or two a month uh, just on a couple shows which uh, I'm lucky to have normally but that with that gone and with the uh, people not buying stuff online anymore it's tough times especially to be in a country where I don't get support from either my home government or this one so I need to get the fuck back out of back. I need to get out of Dodge bro yeah dude I feel so bad that you're stuck here it's fucking lame man I could go to England they let me in there and I have a room there with all my stuff in it but the problem is again no support there so it's it's a it's a cash it's a tricky scenario hopefully uh, the Canada border just locked down to the end of August I really hope they lift that at the end of August if not I might have to go to back to the UK for October um, which I'd rather go to Princeton you know yeah, sure. Yeah. But are you going to be okay on the plane, man? No, I'd have to drive up. I have to get hired. I, my old publisher, he he went bankrupt like most people and is li- driving Uber, living out of his car in San Diego. So I might be able to hire him to uh, drive me up there, give him like a grand. But they might not let him across the border, so that's another weird situation. Who knows what the fuck, man? I don't know. I've spoken with everyone that you could possibly speak to in Canada about this, and I keep, I will keep doing so. It's, it takes about three hours to get through to the supervisor at the Ministry of Health every time I call, but I keep up to date, and uh, I'm protected here by the district attorney in Sonoma County from eviction, which they keep trying to do to me. But the Sonoma, I text message with the ADA, so he's like, if anyone does anything, like you know attacks you again you just call 911 then text me so it's uh, precarious but it's it's what i got sure dude well i wish you so much luck with that man. i'm lucky to be in a state where and in a county where i'm being legally protected against the wishes of the retreat center that's shut down here and doesn't you know want tried to you know, hostilely get me out yeah dude yeah man it's it is what it is how can i not smoke weed at a time like this right man yeah, right. I have a friend that's actually stuck. Um, I think it's Thailand. She's she's been in Thailand since the beginning of coronavirus. 
Jesus. I had some friends who got stuck there when the king died, and his, the, the coup almost happened between the military general and this, the prince, the son. That was, uh, they, they were, like, confined to their rooms. All the white, uh, all white people were confined to their rooms in the hotels. It was crazy. Sure. Yeah, man. It's, this would be a shitty time. To be, it's a shitty time to be stuck in a foreign country, man, because not, not that governments are giving a lot of support, but uh, if, if your business has been affected, like a lot of ours has, you, you might need that social support. And uh, not to mention fa- friends and family, right? Fuck. It's, it's funny because you say, like, right now it sucks to be stuck in a foreign country. It also sucks to be stuck in America. So <laughs> you kind of got, you got a double whammy Thank because you. it's foreign and it's America. Like, <laughs> you know, no, it is. Like, like it's mm. just, we're the laughing stock of the fucking world right now. We're the laughing stock. We're the idiots that can't fucking take care of our citizens, yet we call ourselves fucking great. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's America, as my friend in England says, is eating itself, and the whole world is finally watching it get what it sort of deserved, is what yeah. she said. Um, she's also not a not a white person, so uh, of the opinion that doesn't really care that white people are afraid on the streets. It's like, yeah, you experienced that for a little bit, eh? Yeah, get a taste. Well, see again, like I, I'm, I'm more of well. You should nobody should be living in fear. Of course, that's what we all think, isn't it? You, well, except for this guy, it sounds like. No, it's it's more the opinion that like, it's more the opinion like you know this is the way things go, and it's like it's it's not really the time. We we touched on this. It's not really the time for for white men to be complaining about how hard their lives are. But what if somebody does have a hard life? I well, mean, that's like, true. I'm, that is valid. Like, I don't have a hard life, but, I mean, is somebody trying to tell me that there isn't a white dude out there that's poor, that has a wife, that has cancer, and maybe a sick child? Like, that guy's life isn't hard? This is why I always come back to the, the, the problem of all of this racial talk, period. I mean, what happened to fucking humanitarianism? Exactly. Like, well, seriously. That, why is every... It's like when a lot of people, like... Uh, I get bad, nasty messages sometimes on Instagram, people calling me like a cis bigot or something. I'm like, and I say, I'll respond. I'll say, why am I, why am I a bigot and what's a cis? Like, do you mean cyst? Am I a cyst? Like a cyst on society, on the human body? They're like, no, you're cis. And the proof is you don't even know what it is. That's how bigoted you are. I'm like, what? They're like, you're clearly not not fluid. I'm like, what? I don't know what you're talking about. This was a few, this was like a year and a half ago. I'm like, what are you talking about? I didn't know the words they were making up. And they're like, well, some people aren't just completely straight. I'm like, well, most of my friends in Vancouver probably uh, actually call them, refer to me as queer. I'm, I'm not queer. Uh, well, maybe I am. If they want to call me queer, that's up to them. It's, they can define me however they want. I'm definitely a, a straight person, but, you know, I've done a lot of acting, you know. <laughs> kiss plenty of dudes it's not a big deal to me um i'm not so maybe i am fluid but like to have this feel this right to define each other in terms of race in terms of uh um sexuality like i'm i'm just opposed to us defining each other period let people define themselves and let's not make it about these these s- small little things that that only are a tiny part of a greater whole yeah, but that's... Like human souls. We're all human souls. 
Yeah, but that's the, like we're we're but that's the time we're in right now where it's all compartmentalized and immutable. Like literally, this is the opposite of what Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King said. He said you judge somebody by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. But we're literally Ooh. doing the opposite of that. You now. nailed it. And why? So how have we just we just don't learn these lessons? It's why I, I studied with Nicholas uh, looking at the spiritual distortions that led to the Holocaust. Because if we forget these things, we do repeat them people don't realize these days i think um that nazism didn't grow out of capitalism it grew out of socialism it was a it was a mechanism for a few people to take power and and trick everyone into just like being good germans you know yeah i don't know much about that year in history like i i know you know the footnotes of yeah. it but i we know much about it. It's just, it's just not my area. Well, I recommend if you're ever in the for mood on a beach in the mood for a little light reading in Cabo, the occult roots of Nazism. Yeah, you or, had mentioned or Savitri the- Devi, Hitler's priestess, or uh, Black Sun, the Secret Rituals of the SS by Nicholas Goodrich Clark. Rest in peace, my dear friend. What was what was it? The, the black what? The, the uh, Black Sun, the Secret Rituals of the SS, or something. Yeah. Secret Rituals. Yeah, Black Sun. Look at Nicholas Goodrich Clark. Um, he also wrote a book on Blavatsky and some other stuff like that. You know, he was a, a gentleman and a scholar, and his wife's a lovely, lovely lady who I hope to go visit and connect with since I never have talked to her since his passing. And she's a homeopath, so they're 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 good people. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah, yeah. We, but so we forget how these 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 totalitarian and, and hateful regimes and uh, cultures spring up. We need to understand where they come from, like, and the danger of talk. I mean, I don't know anyone that I I don't know anyone really that doesn't uh, think that I don't know anyone that thinks that Black Lives don't matter. And I also don't know anyone that, that thinks only black lives matter. I mean, these things are obvious to me, but there's danger in the language that we use because then you're going to have people having marches for white lives matter. It's just how people do things. It's how they play the fucking game and manipulate to get what they want. And it's dangerous. They're dangerous games, man. Yeah, no, I agree. And I mean, the the the, the larger question about police brutality... It's a serious issue, man. I've had so many bad experiences with cops in Vancouver, it's not even funny. Really? Wow. I've been handcuffed so many times for smoking weed, I've had a gun held to my stomach. I've been told if I reported that they'd get me and they walked off with my license. Yeah, I had a gun pulled on me when I by a cop when yeah. I was 14, 13 or 14 around there. It was the yeah. first. That was the only time. Yeah. But yeah, a cop pulled a gun on me. Yeah, four like, cops oh. outside of 7-Eleven. Uh, I was... Uh, yeah, and when I went in to get the video footage from the Seven Eleven guy, he said they already took it. Wow. Yeah, man. I try, I've tried to report it, but you can't. There's no mechanism for doing that. Jesus. That's the downsides of Canada for you. Yeah, wow. It's pretty yeah, hard. Right. Right. Scary as fuck, man. Scary as fuck. You're handcuffed to a light post with a gun against your chest and nothing you can do. People just walk by. They don't stop. They weren't. No one would film. They're terrified. And this was like two years ago, three years ago. Yeah, it's weird. Or no, this when was I, six years ago. This was six, seven years ago. When I lived in Italy, um, they, I mean, they can just stop. They do stop and frisk over there. Yeah. It's like, yeah, they just like, we would just randomly be stopped by the federale. Whoa. would have to do ID and they would search us. And that was it. I mean, Whoa. they're only allowed to do that. 
Yeah. Man, that's weird. Oh yeah, definitely we need definitely we've always we need police reform for a long time. I'm, as much as I uh you know, sure most cops are good and we shouldn't judge them all by the bad ones, but it's it's been really bad for a really long time. Yeah, and the problem is also it's good cops protecting bad cops just makes more bad cops. And like the so, good cops, you know all the you know the, if you, have you ever looked at the stats of the cops who were fired because they tried to report bad cops? That's, no, that I, is breathtaking. Really? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. No, because there is that. There's a huge problem there, and with us, I don't know how it is in Canada, but here it seems that the problem is the police unions. That they just they protect these terrible people, and it's like why? And it's like oh, we're in the same club, and it's like yeah, but he just killed that guy for no fucking reason. It's like come on. Yeah, yeah. I, I, things could all this all this alchemy going on in the world right now could could lead us to some more chunks of gold or not. It's really up to us. Uh. Yeah. Well, this, this is where the the magician and the alchemist go to work, and we 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 keep it. You know, center between the polarities, as you were saying earlier, and that's true. And you know, we 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 have to be able to transmute this shit into gold somehow. The problem is most people don't know how magical they are, and most people don't know the kind of power that lies within themselves. And that's that's such a shame to me. Oh, I love I love how you just said that. Oh, that's well, beautiful, you. man. No, that's like that's it. That's like that's the that's the testament we need to all read. Yeah, so we that's what I, I kind of I hint at in microdosing magic and in psychedelic witch I'm gonna be even more, you know, obvious about it that it's like, you know, especially like we're living at a time like you go into like Facebook, like psychedelic groups, you'll have like actual psychonauts that are like busting a nut over politicians. And it's like, Oh my god, you fucking sell out. Like yeah. these there's still politicians. Like, do you realize that? Like, I don't care how much you think this person cares about you. They're still a politician. They're still a sociopath. <laughs> They're still going to say anything they can to get your vote. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. No, I, it's hard not to uh, feel that, man. It's, uh, yeah. It's weird when, when, uh, when I see people who are, really into spirituality or psychedelics sort of get hoodwinked into the the uh the game that is obviously being played on us by the powers that be yeah and that's actually one of andy lecture's main points in shroom is that and, and it's proving him correct it's that the psychedelic experience does change over time depending on the culture that is receiving it and Ooh. that's now, our culture has its head so far up its own asshole that it could seriously bump lines of its own fucking colon. And, like, because of that, like, we're literally bringing this kind of stupidity into the psychedelic space. Yeah, that's not good. It's not. Psychedelic space, like, the one thing it has remained over the ages is sacred. It, the, the context of that sacredness might have changed, but the sacredness of it hasn't, you know, that it does lead to these these realms of sacred, uh, you know, realm or, or whatever. Like, it's that hasn't changed much. Um, but today it's like people, like, they're using psychedelics to, like, just, 
you know, prove whatever the latest bullshit political trendy nonsense is. And it's like, how do you call yourself a psychonaut? Like, I don't know if you saw that recent article from Symposia about how MAPS is like supporting white supremacy. And it's like, it's the stupidest thing. Like, I was, I read it and I'm like, this is such dumbass shit right here. Like, and it, it's somebody that has, you know, this far leftist view of the world and is now trying to, you know, do the whole, like, you know, fit a square into a circle thing with it in the psychedelic realm. And it's just, I mean, it, it, it went down, it got, it caught a lot of criticism. So, like, a lot of really bad criticism. Um, you know, people were a little meaner than I think they needed to be. Hmm. Um, but it was like about this article and like, I know the, I don't know him, know him, but like, I know who he is. And it's like, he's just, he's just a very uneducated person with a very brainwashed perspective. Like he needs, he doesn't need to be made fun of. He needs to be educated and he needs to be loved. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, we we can't we can't grow if we can't teach each other. We can't teach each other if we don't come from a place of love. Yeah, and that's one of the struggles and that's one of the things that social media makes it really and that's why I've been staying off of it. Social media makes it very difficult to come from a place of love sometimes. It really does. Yeah. It's also hard to even be funny and uh, have humor, which is such a huge part of interaction. Um, right, like you were saying about having friends when you grow up and actually hang out with your friends every day because you didn't video games didn't exist, uh, phones didn't exist. You know, if my friend lived in New Zealand, he and I would have to write calligraphy, handwritten letters, or typewriter letters and send what the kids now call physical emails across the seas <laughs> on a plane, right? And uh, we got used to crit- our friends criticizing us and f- arguing points, and we would we would take turns arguing different points, and sometimes we would change our points of view because that's and we were able to do that because we knew that the other person never meant us ill or thought we were actually stupid, even if they're saying, "Yo, man, you're fucking dumb as shit." You think this yeah. this is this, and you know the person loves you. It's like slagging in in England or Ireland; they're only slagging you because they love you, and the harder they slag you, the more you know they love you. Yeah, exactly. And you're right about fucking your mom. That means they don't just love you. They fucking love you so much that they can get away with saying that and know that you don't that, you know, it's not true. They don't mean it. Yeah, of course. No, that's like exactly. I I, I agree totally. And I think the lack of yeah, online, we don't have tonality a lot of the times, especially in all these Twitter wars that people do. There's no tonality. You can't be facetious, sarcastic, or anything like that. And that's fine in in the sense that okay, so don't use those things because they don't con- they don't translate. But there's a problem when you have human interactions without humor anymore. I I agree totally, man. Like it, it's like humor is what brings us together, and that's why everybody's so divided right now because we're not allowed to be funny yeah. anymore. I mean, I've never so I saw Twitter once. About oh yeah, about nine or ten years ago, when um, I was uh, I was trying to get my first book published, not not the witches' ointment. I wrote a book before that, but it's not you know it's not in the psychedelic field. And so I had a literary agent, and she was like, oh well, you know, like you know, what's your Twitter? What's your uh, Facebook? I was like, I don't have either one of those. And she's like, well, I'll tell you right now, no publisher is going to touch your book unless you have some social media. So she's like, check them out. See which ones like you don't have to say like, I recommend getting both, but you don't have to get both, but you gotta get one. Mm. So 
I looked on Twitter. Uh, a friend of mine had a Twitter account. And, like, seriously, within 10 seconds, I was like, this is the stupidest pile of bullshit I've ever seen in my life. Yep. I looked at Facebook, and I'm like, this is the second biggest <laughs> pile of bullshit I've ever seen. So I went with Facebook because it was the second biggest pile of absolute bullshit that I've ever seen. And Twitter was the first. So you voted for the lesser of two evils. I went with the lesser of two evils, which in, in this case was Facebook. And now, I mean, I honestly, I can't wait to get to a point where I could just hire somebody to do social media for me. Like that, if I had a million dollars, that's all I would be like, yep, just, I don't even want to know it. I don't want to see anything on it. I'm going to create the content. You put it out there. I don't want to have anything to do, you know, with social media because I just despise it so much. Amen. Uh, we we all need to try and uh, you know that's it's that's been a shitty thing about the pandemic is it's taken it's pushed us even more into that sphere you know and we we're not hey, we're trying to deal with crises while not being allowed to interact with each other in any meaningful way. Exactly, and I got to be honest, like I think Zoom conferences totally suck. Yeah, yeah. people are doing the conferences over Zoom and or doing events over Zoom and. It's like I, a friend of mine up in Seattle, like, was having her birthday party over Zoom yesterday, and it's like I'm not like I'm sorry, but yeah. that's I have to I'm participate not- on these Eleusinian rites I'm involved in with the Magical Cauldron group, and I do it because. But as you could tell from today, us coordinating, I I'm not skilled with zoom i don't have the ability to record on it and i couldn't even log in when you sent me a link um it's because yeah i don't find it actually valuable um it's why i don't do these things with my students or any of the people i work with uh outside of that one thing which i just have to you know it just i just don't find it to be uh sufficient and maybe often do more harm than good yeah i mean I just I, I'm glad that they're there. The Zoom meetings are there for people that like them and that are feeling it, but or the conferences. But I haven't done any of that. I haven't signed up. I did um, one Zoom conference where it's like they wanted me to speak, and then it's like I had links, you know, and like the password to get into all the other talks because I was a speaker myself. I didn't go to any of them because I'm not just I'm just not interested in engaging with public events over a computer. I'm just not. Yeah, like this yeah. is okay because we got a bullshit. But even yeah. here, I, you and I were just in the same room sharing that joint. You know what I mean? Or yeah. sharing a pack talking about all this stuff. Yeah, that that would be ideal. I mean, my definitely, my my, I definitely would love to eventually do a in person podcast video thing. That would be great because I do like the format of just having casual conversations with someone. It's, I think it's the best thing. But in person yeah. better, especially like I, I can't wait to be able to do rituals with people again and do actually practice my spirituality with real human beings in person. Yeah. Um, I'm really – and I'm not being able to j- play with other musicians is killing my soul. Like playing music and jamming with people is what keeps me alive. It's my oxygen. And to have that completely removed from my life. Um, has been beyond devastating, honestly, psychologically to me. And yeah. I just and with friends yesterday for the first time since oh, coronavirus started. Yeah, so we, I, I run a weekly, or I did before coronavirus. I ran a, a weekly open mic in Portland. Uh, my partner and I, the Sanctum Open Mic, and um, it was actually it ended up being like I think the if not the biggest one of the three biggest open mics in the city, and. Um, and so we stopped doing it, and we, we 
people ask like you know would you do it over zoom so he did it a few times over zoom and i hated it and it just it didn't train like it was cool to see my friends but the energy just did not translate at all and so yesterday performance is all about energy what's that and performance is all about energy Exactly. So my my partner and I decided fuck it, and yesterday we just had it in our backyard. We socially distanced everybody. Yeah. We we uh we wiped it. We sanitized the microphone after every person went on. Um, you know, nobody could share joints or drinks. We did all the you know the CDC restrictions. We yeah. did it all coronavirus friendly or whatever, and it was amazing. It was like holy shit. We're gonna just do it this way from now. Yeah, we humans have the ability to be responsible. I mean, we ha- but if if we don't even give people the chance to be responsible, then you're gonna see problems, and that's what we're seeing. Like the spikes in Canada, the spikes of the virus here cur- caused our border to lock down harder. My sister went to drove my mom to the beach so she could and she was hoping my mom could get out and actually like see it because my mom's fighting cancer back home and i i really want to see her before she dies um fuck for the love of god and my she couldn't even get out of the car because there were so many hundreds of people at the beach and none of them were wearing masks she said she said she saw one out of 20 people wearing a mask and there was no distancing because there was too many people there and this was a couple months ago so no shit there's spikes happening and you know yeah, if we're not going to be responsible about how we do this, it's going to keep fucking fucking us up. Yeah, and didn't like New Zealand is already done with it? Like they had it for like a month. A lot and of now- countries are have have moved, have done it right. Yeah, it's because we we politicized it, man. We turned it into yeah. politics. Exactly. That's the thing. It's like, and that's what I say to people. Like, you know, all the the anti mass people. It's like, yo, this has nothing to do with your fucking personal liberties. You dumb fuck. Yeah. This is. Do you think that coronavirus cares about the fucking Bill of Rights or the Constitution? You idiot! Like, are you kidding? Yeah. This whole thing where it's like they think that it's some big victory that they're not wearing a mask. It's like, yeah, you have the freedom to not wear a mask, and by exercising that one freedom, you've lost all your other fucking freedoms. You've lost everything just for the right to not wear a fucking mask. Yeah. Yeah. Like, how stupid. Seriously, how stupid are are my fucking fellow country folk? It's ridiculous. Hey, it's same north of the border, man. Same thing. Like they opened up the restaurants and the bars. Uh, my sister uh, says uh, only a few, only some people wear masks. It's it's more common to see them without it. I I wear a mask everywhere. I cannot. Again, I put myself in that meditative place or that vi- excuse me that visualization place where. I was dying by myself of coronavirus in this, yeah. you know, dimly lit hospital room if covered not a in hallway. Plastic. What's that? If not a hallway of a hospital. Yeah, if not even a hallway, and it's just like uh, I cannot believe that somebody would not take the proper precautions to, for even the slightest chance that you could do that to somebody. Yeah. Like seriously, that is just. Like, my heart breaks, dude. Like, that is just the worst. It's, yeah. My, it's horrible. My hearts were there with you, brother. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm concerned. I'm, you know, I miss, uh, want to see my mom. I'll be very upset if I don't get to see her again in this lifetime. I will be, oh, I might lose my shit, actually, to be yeah. honest. I might lose my shit. That's hard. Like, I'm, I'm, my heart's feeling for you too right now. Like, I didn't know you had that going on. That yeah. is, that's terrible, man. Like, you, I mean, obviously with cancer, nobody ever knows. But is you know, does she have a little time left, or like? Who knows? Who knows? She thinks she'll. Know. She thinks she'll survive the year. 
Okay. But well, I hope she does, and I, I hope she survives even beyond that. Absolutely. That's that's what I I rarely talk about it because I like to focus on on a different reality, but but I don't like to deny reality either you know and the facts of situations like that 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 way also lies madness and irresponsibility not taking the chances and fighting the fight you need to fight to to get to be with someone while you can so you got to balance those two things imagine that it's about balance once again what a shock yeah right go figure (laughs) jesus man yeah well it's uh yeah let's uh fingers crossed and like i keep saying everyone it's a great time for magic actually um, especially when it seems like all the adults have left the planet, the energy seems to be sort of malleable and changing in a sort of kind of alchemy that I feel is quite susceptible, more susceptible than when things were in more fixed states, if you know what I mean. Oh, I agree. To, look, the, the, one of the, this is the time when the magician goes to work. And that's what I tell people when they are like, "Why aren't you posting about this or that, or or, or say you know supporting these movements?" I'm like, "Because I'm doing ritual work, and I'm doing inner planes work, and rising in the planes, and scrying, and tatwas, and now I'm taking a goetia class on how to work with unclean spirits. So that will be fun." Yeah, I mean, I, I did uh, here in Portland. My partner and I did do some of the other uh, protesting for Black Lives Matter. Sure. That, yeah. Great. That's a big fucking problem. And yeah, man. It's, you know, especially like, you know, Brianna Taylor. I mean, this poor woman is asleep in her fucking bed. Like, she's asleep, like she's not a threat. So when people are like, oh, well, if you just obey the law, you know, it's like, yeah, that's obey the law. A fucking woman was asleep in her goddamn bed. Yeah. Like, seriously. Yeah. And I don't care. Okay, so George Floyd has a criminal record. I don't give a fuck. I don't care. Yeah. You don't suffocate somebody to death. Like, are you kidding? And and the fact that people bring that up as if that's a valid or oh, he had a criminal history. Who gives a shit? Yeah. I don't I, care. Yeah, that's crazy. I don't yeah, that's crazy indeed. It's insanity to bring that up. Yeah. To please. bring that up if it matters, it's like you soulless fuck. It's weird, too, because it's being politicized after the fact, because when George Floyd happened, everyone agreed. It's like one of the few times on the planet I think everyone actually agreed on what happened. Oh, yeah. It's like, and then it got politicized after the fact? How, how did, these people, they're looking for it. It's a game. It's a, it's a power game, and, and, you know, it's very, very sad, and it's, it's got a real human cost. I mean, fuck, it's, it's. We could eat ourselves to death. I mean, that is possible. It's not like it's impossible for us to end this planet. We can definitely do that. And nature well, doesn't give a shit. Nature will go on without us. Yeah, that's why I say to people like when I. It's funny because I, I'll say like I'm a goddess worshiper. I worship Guy. Oh, that's so sweet. I'm like, yo, she's a killer. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like don't don't be fooled because it's a female deity. Like she's like she's a fucking like she's the one. She sent Jesus to that fucking cross. She is a killer. Yeah. So don't like don't think that because it's a feminine deity. <laughs> like, yeah, got like George Carlin made that same thing. It's like, look, the planet is fine. The people are fucked. Like the planet. And it will go on, and all that will happen is some other species, some other life forms will come out of the fucking soil, like because that's life. That is the divinity of the universe. That is the you know the 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 cosmic divinity of life. So it's like humans, we are not the apple of God's eye. No. Like I, I know that we think that we are, but we're not. And it's like 
we can the human race will become extinct and it's like and you know what wolves will still be in the forest bears will still be fishing salmon out of the river they're not going to miss us 99.999 percent of the species on this planet are not going to myth us if we're gone my mentor sally mcfig basically created the movement behind ecological theology throughout the 60s up to present day and she uh, writes a lot about ecology and theology and uh, there's a lot of arguments uh, that she points out from biblical scholars saying that you know in the genesis when it said and and god gave adam a dominion over everything the fishes of the sea and the fowl of the air and every creeping thing that creeps over the earth but hebrew bible scholars and theologians pretty much are pushing for the last 50 years to understand that not as dominion but as stewardship Sure. And yes. uh, Sally argues for panentheism, all, you know, radical imminence and transcendence of God's presence in nature. I'm more of a deep pantheist, actually, than a panentheist no. even. But she, I follow her reading that we need to decenter ourselves from our view uh, in nature. We need to not see ourselves as the center of nature because we are not. And as much as she would talk about God and spirit and nature, she would also quote Darwin and say, life in nature is vicious cruel and brief wasn't that Rousseau nasty brutish and short yeah that there you go you nailed it i uh, yeah I, I always get that wrong yeah. uh, maybe uh, may, i i don't know actually even if it, it was darwin i don't know but she would quote I, it all the time i think it was rousseau maybe that probably I, probably yeah i'm pretty yeah. sure it was rousseau and that it's uh life is nasty brutish and short yeah i know that's the quote i'm i not 100 percent on if it's rousseau but i think it was so you're probably and, right yeah listening don't you know quote me on that and you know make a comment this asshole doesn't know anything about rousseau and it's like yeah you're right i don't (laughs) i agree sadly i didn't talk to her after i graduated from like 2006 on um i wish i had she just passed last autumn uh, at 82, and she was a remarkable woman. She was the first dean of a university ever in the world as part of affirmative action in the 60s uh, down at Nashville uh, Vanderbilt University. She's a Yale alum, brilliant scholar. Her books are amazing, like super, comma, natural Christians. She also wrote the books on modular theology and metaphorical theology. And uh, she uh, left her husband uh, back in the day, and uh, who was the the head of the philosophy department she was elevated to head of the university because you know affirmative action she left him moved to vancouver married her girlfriend and became the adjunct distinguished professor of theology and philosophy at at, at my at ubc for and was my mentor so i was very lucky to have that it changed my life because i started thinking a completely different way and looking at ecological theology and how we we aren't the center of the universe even in nature and uh, if we don't, we, if we don't learn, we, we don't, we fail to learn that lesson to our peril. Yeah. And is, um, in that, I don't know if you've read, um, I started, I just started reading that book, uh, Sapiens. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it. I yeah, of course. People always say, I keep saying I should read that. I've heard some strong arguments for, uh, I've heard strong arguments against some of the premises. Well, one of them that, one of the premises that, that uh, I, I w- was, um, uh, hinting at was um, this idea that especially, you know, that we think we're the pinnacle of creation, whatever. It's like, just look at a human baby versus like a baby horse. Like, <laughs> like, like, a no, like a baby, a, a baby horse can be born. And within moments, it's walking around on its feet, following its mom, eating whatever a baby human. It will be dead 
in minutes <laughs> in order the adults are there to keep it alive. Just just ask uh, the city-state of Sparta, right? Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> Leave it on the side of Mount Tecanos. <laughs> what happens in the morning. They were a strong population, but not a large one. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, uh, yeah, but, yeah, it, it's like, just like... Do you like, have any siblings? I did. Yeah, right. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, you know, and, and I don't know, that was pretty eye-opening, like, just, like, realizing, it's like, yeah, like, we're pretty fragile. Like, yeah. humans are very fragile. Yeah. In a way that no other animal, like, no other new, or maybe some other ones, I'm sure, again, there's some fucking zoologist, no, well, what about the pots or whatever? And it's like, okay, yeah, you're right. But, you know, just in that, it's just weird that, you know, we, we we do. There is very clearly something different between humans and every other animal on this planet. I mean, very clearly, you know, but it's just odd that we have reached this level. And yet we are so fragile when we're first born. Oh, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. We are we are yeah, fragile, delicate creatures on this planet that is. Uh, I mean, it's so amazing how far we've come. I mean, and we we might we might need if we if we were stoned apes that evolved that way, we still need to get stoneder. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> let's Stone let's apes. let's keep going in the right direction and uh, making this like I, that's the thing. I see the world just burning itself right now. And when I was in on my European book tour and lecture tour last year. I was surprised when I was I got stuck in Toulouse and then in France for a while uh, accidentally. Oh, you um, poor thing. Yeah, and, well, it was rough. Um, I was transferring airplanes and my uh, bank got bank card got hacked and I got lost access to my account and oh, and I couldn't leave. So my friend, who's an ambassador to the to to the Czech Republic, had to like pull strings to get me out of Europe because my bank wouldn't reactivate my account until I showed up in person at my branch. So I canceled my flight. I was on the way to California. I had to go reroute through back to Canada and got to to fix that. And I was everyone was like, "How do you not have two bank accounts?" I'm like, "Okay, clearly I need two bank accounts." But I didn't know that before because to right. me, everyone anyone who had multiple bank accounts at different banks was like, must be sketchy or a drug dealer. So I was like, "Why would I need more than one?" Plus, they they're expensive; they cost you monthly fees. But yeah, in Toulouse, they had they were having riots every single Saturday, and they weren't riots; they were protests. People coming out protesting against the government. And it got, and then the cops would attack them with batons. In the month, in the time I was there, I was hanging with these kids who were going to the protests. And this one French kid said, "You know, twenty-two eyeballs in the last three weeks have been knocked out in Toulouse Jesus. by cops." And they have their own orange shirt medics. And you're, there's notifications all throughout France saying, "Do not go into city centers on any Saturdays because there's just utter destruction." And the Champ de Elysee was being burned and smashed when I was there in Paris. Just, just, and and here's what's really crazy that people need to know. Everyone in the international world is saying, "Oh, it's because they're upset and still having riots again about the gas prices." I learned from being there that's bullshit. Okay, it is nothing to do with gas prices. Yes, did they increase gas prices? Did that affect poor people? Yes, they're protesting against inequality. They're protesting against the classist minority who are nationalizing and consolidating power and oppressing their people. That's why the French are protesting, and then it's it's the cops who come out swinging that turn it into a riot. 
Oh, yeah, the same thing that happened here in Portland. They just sent the, the Department of Homeland Security here. They sent in the fucking federal troops, and it just escalated everything. It's like, yo, it wasn't the protesters that, that escalated this and made it horrible. It's you assholes that did it. So Yeah, see, I haven't seen anything since I'm, I'm, I'm stuck in a room. I can't even walk outside my room to go pee without risking a... Uh violence so i haven't seen this but i did see what happened in france and what shocked me was to hear was to come back to north america and hear the narrative it's that it's about this bullshit gas price thing and these the the, the whiny french people just don't want to pay more for gas like seriously man such such uh, misinformation that's being touted by the media it's 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 terrifying no, I know. Well, that's where we, that's the age we live in. That's why I just like I'm a non-participant. I mean, I, I except with the protest. I mean, when I say non-participant, I mean as far as news outlets because I don't watch any of it because it's all bullshit and it's just there to poison you. That's all it's there to do. It's there to poison your mind so that you can't be better. Because if there's one thing this country doesn't actually want, it's people that rise above and rise to the occasion. We want we want just people fucking like uh, not to quote Colin again, but people smart enough to run the machines and dumb enough to not realize how how much they're being fucked. Yeah, absolutely. I just watched that new uh, released uh, TV series of uh, of Brave New World, and it's excellent. Oh, I didn't know that uh, that was a thing. Excellent. You can watch it for free on Peacock with a free week subscription. It's excellent. Fucking amazing. What's yeah. a peacock? It's it's a new platform or something like that. I don't know. You can just you can you know how to find shit online. So, or as your student wisely said once said, just Google it. Yeah. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> so That's brilliant! Greatest like, I've ever seen. <laughs> just Google it. I totally when I submit a paper again one day, I totally want to throw that in someplace. <laughs> you know, when it's a paper, I know that it's going to be rejected anyway. <laughs> just Google footnote. Just CF Ibid. Just Google it. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> So amazing, man. So the question I'd like to maybe say, ask then is, so if we're in a, if we are in a world where the system is fundamentally only trying to perpetuate itself, how do we change the system? Um, you and, change yourself and you don't participate in it. You see, just, you just don't participate. Like if there if there's bullshit, I don't mean drop out. I don't mean like drop out of society because I have not dropped out of society. I well, mean just you and I thing. definitely are not staying silent. That's for sure. Well, that's for damn sure. Yeah. Um, speak up. Don't let anybody to tell you to shut up. Um, if you don't know what you're talking about, then you know maybe yeah, shut up and learn something first. But if you do know what you're talking about, just be loud and you know and you know do what you can we we need now is the time for good idea people to to be really vocal um yeah. and fortunately it's also the time where you are being handed a microphone whether you have something relevant to say or not um yeah. so it's just you know, there's both. Uh, some of the speakers during the protest were really insightful and, you know, uh, heartwarming and engaging and real. And some of the speakers were just saying whatever the fuck came to their mind. Hey, I got a microphone and you're all going to listen to me now. Like, and you got both of them. Yeah. So um, maybe if, I don't know, it, it's, 
we're no longer this is another problem we're no longer allowed to not be good at things i don't know if you've noticed this but yeah everybody suddenly is an expert in everything all of a sudden everybody is an expert in everything and so when somebody says like oh well what about this topic everybody just pulls out their phone reads the wikipedia page then gets on the microphone as if they know what the fuck they're talking about and they don't yeah yeah that's also a problem and me saying that that's a problem is a problem because somebody's going to take offense to it. And, you know, this is something else. And this is this is probably the most important thing that I've said over this entire, I think we're about four hours. We just deep. broke four hours, brother. Yeah. We planned for two. We had yeah. a, hard lo- a hard deadline and we did four. That's fucking outstanding. You're a gem. I only planned for one. <laughs> oh, you said between 11 and 1. PM. Yeah. I thought you were saying I could only have two hours of your time. You were only going to give me one hour, and look at us at four. At four. Well, it's, it's a great conversation. It's amazing. Well, who who would have thought we were actually the same age? What, what when's your birthday? February eighteenth. January thirty first. Oh, we're we're both Aquarius too. Oh well, that explains everything. Literally, literally I was just going to say that <laughs> actually explains every goddamn thing right there. We're both Aquarii. So folks. If it sounds like we were just uh, we've been babbling with each other in an echo chamber for four hours, we that's because it's true. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're born a couple weeks apart. Oh my yeah. god! Yeah. Oh god. Well, shout out to our fellow late bloom Gen Xers out there. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Yeah, man. Fucking amazing. Well, let, yeah. So wrap, finish what you were going to say there, and yeah. Uh, where was go. go? Oh shit. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, it's all right. It probably was stupid, so or not very important. <laughs> oh, well, you know, it, I, I do, I do love that we've touched on some of these things that we hear about every day. But at the same time, it's only fun to talk about them for so long before I just like oh, I, I want to get back to like, you know, what matters, magic. Yeah, exactly. Like my writing, research, doing things I'm, I am good at that I am an expert in, and that's another thing actually about academia and schol- scholarship is. If people aren't paying attention to hardcore, like real scholarship, like why I talk to a lot of occult people, of course, and I mentioned there the thing that people say to me a lot is that they like my book recommendations because I tend to recommend a ton of shit they've never even heard of, and that's what we need to do is we need to be open to learning stuff we didn't know that we didn't know. Yeah. Oh, that that was what we were talking about. Is um, like a little anxiety and uncertain epistemological anxiety might be a in. what the doctor ordered it's healthy yeah oh like, that that's yeah that's i don't believe I, in karma and reincarnation but i also believe but i do believe that i could be wrong oh yeah dude i think i like i at the end of the day i i am certain that i know how to tie my shoes and not too much more than that <laughs> right you know so. I, I wear slip-ons so uh, you're a step ahead of me bro you're lucky <laughs> I, and, I, and i can play a mean game of roller derby that i could also do but oh, besides shit. that well, I really hope that you and I get to jam together in the near future. Yeah, dude, that'd be great. That would be amazing. I'll bring my flanger. Please do. <laughs> I don't have one anymore, but oh, I miss my Gibson Silverburst like like a, like a limb. C'est la vie. Well, so hopefully the economy will recover. We won't burn our, ourselves to the ground and eat ourselves so that we can actually have future careers and maybe even afford rent again. Yeah, and maybe write another book or two. That would be fun, right? Psychedelic Witch is coming out then in the near future. Well, I, so the one that I have one coming out next May or June, which is um, uh, called uh, Wonder Child. Oh, uh, 
LSD in the psychedelic 50s. But, uh, wow. and, uh, I'm glad so you mentioned that. Which will be out uh, after that, like two or so, like 2022, 2023, it'll be out. I'm really glad you mentioned that. It would be horrible to not have all your work referred to in this episode. Yeah, well, we'll have to do this again sometime, man. Yeah, we will, my friend. Yeah, I really hopefully will. we will share a teepee and a hot tub up at Soma Institute with Chris Bennett before that before the next meteor impact. Here's the deal, though. When you, me, and Bennett are up at Soma <laughs> and we're at hot tub smoking a fucking bowl, I want cameras and microphones on all of us because that is just going to be such an epic conversation. Uh, probably longer than four hours, too. And, oh, with Bennett? Bennett will yeah. go on for four days. Dude, dude, last time I was there, like, so we started the one, oh, we did three, a three-day series of things, and we did one th- ritual called the, the the ritual of the five fires, so we had the night of the five fires. We had fire, they fired the hot tub, fire that fired the sauna, then another fire one on the TV, blah, blah, blah. Started with mushrooms, did, we're in the hot tub, and a, and a rainbow shot over us, man. Nice. rainbow and then we moved on that evening to like you know tp and dmt and all that stuff and he says next time we're doing peyote because it's legal in canada and he grows it on his own property yeah i know i know, I know. yeah come on america catch up you're, you might have more free speech than us but you're, you're you're you know there's a ways to go we can all develop we can all evolve let's get stoner more stoner yeah man stoner apes yeah stoner apes that's our t-shirt bro I know, right? <laughs> Title of our sex tape. <laughs> All right, man. This has been such a pleasure. I'm sure we could easily hit a fifth hour if we wanted to, but let's leave oh, something for next time, eh? Sounds good, oh, brother. God. Thanks so much for this. It was, it was an absolute blast. Fucking delight, man. I'm so glad I uh, we, we, we fought to make this happen. Fuck yeah, buddy. So stay safe in Portland. Do, keep doing good work. And uh, and uh, next time, I'm excited to talk to you after I've read all your books because I'm sure I can burn through the three of the the three main ones. I'm sure I I'm sure I won't be able to put them down honestly because they're right up my alley, like right up my alley. What's going to be cool is that uh, when we do speak again, I will have read the Ethics of Understanding God. So we're definitely going to hit that fifth hour. It does. It does. I, I do say things like uh, spirit is transgression, and I look at the 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 goal of transformation arising out of uh, existential and trauma um but if if the book does seem burdensome just read the par- the conclusion i always tell people all you need to read is the last page and if you have a problem with what i say on the last page then you might need to read the what led me there but otherwise <laughs> you know cuz well, there's, there's a little I'm, critical theory to put it lightly i'm i'm more of a cover to cover kind of guy so beautiful um, well there's yeah. some great stuff on nietzsche's spirituality and meister eckhart Fucking A, man. I look forward to it. Well, amen, brother. I love you. You're a gem. You're a gift to this world. So thanks so much for uh, sharing your wisdom with these uh, the swine out out in the ethers who will <laughs> surely, surely comment. No, I'm, they're going to love that it's four hours. The, the, they've all been like, we love the three-hour ones. We love the three-hour ones. And the last one, I two, 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 two ones ago, I did Celeste Mata, uh, Australia, a new, a new England-born Australian who does tarot and neuromancy and lucid dream teaching in New Orleans, and we hit the four-hour mark. So now, now, you, now you, she has some good company. This has been just fucking amazing and epic. Fuck yeah, buddy. Yeah. All right, bro. Um, yeah. On, on here's the deal, also, man. Just you know, from me to you. Um, on your way, if if you are back up at Canada, if you're allowed back in there, and you need a stopover place on the way, you know, my my door's open. So, all right, Portland. 
Yeah, in Portland. I've, I've never actually pulled off the freeway despite having driven through Portland well over 40 times in my life. It is a fun city, man. I mean, if there's hopefully if you're driving through, it's because the restrictions are getting lifted and, you know, we'll actually be able to do stuff. But in the very least, we'll definitely be able to roll some joints and cool. talk for four hours. Yeah, and two of the clergy who during the Eleusinian Rites are both counselors there, uh, therapists who live there. be cool to see them. My estranged godfather lives there, but uh, I probably shouldn't visit him. He, he, he uh, pulled a fast one on the Golden Dawn world way back when. I won't pry. No, well, it's talked about ad nauseum on podcasts, so, you know. Brother, I'll let you go. Peace profound. Yeah, peace, brother. Yeah. Hey, I'll hail the magic mushroom. What's that? I'll hail the magic mushroom. I'll hail the magic mushroom, indeed. All right. Take care. That was epic. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk.